Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We have finally reached it. The conclusion in terms of the book details for Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. We're super excited to bring you this conclusion today because this is the biggest book in the entire franchise and we finally conquered it. Today is the day we get to finish up from here to the last page of the book and talk about all the amazing climatic moments that occur and I want to give Chase the opportunity here to take it away, talk a little bit about some of the new things you can see on his screen if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening on the podcast, he'll explain it to you. But he added a couple new uh, visuals there for this special episode as well. So Chase, go ahead, take it away, and uh, let him know what you got. Yeah, uh, this is my favorite book, so I had to add just a couple things here, but... Definitely on the back nine. As you guys can see, I wound up actually getting glasses. I told you guys that. I went to the uh, glasses place. Didn't think I needed anything. And then they were like, no, you definitely need glasses. Your eyes are really bad. No idea. I tried to get the like half moon spectacles, but apparently they don't sell those in the store. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so what I added here today, which, you know, we're not going to give away any spoilers, but as you saw last time, you know, I still have Harry, and he's got the prophecy in his hand. And then our big moment is over here on the right, if you can kind of see some foreshadowing there. And then uh, right over here to the left, you know, um, we actually have someone right next to Harry that actually plays a really big role in uh, today's episode. I wasn't so uh, thrilled with the film version of it, but uh, someone that you could really argue really almost plays the hero role. Uh, today and then to the left you know you have my girl Hermione um, you got Lucius Malfoy with his blonde hair and mask on trying to cover up his identity next to her and then uh, for a big moment that you're really going to kick us off and get us into um, I do have my boy kind of uh, looking through that camera lens right there staring at yours uh, Remus Lupin and it's going to get pretty intense today um, just a quick shout out to, uh, I went into Coliseum of Comics, uh, uh, actually this week, just stopped in there, seeing what was going on, um, picking up some stuff that hopefully y'all see on the channel at some point, we'll do some surprises, but uh, Evan, he's one of the workers there, and uh, his wife had no idea, so his wife actually got him hooked on our show, actually subscribed via Amazon Music, <laughs> so that was pretty cool, we don't hear about those subscribes a lot. But uh, she said, you know, she was so intense to Lord of the Rings that she even used to speak Elvish. So I said, just stay tuned. And he's a big time Star Wars fan. So hopefully like season two will be their big moments there. But with that, man, I think we should go ahead and get us kicked off here. Uh, just on the bottom real quick. Of course, I can't leave out Ron. You know, he's kind of a big part. <laughs> so I got Ron there. And then uh, my boy Snape's on the side on the right. And then uh, Hagrid and McGonagall. Um, just as we kind of close things out today, but yeah, man, I think let's go ahead and kick us off. Um, let's let's do this thing. This is this is the moment today. This is this is the final countdown of the order. So who gave you the order? A year from today, we we're <laughs> filming that episode. So just ironic, we are here now. That's awesome, man. And yeah, so what we'll do is we'll go ahead and jump on in. Before we want, I always want to give a little bit of a recap. Uh, this is something that we mentioned when we were reading it last week, but I didn't go into as much detail as I would have liked to about it. We found out that Dolores Umbridge is the one that sent the Dementors to attack Harry and Little Winging uh, back in the very beginning of the book, if you guys remember. So 
before Harry went out into the forest with Hermione and was going to show uh, Umbridge Dumbledore's secret weapon, uh, you know, she admitted that she is the one that sent the Dementors and she was about to perform that illegal curse on them. You know, so you can kind of see, you know, when things kind of get in a tight corner, what she's willing to do and go that extra mile. And so kind of pa- passing off from that, when we go into them in the forest, uh, you know, Hermione makes enough noise for the centaurs to gather up. They kind of take care of Umbridge for them. And they're about to get in a spotty little situation with the centaurs too until Grop the Giant shows up, kind of saves Hermione and Harry, you know, from the centaurs. And then, uh, you know, Ron, Neville, Luna, and Ginny show up. Uh, in the forest with uh, Harry and Hermione's wands. They get taken over to the uh, the Ministry of Magic. They go in to get their rescue mission badges from the <laughs> phone booth. They get in there, and they uh, go into all these crazy little rooms. We got to see a, an arched stone dais that's going to play a huge moment in what we're about to get into today. Uh, they got to see a room that was locked. I didn't get to see it. The room was locked. They couldn't get through it. I mentioned a little bit of my interesting fact last week. Uh, there was a room with uh, some clocks and some time things that really play a part. And then they finally make it to the Hall of Prophecy. And in the Hall of Prophecy, they think they're going to find Sirius there. Because that's the whole vision that Harry had. He thought he saw Voldemort torturing Sirius. And, you know, as of right now, they couldn't find Sirius. But they do see a certain white orb, a prophecy, with Harry's name on it. And so Harry picks it up. And then you hear from behind him, very good, Potter. Now turn around nice and slowly and give that to me, and we're about to figure out who said that right now, because we're about to jump on in. So let's go ahead and give them our patented Malice in the Chalice cheers. We're going to open up to uh, chapter Beyond the Veil, and we're going to do some reading and discussing all the way through the end, man. Juan's at the ready on this one, man. I think this is, uh, just right before we get started here, just a five-second statement about it. I think this is the first... uh, especially this chapter. This was the first chapter in the whole series I remember even reading as a kid, and it's the first chapter that really, like, shook me up. Like, I was like, wow, Uh, this is, uh, now we are in those really powerful moments, separating the adults from the children, man. (laughs) Let's do this stuff. Let's go ahead and kick us off, man. Let's do this. Cheers, brother. Cheers, brother. Malice in the right. Chalice, baby. Off to the pit of misery with you. I'll be there <laughs> next episode. <laughs> that's for yeah, sure. That's for damn sure. <laughs> so let's go ahead and open up here. Page 781, chapter 35, Beyond the Veil. It says, we're going to start up saying, Black shapes were emerging out of thin air all around them, blocking their way left and right, eyes glinting through the slits and hoods. A dozen lit wand tips were pointing directly at their hearts. Ginny gave a gasp of horror. To me, Potter, repeated the drawling voice of Lucius Malfoy as he held out his hand, palm up. Harry's insides plummeted sickingly. They were trapped and outnumbered two to one. To me, said Malfoy yet again. We're serious, Harry said. Several of the Death Eaters laughed. A harsh female voice from the midst of a shadowy figure to Harry's left said triumphantly, the Dark Lord always knows. Always, echoed Malfoy softly. Now, give me the prophecy, Potter. I want to know where Sirius is. I want to know where Sirius is, mimicked the woman to his left. She and her fellow Death Eaters had closed in so that they were mere feet away from Harry and the others, and the light from their wands dazzling in Harry's eyes. You've got him, said Harry, ignoring the rising panic in his chest. 
the dread he had been fighting since they first entered the 97th row. He's here. I know he is. The little baby woke up frightened and thought what a dream was true, said the woman in a horrible mock baby voice. And Harry felt Ron stir beside him. Don't do anything, he muttered. Not yet. The woman who had mimicked him let out a raucous scream of laughter. You hear him? You hear him? Giving out instructions to the other children as though he thinks of fighting us. Oh, you don't know Potter as I do, Bellatrix, said Malfoy softly. He has a great weakness for heroics. The Dark Lord understands this about him. Now, give me the prophecy, Potter. I know Sirius is here, said Harry, though panic was causing his chest to constrict, and he felt as though he could not breathe properly. I know you've got him. More of the Death Eaters laughed, though the women still laughed loudest of all. It's time you learn the difference between life and dreams, Potter, said Malfoy. Now give me the prophecy, or we start using wands. Go on, then, said Harry, raising his own wand to chest height, and as he did so, the five wands of Ron, Hermione, Neville, Ginny, and Luna rose on either side of him. The knot in Harry's stomach tightened. If Sirius really was not here, he had led his friends to their deaths for no reason at all. But the Death Eaters did not strike. Hand over the prophecy, and no one need get hurt, said Malfoy coolly. It was Harry's turn to laugh. Yeah, right, he said. I give you this prophecy, is it? And you'll just let us skip off home, will you? The words were hardly out of his mouth when the female Death Eater shrieked, Accio prop! And Harry was just ready for her. He shouted, Protego! Just before she had finished her spell, and though the glass spear slipped to the tips of his finger, he managed to cling on to it. Oh, he knows how to play, little baby Potter, she said, her mad eyes staring through the slits in her hood. Very well, then. I told you no, Lucius Malfoy roared at the woman. If you smash it, Harry's mind was racing. The Death Eaters wanted this dusty, spun glass sphere. He had no interest in it. He just wanted to get them all out of this alive and make sure none of his, his friends paid a terrible price for his stupidity. The woman stepped forward, away from her fellows, and pulled off her hood. Azkaban had hollowed Bellatrix Lestrange's face, making it gaunt and skull-like, but it was alive with a feverish, fanatical glow. "'You need more persuasion?' she said, her chest rising and falling rapidly. "'Very well. Take the smallest one,' she ordered the Death Eater beside her. "'Let him watch while we torture the little girl. I'll do it.' Harry felt the others close in around Ginny. He stepped sideways so that he was right in front of her, the prophecy held up to his chest. You'll have to smash this if you want to attack any of us, he told Bellatrix. I don't think your boss will be too pleased if you come back without it, will he? She did not move. She merely stared at him, the tip of her tongue moistening her thin mouth. So, said Harry, what kind of prophecy are we talking about anyways? He could not think what to do but to keep talking. Neville's arm was pressed against his. He could feel him shaking. He could feel one of the others quickened breath on the back of his head. He was hoping they were all thinking hard about ways to get out of this because his mind was blank. What kind of prophecy? repeated Bellatrix, the grin fading from her face. You jest, Harry Potter. Nope, not jesting, said Harry, his eyes flicking from Death Eater to Death Eater, looking for a weak link, a space through which they could escape. How come Voldemort wants it? Several of the Death Eaters let out a low hiss. You dare speak his name? whispered Bellatrix. Yeah, said Harry, maintaining his tight grip on the glass ball, expecting another attempt to bewitch it from him. Yeah, I've got no problem saying Vol- Shut your mouth! Bellatrix shrieked. You dare speak his name with your unworthy lips. You dare besmirch it with your half-blood tongue. You dare... Did you know he's a half-blood too? Said Harry recklessly. Hermione gave a little moan in his ear. Voldemort? Yeah. 
His mother was a witch, but his dad was a muggle. Or has he been telling you a lot he's pureblood? Stupa, no! A jet of red light had shot from the end of Velatric Lestrange's wand, but Malfoy had deflected it. His spell caused hers to hit the shelf about a foot to the left of Harry, and several of the glass orbs shattered. Two pearly white ghosts, fluid as smoke, unfurled themselves from the fragments of broken glass upon the floor, and each began to speak. Their voices tied with each other, so that only fragments of what they were saying could be heard over Malfoy and Bellatrix's shouts. At the solstice will come anew, said the figure of an old, bearded man. Do not attack! We need the prophecy! He dares! He dares! shrieked Bellatrix incoherently. He stands there, filthy half Wait until we've got the prophecy! bawled Malfoy. And none will come after, said the figure of a young woman. The two figures that burst from the shattered spheres had melted into thin air. Nothing remained of them or their erstwhile homes but a fragments of glass upon the floor. They had, however, given Harry an idea. The problem was going to be conveying it to the others. You haven't told me what's so special about this prophecy I'm supposed to be handing over, he said, playing for time. He moved his foot slowly sideways, feeling around for someone else's. Do not play games with us, Potter, said Malfoy. I'm not playing games, said Harry, half his mind on the conversation, half on his wandering foot. Then he found someone's toes and pressed down upon them. With a sharp intake of breath behind him, it told him that they were Hermione's. What? she whispered. Dumbledore never told you the reason that you bear the scar was hidden in the bowels of the Department of Mysteries, said Malfoy sneeringly. I what? said Harry, and for a moment he quite forgot his plan. What about my scar? What? whispered Hermione more urgently behind him. Can this be? said Malfoy, sounding maliciously delighted. Some of the Death Eaters were laughing again, and under cover of their laughter, Harry hissed to Hermione, moving his lips as little as possible. Smash shelves. Dumbledore never told you, Malfoy repeated. Well, this explains why you didn't come earlier, Potter. The Dark Lord wondered why. When I say go. You didn't come running when he showed you the place that was hidden in your dreams. He thought natural curiosity would make you want to hear the exact wording. Did he? said Harry. Behind him, he felt, rather than heard, Hermione passing the message to the others, and he sought to keep talking to distract the Death Eaters. So he wanted me to come and get it. Why? Why? Malfoy sounded incredulously delighted. Because only the people who are permitted to retrieve a prophecy from the Department of Mysteries, Potter, are those whom it was made. And the Dark Lord discovered, when he attempted to use others to steal it from him, this was so. And why did he want to steal a prophecy about me? About both of you, Potter. About both of you. Haven't you ever wondered why the Dark Lord tried to kill you as a baby? Harry stared into the slitted eye holes through which Malfoy's gray eyes were gleaming. Was this prophecy the reason Harry's parents had to die? The reason he carried this lightning bolt scar? Was the answer to all of this clutched in his hand? Someone made a prophecy about Voldemort and me? He said quietly, <coughs> gazing <coughs> at Lucius, his fingers tightening over the warmth glass sphere in his hand. It was hardly larger than a snitch, and still gritty with dust. And he's made me come and get it for him? Why couldn't he come get it himself? Get it himself? shrieked Bellatrix on a cackle of mad laughter. The Dark Lord? Walk into the Ministry of Magic when they are so sweetly ignoring his return? The Dark Lord reveal himself to Aurors when at the moment they are wasting their time on my dear cousin? So he's got you doing his dirty work for him, has he? said Harry. Like he tried to get Sturgis to steal it? And Bode? Very good, Potter. Very good, said Malfoy slowly. But the Dark Lord knows you are not on into- NOW! yelled Harry, and five different voices behind him bellowed, Reducto! 
Five curses flew in five different directions, and the shelves opposite them exploded as they hit. The towering structure swayed as a hundred glass spheres burst apart. Pearly white figures unfurled in the air and floated there, their voices echoing from who, uh, from who knew what long-dead past amid the torrent of crashing glasses and splintered wood now raining down upon the floor. Run! yelled Harry, and as the shelves swayed precariously, more glass spheres began to pour from above. He seized a handful of Hermione's robes and dragged her forward, one arm over his head, as the chunks of shelves and shards of glass thundered down upon them. A Death Eater lunged forward through the cloud of dust, and Harry elbowed him hard in the masked face. They were all yelling. There were cries of pain, thunderous crashes, as the shelves collapsed upon themselves, weirdly echoing fragments of seers unleashed from their spheres. Harry found the way ahead clear and saw Ron, Ginny, and Luna sprint past him, their arms over their heads. Something heavy struck him on the side of the face, but he merely ducked his head and sprinted onwards. A hand caught him by the shoulder, but he heard Hermione shout, Stupefy! And the hand released him at once. They were at the end of row 97. Harry turned right and began to sprint in earnest. He could hear footsteps right behind him and Hermione's voice urging Neville on. The door through which they had come from was ajar straight ahead. Harry could see the glittering light of the bell jar. He pelted through it. The prophecy still clutched tight and safe in his hand. He waited for the others to hurtle over the threshold before slamming the door behind them. Colaportus! gasped Hermione, and the door sealed itself with an odd squelching noise. Where, where are the others? gasped Harry. He had thought Ron, Luna, and Ginny had been ahead of them, and that they would be waiting in this room, but there was nobody there. They must have gone the wrong way, whispered Hermione, terror in her face. Listen, whispered Neville. Footsteps and shouts echoed from behind the door. And they had just sealed. Harry put his ear close to the door to listen and heard Lucius Malfoy roar, Leave not! Leave him, I say. The Dark Lord will not care for Nott's injuries as much as losing that prophecy. Jugson, come back here. We need to organize. We'll split into pairs and search. And don't forget, be gentle with Potter until we've got the prophecy. You can kill the others if necessary. Bellatrix, Rodolphus, you take the left. Crab, Rabastin, go right. Jugson, Dolohov, the door straight ahead. McNair, Avery, through here. Rookwood, over there. Mulkyber, come with me. What do we do? Hermione asked Harry, trembling from head to foot. Well, we don't stand here waiting for them to find us for a start, said Harry. Let's get away from this door. They ran quietly as they could, past the shimmering bell jar where the tiny egg was hatching and unhatching, toward the exit into the circular hallway at the far end of the room. They were almost there when Harry heard something large and heavy collide with the door Hermione had charmed shut. Stand aside, said a rough voice. Alohomora! And as the door flew open, Harry, Hermione, and Neville dived under the desks. They could see the bottom of the two Death Eaters' robes drawing nearer, their feet moving rapidly. They might have run into the other hall, said the rough voice. Check under the desks, said another. Harry saw the knees of, a of the Death Eaters bend. Poking out his wand from under the desk, he shouted, Stupefy! And a jet of red light hit the nearest Death Eater. He fell backward into the grandfather clock and knocked it over. The second Death Eater, however, had leapt aside to avoid Harry's spell, and now pointed his own wand at Hermione, who had crawled out from under the desk to get a better aim. Avada and Harry launched himself across the floor and grabbed the Death Eater around the knees, causing him to tapple and his aim go awry. Neville overturned his desk in his anxiety to help, pointing his wand wildly at the struggling pair. He cried, Expelliarmus! And both Harry and the Death Eater's wands flew out of their hands and soared back toward the entrance hall to the Hall of Prophecy, 
Both scrambled to their feet and charged after them, the Death Eater in front and Harry hot on his heels. Neville, bringing up the rear, plainly horror-struck at what he had just done. Get out of the way, Harry! yelled Neville, clearly determined to repair the damage. Harry flung himself sideways as Neville took aim again and shouted, Stupefy! And a jet of red light flew over the Death Eater's shoulder and hit a glass-fronted cabinet on the wall, very vicariously shaped hourglass. The cabinet fell to the floor and burst apart, glass flying everywhere, then sprang back up the wall, fully mended, then fell down again and shattered. The Death Eater had snatched up his wand, which lay on the floor beside the glittering bell jar. Harry ducked down behind another desk as the man turned. His mask slipped so he could not see. He ripped it with his free hand and shouted, Stupid, stupefy! screamed Hermione, who had just caught up with them, and the jet of red light hit the Death Eater in the middle of his chest. He froze, his arm still raised, his wand fell to the floor with a clatter as he collapsed back toward the bell jar. Harry expected to hear a clunk for the man to hit solid glass and slide off the jar onto the floor, but instead his, hang his head sank through the surface of the bell jar as though it was nothing but a soap bubble, and he came to rest, sprawled on his back on the table, with his head lying inside the jar full of glittering wind. Accio won, cried Hermione, and Harry's wand flew from a dark corner into her hand and she threw it to him. Thanks, he said. Right, let's get out of- Look out! said Neville, horrified, staring at the Death Eater's head in the bell jar. All three of them raised their wands again, but none of them struck. They were all gazing, open-mouthed, appalled at what was happening to the man's head. It was shrinking very fast, growing balder and balder, the black hair and stubble retracting into its skull, his cheeks smooth, his skull round, covered with peach-like fuzz. A baby's head now sat grotesquely on top of the thick-muscled neck of the Death Eater as he struggled to get up again. But even as they watched their mouths open, the head began to swell to its previous proportions again, thick black hair was sprouting from its pate and chin. It's time, said Hermione in an awestruck voice. Time. The Death Eater shook its ugly head again, trying to clear it. But before he could pull himself together, it began to shrink back to babyhood once more. There was a shout from a nearby room and a crash and a scream. Ron! Ron yeah, Harry yelled, turning quickly from the monstrous transformation taken before them. Ginny! Luna! Harry! Hermione screamed. The Death Eater had pulled his head out of the bell jar. His appearance was utterly bizarre. His tiny baby's head bawling loudly while his thick arms flailed dangerously in all directions, narrowly missing Harry who ducked. Harry raised his wand to his amazement. Hermione seized his arm. You can't hurt a baby. But there was no, argue t no time to argue the point. Harry could hear more footsteps growing louder from the Hall of Prophecy they had just left and knew too late they ought not to have shouted and given away their position. Come on, he said again, leaving the ugly baby-headed Death Eater staggering behind them. They took off for the door that stood ajar at the end of the room, leading back into the black hallway. They had run halfway toward it when Harry saw through the open door two more Death Eaters run across the black room toward them. Veering left, he burst into a small, dark, cluttered office and slammed the door behind them. Kala began Hermione, but before she could complete the spell, the door burst open again, and the two Death Eaters had come hurtling inside. With a cry of triumph, both yelled, Impedimenta! And Harry, Ron, and Neville were all knocked backwards off their feet. Neville was thrown over the desk, disappearing from view. Hermione smashed into a bookcase and was prom promptly deluged in a cascade of heavy books. The back of Harry's head slammed into the stone wall behind him. Tiny light bursts in front of his eyes, and for a moment, he was too dizzy and bewildered to react. We've got him, yelled the Death Eater nearest Harry. In an office off Silencio, cried Hermione, and the man's voice was distinguished, extinguished.
Yeah, Silencio cried Hermione, and the man's voice was extinguished. He continued to mouth through the hole in his mask, but no sound came out. He was thrust aside by his fellow. Petrificus Totalis, shouted Harry, as the second Death Eater raised his wand. His arms and legs snapped together, and he fell forward, face down on the rug at Harry's feet, stiff as a board, unable to move at all. Well done, Het, but as the Death Eater, but the Death Eater Hermione had just struck dumb, made a sudden slashing movement with his wand, from which flew a streak of what looked like purple flame. It passed right across Hermione's chest. She gave a tiny, oh, as though surprised, and then crumpled onto the floor where she lay motionless. Hermione! Harry fell to his knees beside her, and Neville crawled rapidly toward them from under the desk, his wand held up in front of him. The Death Eater kicked out hard at Neville's head as he emerged. His foot broke Neville's wand in two and connected with his face. Neville gave a howl of pain, recoiled, clutching his mouth and nose, and Harry twisted around, his own wand held high, and saw the Death Eater had ripped off his mask. He was pointing his wand directly at Harry. Harry, who recognized the long, pale, twisted face from the Daily Prophet, was Antonin Dolohov, the wizard who had murdered the Pruitts. Dolohov grinned. With his free hand, he pointed from the prophecy still clutching Harry's hand to himself and then at Hermione. Though he could no longer speak, his meaning could not have been clearer. Give me the prophecy... Or you get the same as her. Like, you won't kill us the moment I hand it over anyway, said Harry. A whine of panic inside his head was preventing him from thinking properly. He had one hand on Hermione's shoulder, which was still warm, yet he did not dare look at her properly. Don't let her be dead. Don't let her be dead. It's my fault if she's dead. Whatever you do, Harry, said Neville fiercely from under the desk, lowering his hands to show a clearly broken nose and blood pouring down his mouth and chin. Don't give it to him. There was a crash outside the door, and Dolohov looked over his shoulder. The baby-headed Death Eater had appeared in the doorway, his head bawling, his great fist flailing uncontrollably at everything around him. And Harry seized his chance. Petrificus Totalis! The spell hit Dolohov before he could block it, and he toppled forward across his comrade, both of them rigid as boards, unable to move an inch. Hermione, said Harry at once, shaking her as the baby-head Dementor blundered out of sight again. Hermione, wake up! What did he do to her? said Neville, crawling out from under the desk to kneel at her side, blood streaming rapidly from his swelling nose. I don't know. Neville groped Hermione's wrist. That's a pulse, Harry. I'm sure it is. Such a powerful wave of relief swept through Harry for a moment, he felt lightheaded. She's alive? Yeah, I think so. And there was a pause in which Harry listened hard for the sounds of more footsteps, but all he could hear were the whimpers and blunderings of the baby Death Eater in the next room. Neville, we're not far from the exit, Harry whispered. We're right next to that circular room. If we can just get you across it and find the right door before any more Death Eaters come, I'll bet you can get Hermione up the corridor and into the lift. Then you could find someone. Raise the alarm. And what are you going to do? Said Neville, mopping his bleeding nose from his sleeve, frowning at Harry. I've got to find the others, said Harry. Well, I'm going to find them with you, said Neville firmly. But Hermione, we'll take her with us, said Neville firmly. I'll carry her. You're better at fighting them than I am. He stood up and seized one of Hermione's arms, glared at Harry, who hesitated, then grabbed the other and helped hoist Hermione's limp form over Neville's shoulder. Wait, said Harry, snatching up Hermione's wand from the floor and shoving it into Neville's hand. You'd better take this. Neville kicked aside the broken fragments of his own wand as they walked slowly towards the door. My gran's going to kill me said Neville thickly, blood spattering from his nose as he spoke. That was my dad's old wand. Harry struck his head out the door and looked around cautiously. 
The baby-headed Death Eater was screaming and banging into things, toppling grandfather clocks and overturning desks, bawling and confused, while the glass cabinet that Harry now suspected contained time-turners continued to fall, shatter, repair itself on the wall behind him. He's never going to notice us, he whispered. Come on, keep close behind me. They crept out of the office and back toward the door into the black hallway, which now seemed completely deserted. They walked a few steps forward, Neville tottering slightly due to Hermione's weight. The door of the time room swung shut behind them. The walls began to rotate once more. The recent blow on the back of Harry's head seemed to have unsteadied him. He narrowed his eyes, swaying slightly until the walls stopped moving again. With a sinking heart, Harry saw that Hermione's fiery crosses had faded from the doors. So which way do you reckon? But before he could make a decision as which way to try, a door to the right sprang open and three people fell out of it. Run! croaked Harry, dashing towards him. Ginny! Are you all... Harry! said Ron, giggling weakly, lurching forward, seizing the front of Harry's robes and gazing at him with unfocused eyes. There you are. <laughs> you look funny, Harry. You're all messed up. Ron's face was very white and something dark was trickling from the corner of his mouth. Next moment, his knees had given way, but he still clutched the front of Harry's robes so that Harry was pulled into a kind of a bow. Ginny, Harry said fearfully, what happened? But Ginny shook her head and slid down the wall into a sitting position, panting, holding her ankle. I think her ankle's broken. I heard something crack, whispered Luna, who was bending over her, and who alone seemed to be unhurt. Four of them chased us into a dark room full of planets. It was a very odd place. Some of the time, we were just floating in the dark. Harry, we saw Uranus up close, said Ron, giggling feebly. Get it, Harry? We saw Uranus. <laughs> a bubble of blood grew at the corner of Ron's mouth and burst. Anyway, one of them grabbed Jenny's foot. I used the reductor curse and blew up Pluto in his face, but... Luna gestured hopelessly at Ginny, who was breathing in a very shallow way, her eyes still closed. And what about Ron? said Harry fearfully, as Ron continued to giggle, still hanging off the front of Harry's robes. I don't know what they hit him with, said Luna sadly, but he's gone a bit funny. I could hardly get him along at all. Harry, said Ron, pulling Harry's ear down to his mouth and still giggling weakly. You know who that girl is, Harry? She's Looney. Looney Lovegood, ha ha ha. We've got to get out of here, said Harry firmly. Luna, can you help Ginny? Yes, said Luna, sticking her wand behind her ear for safekeeping, putting an arm around Ginny in her waist and pulling her up. It's only my ankle. I can do it myself, said Ginny impatiently. But the next moment, she had collapsed sideways and grabbed Luna for support. Harry pulled Ron's arm over his shoulder, just as so many months ago he had pulled Dudley's. He looked around. They had a 1 in 12 chance of getting the eggs right the first time. He heaved Ron towards a door. They were within a few feet of it when a door across the hall burst open and three Death Eaters sped into the hall, led by Belichick Lestrange. There they are, she shrieked. Stunning spell shot across the room. Harry smashed his way through the door ahead, flung Ron unceremoniously from him, and ducked back to help Neville in with Hermione. They were all over the threshold just in time to slam the door against Bellatrix. Coloportus, shouted Harry, and he had three bodies slam into the door on the other side. It doesn't matter, said a man's voice. There are other ways in. We've got them. They're here. Harry spun around. They were back in the brain room. And sure enough, there were doors all around the walls. He could hear footsteps in the hall behind them as more Death Eaters came running to join the first. Luna, Neville, help me. The three of them tore around the room, sealing doors as they went. Harry crashed into a table and rolled up the top of it in his haste to reach the next door. Coloportus! There were footsteps running along the doors. Every now and then, another heavy body would launch itself against one, so it shrieked and shuddered. Luna and Neville were bewitching the doors on the opposite wall. Then, 
As Harry reached the very top of the room, he heard Luna cry, Call out, Ah! He turned in time to see her flying through the air. Five Death Eaters were surging into the room through the door she had not reached in time. Luna hit a desk, slid over the surface, and onto the floor on the other side where she, uh, she lay sprawled as still as Hermione. Get Potter, shrieked Bellatrix, and she ran at him. He dodged her and sprinted back up the room. He was safe as long as they thought he, they might hit the prophecy. Hey, said Ron, who had staggered to his feet, now tottering drunkenly towards Harry, giggling. Hey, Harry, there are brains in here. <laughs> Isn't that weird, Harry? Ron, get out of the way. Get down. But Ron had already pointed his wand at the tank. Honest, Harry, they're brains. Look. Accio brain. And the scene seemed momentarily frozen. Harry, Ginny, and Neville, and each of the Death Eaters turned in spite of themselves to watch the top of the tank as a brain burst from the green liquid like a leaping fish. For a moment, it seemed suspended in midair. Then it soared toward Ron, spinning as it came, and what looked like ribbons of moving images flew from it, unraveling like rolls of film. Haha, <laughs> Harry, look at it, said Ron, watching a disengorgeous gaudy innards. Harry, come and touch it. Bet it's weird. Ron, no! Harry did not know what would happen if Ron touched the tentacles of thought now flying behind the brain, but he was sure it would not be anything good. He darted forward, but Ron had already caught the brain in his outstretched hands. The moment they made contact with his skin, the tentacles began wrapping themselves around Ron's arms like ropes. Harry, looks what happened. No, no, I don't like it. No, stop, stop. But the thin ribbons were spinning around Ron's chest now. He tugged and tore at them as the brains was pulled tight against him like an octopus's body. Defendo, yelled Harry, trying to sever the feelers, wrapping themselves tightly around Ron before his eyes, but they would not break. Ron fell over, still thrashing against his bonds. Harry, it'll suffocate him, screamed Jimmy, immobilized by her broken ankle on the floor. Then a jet of red light flew from one of the Death Eater's wands and hit her squarely in the face. She killed over sideways and lay there unconscious. Stupefy, shouted Neville, wheeling around, waving Hermione's wand at the oncoming Death Eaters. Stupefy! Stupefy! But nothing happened. One of the Death Eaters shot their own stunning spell at Neville, which missed him by inches. Harry and Neville were now the only two left fighting the five Death Eaters, two of whom sent streams of silver light-like arrows past them that left craters in the wall behind them. Harry ran for it as Bellatrix of Strange sprinted right at him. Holding the prophecy high above his head, he sprinted back up the room. All he could think about doing was drawing the Death Eaters away from the others. And it seemed to have worked. They streaked after him, knocking chairs and tables flying, but not daring to bewitch him in case they hurt the prophecy. And he dashed through the only one door still open, the one through which the Death Eaters themselves had come. Inwardly praying that Neville would stay with Ron, find some way of releasing him, he ran a few feet into the room, new room and felt the floor vanish. He was falling down steep stone steps after steep stone step, bouncing on every tier until at last, with a crash that knocked all the breath out of his body, he landed flat on his back in the sunken pit where the stone archway stood on its dais. The whole room was ringing in the Death Eater's laughter. He looked up and saw the five who had been in the brain room descending toward him, while as many more emerged through the other doorways and began leaping from bench to bench toward him. Harry got to his feet, though his legs were trembling so badly they barely supported him. The prophecy was still miraculously unbroken in his left hand, his wand clutched tightly in his right. He backed away, looking around, trying to keep all the Death Eaters within his sights. The back of his legs hit something solid. He had reached the dais where the archway stood, and he climbed backwards onto it. The Death Eaters all halted, gazing at him. 
Some of them were panting as hard as he was. One was bleeding badly. Dolohov, free to the full bind curse, was leering, his wand pointing straight at Harry's face. Potter, your race is run, drawled Lucius Malfoy, pulling off his mask. Now hand me the prophecy like a good boy. Let, let the others go, and I'll give it to you, said Harry desperately. A few of the Death Eaters laughed. You're not in a position to bargain, Potter, said Lucius Malfoy, his pale face flushed with pleasure. You see, there are ten of us, and only one of you. Or hasn't Dumbledore ever taught you how to count? He's not alone, shouted a voice from above them. He's still got me. Harry's heart sank. Neville scrambled down the stone benches toward them. Hermione's wand held fast in his trembling hand. Neville, no, go back to Ron. Stupefy, Neville shouted. Again, his wand pointing at each Death Eater in turn. Stupefy, stupid. One of the largest Death Eaters seized Neville from behind, pinioning his arms to his sides. He struggled and kicked, and several of the Death Eaters laughed. It's long bottom, isn't it? Sneered Lucius Malfoy. Well, your grandmother is used to losing family members to our cause. Your death will not come as a great shock. Longbottom, repeated Bellatrix, and a truly evil smile lit her gaunt face. Why, I have had the pleasure of meeting your parents, boy. I know you have, roared Neville, and his, he fought so hard against his captors' encircling grip that the Death Eaters shouted, Someone stun him! No, 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 said Bellatrix. She looked transported, alive with excitement as she glanced at Harry and back at Neville. No, let's see how long Longbottom lasts before he cracks like his parents. Unless Potter wants to give us the prophecy. Don't give it to him, roared Neville, his, who had seen beside himself kicking and writhing as Bellatrix drew nearer to him. Her, uh, his captor, her, her, wand raised, her wand raised. Don't give it to him, Harry. Bellatrix raised her wand. Crucio! And Neville screamed. His legs drawn up to his chest with the Death Eaters holding him was momentarily holding him off the ground. The Death Eater dropped him and he fell to the floor, twitching and screaming in agony. That was just a taster, said Bellatrix, raising her wand so that Neville's scream stopped, and he lay sobbing at her feet. She turned and gazed up at Harry. Now, Potter, either give us the prophecy, or watch your little friend die the hard way. Harry did not have to think. There was no choice. The prophecy was hot with heat from his clutching hand as he held it out, and Malfoy jumped forward to take it. I'm going to pause here, take a little sip, because this is where it gets nice and juicy. Malice in the chalice, baby. Good stuff, man. <sighs> yeah, literally, like, <clears throat> when it's at these parts, that's why, like, guys, y'all don't hear me make a sound. Like, I don't even want to move. Because if you miss one detail, like, ah, uh, take it away, man. That's, let's do this. Here we go, man. Then high above them, two more doors burst open, and five more people sprinted into the room. Sirius, Lupin, Moody, Tonks, and Kingsley. Malfoy turned and raised his wand, but Tonks had already sent a stunning spell right at him. Harry did not wait to see whether it had made contact, but dived off the dais out of the way. The Death Eaters were completely distracted by the appearance of the members of the Order, who were now raining spells down upon them as they jumped from step to step toward the sunken floor. Through the darting bodies, the flashes of light, Harry could see Neville crawling along. He dodged another jet of red light and flung himself flat on the ground to reach Neville. Are you okay? He yelled as another spell soared inches over their heads. Yes, said Neville, trying to pull himself up. And Ron? I think he's alright. He was still biting the brain when I left. 
The stone floor ex between them exploded as a spell hit, leaving a crater right where Neville's hand had been seconds before. Both scrambled away from the spot. Then a thick arm came out of nowhere, seized Harry around the neck, and pulled him upright so that his toes were barely touching the floor. Give it to me, growled a voice near. Give me the prophecy. The man was pressing so tightly onto Harry's windpipe that he could not breathe. Through watering eyes, he saw Sirius dueling with a Death Eater some ten feet away. Kingsley was fighting two at once. Tonks, still halfway up the tiered seats, was firing spells down at Bellatrix. Nobody seemed to realize that Harry was dying. He turned his wand backwards towards the man's side, but had no breath to utter an incantation. And the man's free hand was groping toward the hand in which Harry was grasping the prophecy. Arr! Neville had come lunging out of nowhere. Unable to articulate a spell, he had jabbed Hermione's wand hard into the eye hole of the Death Eater's mask. The man relinquished Harry at once, and with a howl of pain, Harry whirled around to face him and gasped, Stupefy! And the Death Eater keeled over backwards as mask slipped off. It was McNair, Buckbeak's would-be killer, one of his eyes now swollen and bloodshot. Thanks, Harry said to Neville, pulling him aside as Sirius and the Death Eater lurched past, doing so fiercely that their wands were blurs. Then Harry's foot made contact with something round and hard, and he slipped. For a moment, he thought he had dropped the prophecy. Then he saw Moody's magic eye spinning away across the floor. Its owner was lying on his side, bleeding from the head. And his attacker was now bearing down upon Harry and Neville. Dolohov, his long pale face twisted with glee. Tarantelegra, he shouted, his wand pointed at Neville, whose legs went immediately into a kind of frenzied tap dance, unbalancing, causing him to fall to the floor again. Now, Potter, he made the same slashing movement with his wand that he had used on Hermione, just as Harry yelled, Protego! And Harry felt something streak across his face like a blunt knife. But the force of it knocked him sideways, and he fell over Neville's jerking legs, but the shield charm had stopped the worst of the spell. Dolohov raised his wand again, Accio Prophet Sirius hurled out of nowhere, ramming Dolohov with his shoulder and sent him flying out of the way. The prophecy had again flown to the tips of Harry's fingers, but he had managed to cling to it. And now Sirius and Dolohov were dueling, their wands flashing like swords, sparks flying from their wand tips. Dolohov drew back his wand to make the same slashing movement as he had used on Harry and Hermione. Springing up, Harry yelled, Pacificus Totalis! And once again, Dolohov's arms and legs snapped together and he keeled over backwards, landing with a crash on his back. Nice one! shouted Sirius, forcing Harry's head down as a pair of stunning spells flew towards them. Now, I want you to get out of- They both ducked again, a jet of green light narrowly missed Sirius. And across the room, Harry saw Tonks fall from the hallway up the stone steps, her limp form toppling from stone seat to stone seat, and Bellatrix, triumphant, running back towards the fray. Harry, take the prophecy, grab Neville, and run! Sirius yelled, dashing to meet Bellatrix. Harry did not see what happened next. Kingsley swayed across his field of vision, battling with a pockmarked Rookwood, now maskless. Another jet of green light flew over Harry's head as he launched himself towards Neville. Can you stand? He bellowed in Neville's ear, and Neville's legs jerked and twitched uncontrollably. Put your arm around my neck. Neville did so, and Harry heaved. Neville's legs were still flying in every direction. They would not support him. Then out of nowhere, a man lunged at them. Both fell backwards. Neville's legs waving wildly like an overturned beetle's. Harry, with his left arm held up in the air to try and save the glass ball from being smashed. The prophecy. Give me the prophecy, Potter, snarled Lucius Malfoy in his ear. And Harry felt the tip of Malfoy's wand pressing hard between his ribs. No, get off me. Neville, catch it. 
Harry flung the prophecy across the floor. Neville spun himself around on his back and scooped the ball to his chest. Malfoy pointed his wand and set at Neville, but Harry jabbed his own wand back over his shoulder and yelled, Impedimenta! And Malfoy's blasted off his back. As Harry scrambled up and looked around, he saw Malfoy smash into the dais on which Sirius and Bellatrix were now dueling. Malfoy aimed his wand at Harry and Neville again, but before he could draw breath to strike, Lupin had jumped between them. Harry, round up the others and go! Harry seized Neville by the shoulder of his robes and lifted him bodily onto the first tier of stone steps. Neville's legs twitched and jerked and would not support his weight. Harry heaved again with all the strength he possessed, and they climbed another step. A spell hit the stone bench at Harry's heel. It crumbled away, and he fell back to the step below. Neville sank to the ground, his legs still jerking and thrashing. He thrust the prophecy into his pocket. Come on, said Harry desperately, hauling at Neville's robes. Just try and push with your legs. He gave another stupendous heave, and Neville's robes tore along the left seam, and the small spun glass ball dropped from his pocket, and before either of them could catch it, one of Neville's floundering legs and feet kicked it. It flew some ten feet into the right into the right and smashed onto the step beneath them. As both of them stared at the place where it had broken, appalled at what had happened, a pearly white figure with hugely magnified eyes rose into the air unnoticed by any but them. Harry could see its mouth moving, but in all the crashes and screams and yells surrounding them, not one word of the prophecy could he hear. The figure stopped speaking and dissolved into nothingness. Harry, I'm sorry, cried Neville, his face anguished as his legs continued to flounder. I'm so sorry, Harry, I didn't mean to. It doesn't matter, shouted Harry. Just try and stand. Let's get out of... Dumbledore, said Harry, uh, said Neville, his face sweaty, suddenly transported, staring over Harry's shoulder. What? Dumbledore! Harry turned around to look where Neville was staring. Directly above them, framed in the doorway from the brain room, stood Albus Dumbledore, his wand aloft, his face white and furious. Harry felt a kind of electric charge surge through every particle of his body. They were saved. Dumbledore sped down the steps past Neville, and Harry, who had no more thought of leaving. Dumbledore was already at the foot of the steps when the Death Eaters nearest realized he was there. There were yells. One of the Death Eaters ran for it, scrambling like a monkey up the stone steps opposite. But Dumbledore's spell pulled him back easily and effortlessly as though he hooked him with an invisible line. Only one couple was still battling, apparently unaware of the new arrival. Harry saw Sirius duck Bellatrix's jet of red light. He was laughing at her. Come on, you can do better than that, he yelled, his voice echoing around the cavernous room. The second jet of light hit him squarely on the chest. The laughter had not quite died from his face, but his eyes widened in shock. Harry released Neville, though he was unaware of doing so. He was jumping down the steps again, pulling out his wand, as Dumbledore turned to the dais too. It seemed to take Sirius an age to fall. His body curved in a graceful arc as he sank backward through the ragged veal hanging from the arch. And Harry saw the look of mingled fear and surprise on his godfather's wasted, once handsome face, as though he fell through an ancient doorway and disappeared behind the veil, which fluttered for a moment as though in a high wind and fell back into place. Harry heard Bella Tricks Lestrange's triumphant scream, but knew it meant nothing. Sirius had only just fallen through the archway. He would reappear on the other side at any second. But Sirius did not reappear. 
Sirius! Harry yelled. Sirius! He had reached the floor, his breath coming in searing gasps. Sirius must be just beyond the curtain. He, Harry, would pull him back out again. But as he reached the ground and sprinted towards the dais, Lupin grabbed Harry around the chest, holding him back. There's nothing you can do, Harry. Get him! Save him! He's only just gone through! It's too late, Harry. We can still reach him! Harry struggled hard and viciously, but Lupin would not let go. There's nothing you can do, Harry. Nothing. He's gone. He hasn't gone, Harry yelled. He did not believe it. He would not believe it. Still, he fought Lupin with every bit of strength he had. Lupin did not understand. People hid behind that curtain. He had heard them whispering the first time he entered the room. Sirius was hiding, simply lurking out of sight. Sirius, he bellowed. Sirius! He can't come back, Harry, said Lupin, his voice breaking as he struggled to contain Harry. He can't come back because he's to He is not dead, roared Harry. Sirius! There was a movement going on around them, pointless bustling, the flashing of more spells. To Harry, it was meaningless noise. The deflected curses flying past them did not matter. Nothing mattered except that Lupin stopped pretending that Sirius, who was standing feet from them behind the little curtain, was not going to emerge at any moment, shaking back his dark hair, eager to re-enter the battle. Lupin dragged Harry away from the dais. Harry was still staring at the archway, angry at Sirius now for keeping him waiting. But some part of him realized, even as he fought to bake free from Lupin, that Sirius had never kept him waiting before. Sirius had risked everything, always, to see Harry, to help him. If Sirius was not reappearing out of that archway when Harry was yelling for him as though his life depended on it, the only possible explanation was that he could not come back, that he really was. Dumbledore had most of the remaining Death Eaters grouped up in the middle of the room, seemingly immobilized by invisible ropes. Mad-Eye Moody had crawled across the room to where Tonks lay and was attempting to revive her. Behind the dais, there were still flashes of light and grunts and cries. Kingsley had run forward to continue Sirius's duel with Bellatrix. Harry? Neville had slid onto the stone benches, one by one, to the place where Harry stood. Harry was no longer struggling against Lupin, who had maintained a precautionary grip on his arm nonetheless. Harry, I'm really sorry, said Neville. His legs were still dancing uncontrollably. Was that man, Sirius Black, a, a friend of yours? Harry nodded. Here said Lupin quietly, pointing his wand at Neville's legs. Finite. The spell was lifted. Neville's legs fell black onto the floor and remained still. Lupin's face was pale. Let's, let's find the others. Where are they all, Neville? Lupin turned away from the archway as he spoke. It sounded as though every word was causing him pain. Dare all back dare, said Neville. A brain attacked Ron, but I think he's all right, and Herbindy is unconscious by a feel of bolts. There was a loud bang and a yell from behind the dais. Harry saw Kingsley yelling in pain hit the ground. Bellatrix Lestrange turned tail and ran as Dumbledore whipped around. He aimed a spell at her, but she deflected it, and she was halfway up the steps now. Harry! No! cried Lupin, but Harry had already ripped his arm free from Lupin's slackened grip. She killed Sirius, bellowed Harry. She killed him! I'll kill her! And he was off, scrambling up the stone benches. People were shouting behind him, but he did not care. The hem of Bellatrix's robes whipped out of sight, and they were back in the room where the brains were swimming. She aimed the curse over her shoulder. The tank rose in the air and tipped. Harry was deluged from the foul-smelling potion within. The brains slipped and slid over him and began spinning their long, colored tentacles. But he shouted, Guardian Leviosa! And they flew into the air away from him. Slipping and sliding, he ran towards the door. He leapt over Luna, who was groaning on the floor past Ginny, who said, Harry, what? Past Ron, who giggled feebly, and Hermione was still unconscious. 
He wrenched open the door into the black circle hall and saw Bellatrix disappearing through the door on the left side of the room. Beyond her was the corridor heading back into the lifts. Harry ran, but she had slammed the door behind him and the walls began to rotate again. Once more, he was surrounded by streaks of blue light from the whirling candle bra. Where's the exit? He shouted desperately as the wall rumbled to a halt. Where's the way out? And the room seemed to be waiting for him to ask. The door right behind him flew open and the corridor towards the lift stretched ahead of him, torchlit and empty. He ran. He could hear a lift clattering ahead of him. He sprinted up the passageway, swung around the corner, and slammed his fist onto the button to call a second lift. It jangled and bangled lower and lower, and grills slid open, and Harry dashed inside, now hammering the button marked Atrium. The door slid shut, and he was rising. He forced his way out of the lift before the grills were fully open and looked around. Bellatrix was almost at the telephone lift at the other end of the hall, but she looked back as he sprinted towards her and aimed another spell at him. He dodged beyond the fountain of magical brethren. The spell zoomed past him and hit the wrought gold gates at the other end of the atrium so that they rang like bells. There were no more footsteps. She had stopped running. He crouched beyond the statues, listening. Come out, come out, little Harry, she called in her mock baby voice, echo like, well, echoed off the polished wooden floors. What did you come after me for, then? I thought you were here to avenge my dear cousin. I am, shouted Harry, and a score of ghostly Harrys seemed to chorus, I am, I am, I am, all around the room. Aw, did you love him, little baby Potter? Hatred rose in Harry, such as he had never known before. He flung himself from behind the fountain and bellowed, Crucio! Bellatrix screamed. The spell had knocked her off her feet, but she did not writhe and shriek with pain as Neville had. She was already on her feet again, breathless, no longer laughing. Harry dodged beyond the golden fountain once again. Her counterspell hit the head of the handsome wizard, which was blown off and landed 20 feet away, gouging long scratches into the wooden floor. Never used an unforgivable curse before, have you, boy? She yelled. She had now abandoned her baby voice. You need to mean them, Potter. You need to really want to cause pain, to enjoy it. Righteous anger won't hurt me for long. I'll show you how it's done, shall I? I shall give you a lesson. Harry had been edging around the fountain on the other side. She screamed, Crucio! And he was forced to duck again as a centaur's arm, holding its bow, spun off and landed with a crash on the floor a short distance from the golden wizard's head. Potter, you cannot win against me, she cried. He could hear her moving slightly to the right, trying to get a clear shot of him. He backed around the statue away from her, crouching behind the centaur's legs, his head level with the house elves. I was, and am, the Dark Lord's most loyal servant. I learned the dark arts from him. I know spells of such power that you, pathetic little boy, can never hope to compete. Stupefy, yelled Harry. He had edged to the right around where the goblin stood, beaming up at now the headless wizard, and had taken an aim at her as she had peered from around the fountain for him. She reacted so fast, he barely had time to duck. Protego! And the jet of red light, his own stunning spell, bounced back at him. Harry scrambled back behind the fountain, and one of the goblin's ears went flying across the room. Potter, I'm going to give you one chance, shouted Bellatrix. Give me the prophecy, roll it out towards me now, and I may spare your life. Well... You're going to have to kill me because it's gone, Harry roared. And as he shouted it, pain seared across his forehead. His scar was on fire again, and he felt a surge of fury that was quite unconnected with his own rage. And he knows, said Harry with a mad laugh to match Bellatrix's own. Your dear old mate Voldemort knows it's gone. He's not going to be very happy with you, is he? What? What do you mean, she cried. And for the first time, there was fear in her voice. The prophecy smashed when I was getting Neville up the steps. 
What do you think Voldemort will say about that then? His scar seared and burned. The pain of it was making his eyes stream. Liar! She shrieked. But he could hear the terror behind the anger now. You've got it, Potter, and you will give it to me. Accio prophecy! Accio prophecy! Harry laughed again because he knew it would incense her. The pain building his head so badly he thought his skull might burst. He waved his empty hand from behind the one-eared goblin and withdrew it quickly as she sent another jet of green light flying at him. Nothing there, he shouted. Nothing to summon. It smashed and nobody heard what it said. Tell your boss that... No! She screamed. It isn't true. You're lying. Master, I tried. I tried. Do not punish me. Don't waste your breath, yelled Harry. His eyes screwed up against the pain in his scar, now more terrible than ever. He can't hear you from here. Can't I, Potter? Said a cold, high voice. And so that's where I'm going to stop and let Chase take up from there. A couple things to discuss about this chapter, right? One of the biggest things I noticed, and usually it's Chase is the guy who usually goes, uh, we're not going to bring up differences, but I'll give you a small difference here. <laughs> now it's my turn to give one of these differences because I feel like I just won't do it with the same you know, fervor mm-hmm. as I do it next week when we talk about the differences. But the biggest issue I had is that in the movie, when the Order of the Phoenix arrived in that room, in the movie it made it look like the Order of the Phoenix were saving the day, that they were knocking the Death Eaters out left and right. But as you guys can see, the Order got their ass kicked. Like, Moody was on the ground, like, laying on his side while his eye rolled away from him. Tonks was unconscious on the steps. Like, it said, like, uh, you know, obviously Sirius got hit with that blast of the archway. Like, he got defeated. Kingsley got defeated by Bellatrix right before she ran out the way. So, like, the Order got their asses handed to them by the Death Eaters. Specifically, two yeah. Death Eaters uh, were really strong. Antonin Dolohov and Bellatrix Lestrange were, like, the two biggest Death Eaters in terms of their ability uh, taking on the Order. So... That frustrated me how they made it seem like the day was saved and like they were just whooping their ass and that's not what happened at all. Like the order was losing. If Dumbledore didn't show up, it would have been bad for everybody. Like on top of that, now we're gonna get into like the big deep stuff, right? Sirius Black, one of my favorite characters in this series, is now dead. And it it's one of those things, he almost to your point, when we talk about we did that episode last year of who gave you the order? He kind of pulled. He kind of pulled an Oberyn Martell, where he got too cocky. He was so overconfident that he was just a better duelist than Bellatrix that he let his guard down. He said he opened his arm and laughed and said, "You can do better than that." And as he did that, he got hit with the second jet of light, and that pushed him through the the dais. So his own, you know, arrogance kind of caught up with him in that moment. Like I don't want to say like because I don't want to say arrogant like he's a bad guy. It's just he didn't take her seriously. He was so convinced that he was a supreme duelist because remember, in school, James Potter and Sirius Black were like the two most talented wizards. So like they are just they are so confident in themselves that they don't think that they can be beat. Well, we just saw what happened when you don't pay attention and when you take your eye off the ball. Kind of very similar to what happened to Oberyn Martell in Game of Thrones with the mountain. He was whooping the mountain's ass, and then the mountain, you know, ended up when he wasn't paying attention, got a hold of him. So it's very sad. This guy's story kind of comes to an end here, especially since how Harry, who's had like no parental figures in his whole life, they've all passed away, his mom, his dad, and now his godfather. And so it's, it's tough to hear. Another thing too, it kind of, it makes me question stuff. And maybe I should say it was for not plot holes, but things I've got questions on. It's like, you heard Malfoy shout when they were chasing 
the teenagers, right? So everyone there is 15 except Ginny and Luna who are 14. So it's 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds against grown Death Eaters. And Malfoy even said, kill the others if necessary. They had a harder time dealing with these teenagers than they did with the full-grown Order of the Phoenix. Yeah. How does that make sense? Like, they could, like, literally Harry and Neville and Hermione, like, they were cursing them, stunning them, Petrificus totalizing them. Like, they were knocking, like, they were, they were handling the Death Eaters better than the Order of the Phoenix were. How does that make sense? Like, yeah, <laughs> like, I got a lot to say about this. <laughs> like, 14 and 15-year-olds doing a better job of fighting the Death Eaters than, like, the qualified wizards. Like, for example, Kingsley Shacklebolt is a full-fledged or and one of the best ones. Like, and they're, like, they're getting more trouble from the kids than the actual Order of the Phoenix. So, that's a problem I have there. Another problem I have, again, maybe I should say for plot holes, but it does happen, and it's something I want to discuss. I know what is, you're going to say, because I was thinking the same thing, too. Bring it up about, now. Cause it's, about it's, Ron? About Ron? Oh, no, I was thinking of something else. I don't I'm going to talk about Ron thing. here. Ron getting attacked by this brain that's supposed to wrap him in, like, think about it. In that room, what happened? They blasted Ginny in the face while she, with that stupefied thing, so she was unconscious. Hermione was already unconscious from that, that slashing spell that Dolohov hit her with, so she's unconscious. Luna got smashed from the door, so she's, un- like, unable to do anything. Neville ended up leaving that room. So how did Ron, Ron like, in that weird drunken way that they kind of described him as, how did he fight off that brain? How did he just deal with that? Like, <laughs> it was it, said it was constricting him around his chest, and Ginny's like, it's going to strangle him. No one stayed and helped him. Neville chased Harry to kind of give Harry help, but Ginny was unconscious, Luna was unconscious, and Hermione was unconscious. So who helped Ron get that brain off of him? I, like, you yeah. know what I mean? And, like, you know it was none of the order because, like, they were asking Harry, where are the others? So they didn't know where they were. So it couldn't have been any of the order. Like. Oh, I got a lot to say about this shit. Dude, I for sure. I just don't to interrupt you. No, no. <laughs> go take take your thing now because I just took a whole bunch. So, no. You go for it and then we'll keep talking about this episode or this chapter until it gets time to take it over from there. But, yeah. Talk yeah. about what you, what you had, your thoughts and feelings on this. And I want to spend a few minutes on this because this is, like, a big part. First of all. For sure. You know, raise my wand into there for your boy. I mean, he's not in my top, but damn, he is one of the favorites, man. So shout out to him. Uh, just like when Alan Rickman died, this is almost like the same thing in this book, man. Um, but starting off here, right. Okay, so it is funny, just like you're saying. So uh, we always talk about this on the show. Like somehow, like everything always lines up for a reason. The way we did shit for some reason. Literally a year to this day was when our season four episode of Game of Thrones, the battle between Oberyn, Oberyn motherfucking Martell, and the <laughs> mountain went down with that shit. And Oberyn's always in my fucking top five. So it's so funny how like. Both of our boys have gone down the same damn way. Like, to a probably... I've even argued, which, like, I've argued before, like, Sirius is one of the best. Um, I mean, of course, I agree with you 100%. I don't think he could take on Voldemort or anything. But I think he definitely is one of the top in that order. But it is funny to see this, how... I got to give my girl Hermione some credit here, and you're probably not even thinking about her, but you realize all through this series, she, we think it's just annoyance, because it is, she definitely has those tendencies, don't get me wrong, she definitely can be like that in a pest sometimes, uh, just because she is, 
she does try to be little miss prefect of course <laughs> no pun intended um but she said all along you know how serious she's brought up the fact like how serious always like kind of takes those risks like he thinks of being risky and you know not necessarily that is arrogant but the fact of like he doesn't think about things he should he should have opened up to the fact to realize yes he can handle his own but everyone else around him is 17 and 15 getting their ass kicked like maybe you should handle your shit right now and take it seriously so you can go help somebody but because he's he doesn't think of stuff like that going all the way back into you know uh you know prongs and um and my boy mooney over here going back all the way into their day which i you know we're not gonna bring up differences too much but it's funny you mentioned one because i'll let you have this there's a big moment in the movie that i thought they did well that kind of shows a moment of him kind of reminiscing if you know what i'm talking about and i'm gonna let you bring that up uh next episode despite all the problems i have with it anyways (laughs) But my point is, it's funny how this is such a big full circle moment because everyone kind of overlooked those little instances of where Hermione, because she is, don't get me wrong, and she's one of my favorites, she's my girl, so I got to stick up for her. I agree. Like, they do overblow her character a lot, and she is kind of Little Miss Prefect. But at well, the in the time, I would say in the movie they overblow it. In the book they do a good job. I don't have a problem with how they portray her character in the book. It's the movie right. that really pisses me off with how they portray her. But yeah, go go ahead. Go ahead. That's all I wanted to say. Gotcha. I wanted, no, I, wanted, no, I wanted to preface that. Like I don't I don't think they do a bad <laughs> job with her character in the book. It's just what they make her do in the movie. It just very frustrates me because it's just she doesn't do them. But yeah. anyways, no, yeah, go 100%. ahead. Um, <laughs> they actually overblow her character a lot, and even this next in this movie, <laughs> which we'll talk about in next episode, but. Uh, go into the books you know she has warned this even goes into a big part of this book where harry needs to get off his high horse ass where he feels sorry for himself all the time through this book like i get it you're going through some bad shit like no one can probably relate to you at all with the shit you've been through but that like just because you're going through bad shit doesn't mean you need to act like a child consistently through the whole 800 damn pages like consistently like you think you would have learned by fucking page 799 but he still doesn't and we're even going to talk about that the chapter after the one i take and you're going to bring up that like he still can't mature enough and it goes to the point of like if he i think harry is the only one that could have probably connected with sirius on a level and said and he tried to a couple times you know you're taking a risk coming out here he said it at the beginning of the book But I think if he really talked to Sirius and connected on a level, I don't think it would have stopped Sirius, but I think it would have probably taken Sirius's mind to roll where, yes, he would have definitely come to rescue Harry, no doubt in my mind, 100%. But you probably would have taken that fight a little bit more seriously, (laughs) no pun intended, and thought about (laughs) everything, thought about the other people he's there with that are getting their ass kicked that aren't as good as him. You're there with 15 and 16-year-olds. Like, stop trying to hang out with your 14 grand. and 15. No, no one's Four- 16. 14 and 15. Oh, there you go. It gives my Younger. point even more, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, like, stop trying to hang out with your godson and actually start trying to protect him and be the father figure. Just like, you know, 
my dad used to say this when I would get in trouble as a kid because I would act up just because I get bored and I was kind of one of those like act up in class kind of kids when I was in fourth grade and my dad would be like I'm your dad I'm not your friend yeah <laughs> so, my dad would say but, the same thing man 100% yeah so that's it's just one it's wild all these full circle moments like how it's funny you know two of our favorite guys over in motherfucking Martell serious fucking black both of them could have changed the outcome of both of these situations. People don't realize that. If Sirius had actually taken that serious, no pun intended, I'll stop trying to say that. Take a shot for that because that was fucking ridiculous. Ridiculous. <laughs> Anyways, but he could have, I don't think he would have been enough to take over all those Death Eaters, but he could have been enough to hold them off while Dumbledore was there. Agreed. I think so. If he had just like actually played the game right and stopped screwing around, but he got between taken him by and, surprise. Yeah, between him and Lupin, I think they could have held off the majority of them. Um, you know, because and Kingsley, Kingsley was actually really talented too. But like Tonks got knocked unconscious pretty quickly. So at Moody, Moody's old as heck, man. Moody's on his last legs as it was. So like, yeah, I do agree. Like between the three of them, talking about Lupin, Kingsley, and Sirius, they're all very talented duelists, and I think they would have been able to hold off until Dumbledore got there. Um, but yeah. Here's the thing, too, though. I mean, about that, I don't necessarily think that, you know, I don't think anything would have changed. I think that's just straight up Sirius's personality, regardless if, you know, Harry, the theory point said, you know, he talked to him and he was really kind of conveyed how urgent it was, like, you know, for Sirius to take precautions on everything that he did. And, you know, I just. I just truly think that that's Sirius's personality. He's a carefree guy. He broke out of Azkaban. He he followed Harry to like the train station. He doesn't care. Like he's reckless with his life. That's what he did. That's just who he is as a guy. I don't think that would have changed anything. The one thing I do want to say, it kind of pulls a, like a full circle though, is Harry's the one that kind of really done fucked up. Because remember back in Christmas when he, and Sirius gave him that gift, that that uh, double sided. Well, we don't know what it is yet. So sorry if I ruined that for anybody. But <laughs> anyways, she gives him that gift. And I uh, said, like, here, use this if Snape ever gives you a hard time, and I'll, I'll be there. And Harry's like, he didn't even open the gift. He didn't know what it was. He said, he whatever it was, he would never use it, because it would not be he, Harry, who had led Sirius from his place of comfort to his death. And that's exactly what Harry did. Because, yeah. like, Harry, like, if Harry didn't go running out there to the Department of Mysteries, Sirius would have no reason to leave Grimald Place. Like, Which literally, means- like, gets crazy. <laughs> I'm yeah which actually just feeding off what you said this gives my girl even more credit because who is the one that said the whole time like let's think of logically but Harry doesn't want to think of shit logically because he's been acting like a child this whole damn book this is the difference between him in this book and him last book it's like you're supposed to grow as you get older, but he took a step back. Uh, I mean, it's it's back. teenage angst. You get, I'm not going to give him too much of a hard time. He's 15 years old. A teenage angst, you know, you're, you're going to become conflicted yeah. with all these emotions. You're trying to grow up into being an adult. You're getting interested in, like, girls. And, like, you know, you know like, like everything's, and, like, never, no one's believing you. Everyone's called you a liar for the past six months. Like, you know, like, I, I get it. Like, it is, you already feel alone as it is because you're an orphan. You live with muggle parents. You don't really fit in regardless, like. Like I don't, I don't really give him that much of a hard time. Like you're way more harder on him about you know his emotional stability. But I don't expect him to be. He's 15. Like I don't know. It's just one of those things that it, it's a growing pain. And he learned. He learned his level. We're gonna find out if he learns his lesson from here on. And then you know going into the next few books, two books. But yeah, 
that's what I just wanted to touch on that. I don't I don't really think he's just overly emotionally just ridiculous as a as a child and he shouldn't have been doing these things. It's like what do you expect, man? Like <laughs> he's a kid. Yeah. <laughs> like, he, he he is a kid. Um, last thing I'll touch on is it's funny. Uh, so we actually talked about in our interesting facts episode this week that came out Wednesday. Uh, some of the darkest wizards and witches of all time. And um, this was a Bellatrix because we were talking about the three escaped prisoners from Azkaban. We didn't go too much into it, but a lot of people argue Bellatrix is one of the most powerful dark witches of all time. And um, it just is wild to me. Like you can't say Sirius doesn't know this. He's she's literally on his family tapestry. Like it's it's just a wild. I get it. Like he can handle his own, but at the same time, like you don't think Bellatrix would be able to slip something in there at some point. She's not a pushover. Like she's not a pushover. You know um, what's really funny though? Like like not to cut you off and not to mm-hmm. ruin anything for the towards the end of this series, but like it's funny that you say that and then when we realize what happens to have her story come to an end, time about Bellatrix's. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's so, that's really, like, it's really ironic. I'll say that. But yeah. like, so like, it's almost, it almost like it came full circle, you know, the same kind of thing that happened. So I'm not, I won't give anything away, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, so like, 100%, yeah, 100%. So it's just funny. Like, like, yeah, she's like one of the most powerful darkest wizards, but then like what happens to her at the end yeah. is just, it's Which, ironic. What does happen to her I don't want to give anything away, but the opposing forces, I'll say, <laughs> if you get my drift, I think sometimes are overlooked. Yeah, maybe. I would say. But Could at be. the same time, like, no, I. It, what's funny, um, you know, we talked about our interesting facts Wednesday, and that's why that was like, you know, it was that crazy interesting facts episode that was three hours and 30 minutes long because, you know, our diehard fans made it through our five-hour and 40-minute episodes. There was so much we had to squeeze in there. But it even tied into, you know, we were talking about the darkest wizards and witches of all time. And this was a big debate that a lot of people were bringing up on Reddit blogs and stuff. And uh, Bellatrix Lestrange, she was literally up there with who they call, uh, you know, we're not going to give anything away about him, but you've heard from Fantastic Beast Gellert Grindelwald. We won't give anything about him. You know, there's more to come on him way down the road. But even, you know, Voldemort, and then it had Bellatrix and a a few others. And I mean, I I would argue Bellatrix is more powerful than Lucius. I know Lucius kind of proved... Oh, for sure. No, Lucius is a pushover, man. Lucius stinks at dueling. Like, he's so bad. He's so bad. Like, Bellatrix just proved in that conversation... She's learned incantations directly from the Dark Lord himself. Like, she was not a pushover. And, you know, think of the outcome, though. If, if Sirius had taken it, had taken it correctly, <laughs> no shots here. Not yet. Wait till the next episode. Um, and he had beat Bellatrix Lestrange. There is even a chance the whole difference... It might have even changed the whole momentum of the war and in what's coming later. Like, it makes you wonder. Like, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, it, it's... I get it. Like, I would probably say, you know, it's funny. We talked about Nagini, too. Um, and, like, her previous history before, like, up to this point and some of her secrets. I would say Nagini is closest to Voldemort based on their history. But 
it the really snake? makes you wonder. Uh, sorry, after you. No, I was saying this, the snake, Nagini the snake. Yeah, snake, yeah. Nagini. Yeah. So a lot of yeah. people don't know, Nagini, uh, her history is, we talked about an interesting fact, she's a maledictus. So there's a lot more into her being a snake than just a snake. <laughs> Voldemort found in the grass somewhere. <laughs> Hoff, hats off to my grass Patronus. <laughs> grass <laughs> yeah. But um, my uh, point, I'll sum this up real quick, is it's just, you know, if Sirius had beat Bellatrix, it really makes you wonder, and with Dumbledore there, and if they had just taken them all out and held them at bay and everything, they got away Scott clean. Which, like, getting your ass handed to you and getting away Scott clean, like, it's like, it's almost like that Patriot, and I fucking hate the Patriots, but that Tom Brady team, man, that comes back out of nowhere and just beats you. 2017, my Falcons. But it's like, it changes the whole momentum for your squad. So it makes you wonder if that would have changed the momentum if Sirius was able to overcome something in himself. And change it, but I have to agree with you 100%. I think, unfortunately, just like Oberyn motherfucking Martell, man, I think it's just, I think these two most powerful heroes, um, I think we're destined for this fate, unfortunately. Yep. I agreed 100%. A couple yeah. more things I want to touch on before I let you take over and, and, and read there is just um, <laughs> when they talk about them being outnumbered two to one. I actually did the math and it did add up. So that's the good news. So these are the ones that are listed. So they, they had what? They had uh, Harry, Hermione, mm-hmm. Ron, Neville, Ginny, Luna. That's six, right? Gotcha. So now these are the Death Eaters that were mentioned. So Not was mentioned, Malfoy himself, then Jugson, Bellatrix, Rodolphus, Crab, Rabastin, Dolohov, McNair. Avery, Rookwood, and Mulkyber. That's 12. So 12 to 6 is 2 to 1. So the math added up for once. Yeah. I'm very happy about that. <laughs> that that sounded that, that was good. Um, I guess these are things maybe I do I leave for plot holes? I don't even know if I leave them for plot holes. But like, remember when uh, they sealed the door Colopartus? And in the beginning, it was when Hermione sealed it. And then the Death Eater said, stand back and shout Alohomora and open the door. Even after she hit it with the Colopartus charm. Mm-hmm. But then later in the same series, they were running frantically through the room, Harry, Luna, and Neville trying to seal them, and it said the Death Eaters just charging against the door. Why didn't they just use Alohomora and open the damn door? They had already done it a couple pages ago. Now all of a sudden you yeah. can't do that. Now now it's like, oh, I got to get there before they close it. Like now that, like what? That just didn't make sense. So I guess that's more of a plot hole. I guess I can save that for then, so I won't touch on that too much. Then the last thing I want to talk about is just Neville's dad's wand. Instead of like broken, he just kicked it to the side. Man, you're telling me you wouldn't pick that up and put it in your pocket and try to make your way out of there? That's your dad's wand. Come on, man. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Those are just oh, yeah. those are some things I just I noticed there. But anyways, I don't know if you have anything else you want to say before you jump into it or what. But yeah, that's I what I hold it in. I, I got to say it. We were talking about Bellatrix Lestrange, so it keeps making me think of it. Helena Bonham Carter. Just throwing this out there. We'll talk about this next episode. But she goes, Neville Longbottom, is it? How's mom and dad? <laughs> in the film is my favorite line of the entire film uh shout out to helena bottom carter because i don't think they could have gotten a better bellatrix yeah they did a good job with her yeah cool yeah that's all i had to say about that man same so no that was a great great series like like little part of the series there it's heartbreaking 
our one of the main heroes, the one of the guys that's had a rough life as it is. Think about it. Like he went to like Azkaban for 13 years for a crime he didn't commit. Breaks out on the run, not able to really live life freely, even though he's innocent. He even spends all this book cooped up in a house. Like you know, he like, he just entered Harry's life in the third at the end of the third book, right? So he like and that's like the very tail end of the summertime, like like you know from let's say I don't know June until <laughs> until August of like uh, the third book, yeah. So the very tail end of that. And he was very in and out of Goblet of Fire. Like, he didn't even really get to see Harry that much. Like, he went to that one cave, and they went up to see him for the Triwizard Tournament during that time period. And at the end, when Harry came out of the graveyard in the books, you know, he was there with him in Dumbledore's office and all that. So, like, but even so, he doesn't even get a full two years with his godfather before Mm -hmm. his godfather dies. And his godfather was like, as we'll come to look at it here in the next, after this chapter that you're going to take in a second... After that, he even gets described that like Harry, you know, sees Sirius as a combination of father and brother, you know. So you're gonna yeah. lose that too. After on top of losing your parents, you're gonna lose that too. Like it just it's it's heartbreaking for Harry. Unfortunately, a lot of it was Harry's fault though because uh, he led Sirius away from that area. Like he, if Harry wasn't there, if Harry listened to Hermione and like listened to logic and reason and said, wait a second, like let's hold on, let's hold the phone, and let's see if like we can figure this out. He would never have run to his aid in the Department of Mysteries. He wouldn't have been cornered by Death Eaters, and Sirius would never have to go rushing to save him. So he ended up doing exactly what he said he wouldn't do. He said, I'm not going to be the one to lead Sirius from his safety to his death. It would not be he, Harry, who did that. Well, guess what, Harry? It was you that did that. So anyways, that's all I have to say about that part. Our guy's gone. Like you said, Wands up to Sirius. He he went through the, the stone archway in the veil. He's not coming back. Uh... You know, rest in peace. But I'll let you go ahead and take it from here, man. Yeah, man. Uh, last thing I'll say about the veil, like you notice, because um, that's uh, I don't want to say it's like one of my favorite parts, but it's I want to say like this is one of my um, the chapter coming up is my favorite chapter out of everything in the whole series. That's why I wanted to cover this one so bad. But <laughs> the part you're talking about, it's one of the most shocking moments for I think really any harry potter fan that has followed this truly with the books from the beginning um at the same time what i'll even say is we still had kind of that wonder like whether he would come back or not which you know he never did and the book described it you notice as like he was falling back in that curved kind of like arch when he fell back through um and not to bring up a whole lot of differences, but it was like, and I'm not going to bring up this main difference that we'll talk about next episode, but like when Sirius fell back in like the film, it's just kind of like he just like, <laughs> I don't know, just like arched his back. Leaned and like back into it. Yeah. <laughs> glided through or something. But yeah. when I pictured this, it was one of the most shocking moments because everyone still remembers in their head. I almost pictured it like he was like, you know when you see like those cliffs almost where they just like fall into the abyss like you just keep falling it was almost like something like that but going through like the holy of holies <laughs> like jerusalem with like the veil there so it's just a it, i it one reason i love this book is it almost had like some sort of like creepy halloween vibe to it 
with everything in this whole chapter with like the voices and the prophecy and then falling through the veil and the chambers um it was just immensely creative like just to come up with that uh for the climax of this book is absolutely phenomenal so um and with that anything else you wanted to say on that before i nah, man get right to page 812 and take it away for the moment you've been waiting for since we started this series brother I know Malice you've been wanting to chalice, do this. Man. Yeah, let's do it. Cheers. I know you've been waiting for this for a minute, bro. So let's go ahead Malice and cheers that in there. chalice, brother. Definitely. You, you got that hey, there halfway the... through page 812? Yeah, cool. I'm right there. Cool. So, and uh, one thing I'll say here is the reason I love this chapter is, boy, you've seen just a tiny little bit of glimpses of Dumbledore isn't always the most laid back guy he's still very calm but where we've seen glimpses in goblet of fire and we've seen maybe glimpses a little bit of glimpses uh when he left hogwarts um and he told harry you know don't stop studying clemency when he put everything on the spell it's described just like you said in that quote he's electrifying to this point like literally everyone can feel the power that's in this room like it almost reminded me of like how anakin skywalker his damn metachlorian count was like off the rockets like you no know, man... it's kind of funny dude this is almost kind of like the battle of heroes in a way even though it's voldemort is never a hero but like it's very <laughs> similar to that anakin and obi-wan like thing a little bit it's kind of funny. it is it is and uh <laughs> it's just something to be said uh just like how we were saying though you know they were getting their ass kicked and the man walks into this room, and all of a sudden, the tide. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. does like a little swish of his wand, and like he, they, they just like they're like all hooked into the center. Like he doesn't have to try; he does one little thing, and they're all like, "Whoop! Oh, okay, we can't move. We're done." Like <laughs> cowards. You're talking about these Death Eaters that were literally bullying these teenagers, and they just scurry. Like it reminded me, you know, here's a little Easter egg for you guys. Lord of the Rings when the Belrog shows up in the Fellowship and they just scatter. That's what it reminded He was even like, get your ass back here. Yep. No, no, you haven't confessed. <laughs> Let's do it, man. Let's get on into it. Anything else? No, that's go? it, dude. Let's, Let's go for it. it. Get into it. It's go time. Harry opened his eyes. Tall, thin, and black hooded, his terrible snake-like face, white and gaunt, his scarlet, slit-pupiled eyes staring. Lord Voldemort had appeared in the middle of the hall, his wand pointing at Harry, who stood frozen, quite unable to move. So you smashed my prophecy, said Voldemort softly, staring at Harry with those pitiless red eyes. No, Bella, he is not lying. I see the truth looking at me from within his worthless mind. Months of preparation, months of effort, and my Death Eaters have let Harry Potter thwart me again. Master, I'm sorry, I, I knew not. I was fighting the Animagus Black, sobbed Bellatrix, flinging herself down at Voldemort's feet as he paced slowly nearer. Master, you should know. Be quiet, Bella, said Voldemort dangerously. I shall deal with you in a moment. Do you think I have entered the Ministry of Magic to hear your sniveling apologies? But, Master, 
He, he is here. He is below. Voldemort paid no attention. I have nothing more to say to you, Potter, he said quietly. You have irked me far too often for too long. Avada Kedavra! Harry had not even opened his mouth to resist. His mind was blank, his wand pointing uselessly at the floor. But the headless golden statue of the wizard in the fountain had sprung alive, leaping from its plinth, and landed on the floor with a crash between Harry and Voldemort. The spell merely glanced off its chest as the statue flung out its arms, protecting Harry. What? said Voldemort, staring around, and then he breathed. Dumbledore! Harry looked behind him, his heart pounding. Dumbledore was standing in front of the Golden Gates. Voldemort raised his wands and sent another jet of green light at Dumbledore, who turned and was gone in a whirling of his cloak. Next second, he had reappeared behind Voldemort and waved his wand toward the remnants of the fountain. The other statues sprang to life too. The statue of the witch ran at Bellatrix, who screamed and sent spells streaming uselessly off his chest. Before it dived at her, pinning her to the floor. Meanwhile, the goblin and the house elf scuttled toward the fireplaces, set along the wall, and the one-armed centaur galloped at Voldemort, who vanished and reappeared beside the pool. The headless statue thrust Harry backward, away from the fight as Dumbledore advanced on Voldemort, and the golden centaur cantered around them both. It was foolish to come here tonight, Tom, said Dumbledore calmly. The Aurors are on their way. By which time I shall be gone. And you shall be dead, spat Voldemort. He sent another killing curse at Dumbledore, but missed, instead hitting the security guard's desk, which burst into flame. Dumbledore flicked his own wand. The force of the spell that emanated from it was such that Harry, though shielded by his stone guard, felt his hair stand on end as it passed. And this time, Voldemort was forced to conjure a shining silver shield out of thin air to deflect it. The spell, whatever it was, caused no visible damage to the shield, though a deep gong-like note reverberated from it, an oddly chilling sound. "'You do not seek to kill me, Dumbledore,' called Voldemort, his scarlet eyes narrowed over the top of the shield. "'Above such brutality, are you?' We both know that there are other ways of destroying a man, Tom, Dumbledore said calmly, continuing to walk toward Voldemort as though he had not a fear in the world, as though nothing had happened to interrupt his stroll up the hall. Merely taking your life would not satisfy me, I admit. There is nothing worse than death, Dumbledore, snarled Voldemort. You are quite wrong said Dumbledore, still closing in upon Voldemort and speaking as lightly as though they were discussing the matter over drinks. Harry felt scarred to see him walking along, undefended, shieldless. He wanted to cry out a warning, but his headless guard kept shunting him backward toward the hall, blocking his every attempt to get out from behind it. Indeed, your failure to understand that there are things much worse than death has always been your greatest weakness. Another jet of green light flew from behind the silver shield. This time it was the one-armed centaur galloping in front of Dumbledore. 
That took the blast and shattered into a hundred pieces. But before the fragments had even hit the floor, Dumbledore had drawn back his wand and waved it as though brandishing a whip. A long, thin flame flew from the tip. It wrapped itself around Voldemort, shield and all. For a moment, it seemed Dumbledore had won. But then the fiery rope became a serpent, which relinquished its hold upon Voldemort at once and turned hissing furiously to face Dumbledore. Voldemort vanished. The snake reared from the floor, ready to strike. There was a burst of flame in midair above Dumbledore just as Voldemort reappeared, standing on the plinth in the middle of the pool where so recently the five statues had stood. Look out! Harry yelled, but even as he shouted, one more jet of green light had flown at Dumbledore from Voldemort's wand and the snake had struck. Fox swooped down in front of Dumbledore, opened his beak wide, and swallowed the jet of green light whole. He burst into flame and fell into the floor, small, wrinkled, and flightless. At the same moment, Dumbledore brandished his wand in one long, fluid movement. The snake, which had been an instant from sinking its fangs into him, flew high into the air and vanished in a wisp of dark smoke. The water in the pool rose up and covered Voldemort like a cocoon of molten glass. For a few seconds, Voldemort was visibly... Voldemort was visible only as dark, rippling, faceless figure, shimmering and indistinct upon the plinth, clearly struggling to throw off the suffocating mass. Then he was gone, and the water fell with a crash into the pool, slopping wildly over the sides, drenching the polished floor. Master! screamed Bellatrix. Sure it was over. Sure Voldemort had decided to flee. Harry made to run out from behind his statue guard, but Dumbledore bellowed. Stay where you are, Harry! For the first time, Dumbledore sounded frightened. Harry could not see why. The hall was quite empty, but for themselves. The sobbing Bellatrix still trapped under her statue, and the tiny baby fox croaked feebly on the floor. And then Harry's scar burst open. He knew he was dead. It was pain beyond imagining, pain past endurance. He was gone from the hall. He was locked in the coils of a creature with red eyes so tightly bound that Harry did not know where his body ended and the creatures began. They were fused together, bound by pain, and there was no escape. And when the creature spoke, it used Harry's mouth so that in his agony he felt his jaw move. Kill me now, Dumbledore. Blinded and dying, every part of him screaming for release, Harry felt the creature use him again. If death is nothing, Dumbledore, kill the boy. Let the pain stop, thought Harry. Let him kill us. End it, Dumbledore. Death is nothing compared to this. And I'll see Sirius again. And as Harry's heart filled with emotion, the creature's coils loosened. The pain was gone. Harry was lying face down on the floor, his glasses gone, shivering as though he lay upon ice, not wood. And there were voices echoing through the hall, more voices than there should have been. Harry's opened eyes saw his glasses lying at the heel of the headless statue that had been guarding him, but which now lay flat on its back, cracked and immobile. He put them on and raised his head an inch to find Dumbledore's crooked nose inches from his own. Are you all right, Harry? Yes, said Harry, shaking so violently he could not hold his head up properly. Yeah, I'm, 
Wh where's Voldemort? Where? Who are all these? What? The atrium was full of people. The floor was reflecting emerald green flames that had burst into life in all the fireplaces along one wall. A stream of witches and wizards was emerging from them. As Dumbledore pulled him back to his feet, Harry saw the tiny gold statues of the house elf and the goblin leading a stunned-looking Cornelius Fudge forward. He was there, shouted a scarlet-robbed man with a ponytail who was pointing at a pile of golden rubble on the other side of the hall where Bellatrix had lain trapped moments before. I saw him, Mr. Fudge, I swear. It was you-know-who. He grabbed a woman and disapparated. I know, Williamson. I know I saw him, too, gibbered Fudge, who was wearing pajamas under his pinstriped cloak and was, gra was gasping as though he had just run miles. Merlin's beard? Here, here. In the Ministry of Magic? Great heavens above. It doesn't seem possible. My word. How can this be? If you proceed downstairs into the Department of Mysteries, Cornelius, said Dumbledore, apparently satisfied that Harry was all right and walking forward so that the newcomers realized he was there for the first time. A few of them raised their wands, others simply looked amazed. The statues of the elf and the goblin applauded, and Fudge jumped so much that his slipper-clad feet left the floor. You will find several escaped Death Eaters contained in the Death Chamber, bound by an anti-disapparition jinx and awaiting your decision as to what to do with him. Dumbledore, gasped Fudge, apparently beside himself with amazement. You, here, I, I, he looked wildly around at the Aurors he had brought with him, and it could not have been clearer that he was in half a mind to cry. Seize him, Cornelius. I am ready to fight your men. And when again, said Dumbledore in a thunderous voice. But a few moments ago, you saw proof with your own eyes that I have been telling you the truth for a year. Lord Voldemort has returned, and you have been chasing the wrong men for twelve months, and it's time you listen to your sense. I don't well, well, blustered Fudge, looking around as though hoping somebody was going to tell him what to do. When nobody did, he said, Very well, Dollish, Williamson. Go down to the Department of Mysteries and see Dumbledore. You, you will need to tell me exactly the Fountain of Magical Brethren. What happened? He added in a kind of whimper, staring around at the floor where the remains of the statues of the witch, wizard, and the centaur now lay scattered. We can discuss this matter. We can discuss that after I have sent Harry back to Hogwarts," said Dumbledore. "Harry, Harry Potter." Fudge wheeled around and stared at Harry, who was still standing against the wall beside the fallen statue that had been guarded, guarding him during Dumbledore and Voldemort's duel. He here? said Fudge, goggling at Harry. Why? What's all this about? I shall explain everything, repeated Dumbledore, when Harry is back at school. He walked away from the pool to the place where the golden wizard's head lay on the floor. He pointed his wand at it as and muttered, Portis! The head glowed blue and trembled noisily against the wooden floor for a few seconds, then became still once more. "'Now see here, Dumbledore,' said Fudge, as Dumbledore picked up the head and walked back to Harry, carrying it. "'You haven't got the authorization for that poor key. 
You can't do things like that right in front of the Minister of Magic. You, you. His voice faltered as Dumbledore surveyed him magisterially over his half-moon spectacles. You will give the order to remove Dolores Umbridge from Hogwarts, said Dumbledore. You will tell your Aurorers to stop searching for my care of magical creatures teacher so that he can return to work. I will give you, Dumbledore pulled a watch with 12 hands from his pocket and surveyed it, half an hour of my time tonight, in which I think we shall be more than able to cover important points of what has happened here. After that, I shall need to return to my school. If you need more help from me, you are, of course, more than welcome to contact me at Hogwarts. Letters addressed to the headmaster will find me. Fudge goggled worse than ever. His mouth was open and his round face grew pinker under his rumpled gray hair. I, you... Dumbledore turned his back on him. Take this port key, Harry. He held out the golden head of the statue and Harry placed his hand upon it, past carrying what he had did next or where he went. I shall see you in a half an hour, said Dumbledore quietly. One. Two. Three. Harry felt the familiar sensation of the hook being jerked behind his navel. The polished wooden floor was gone from beneath his feet. The atrium, Fudge, and Dumbledore had all disappeared. He was flying forward in a whirlwind of color and sound. Pretty badass, man. And this is... Uh, what I'll say about this chapter is... And we won't talk about the movie because I wasn't impressed with that. But this chapter really shows... Dumbledore's power. There was no fear. He was walking towards Voldemort, the most powerful dark wizard that's argued of all time, shieldless, and Voldemort was having to conjure a shield. He made a fire whip out of his wand just to try to end the thing as soon as he could. And when Voldemort's trying to pull out like his special move here, he still conjures this whole thing of water. You know, because water beaks fire just to encave him in a, in a cocoon while he's trying to make sure Harry's not getting possessed. So on top of that, it literally shows all of Dumbledore's power. He was able to take on the darkest wizard of all time, shieldless, calm as ever, not having any trouble, electrifying power off of him while making sure Harry's ass doesn't get possessed and have it actually raise his voice finally that said, stay where you are. Like, you know, you like he's I know this wasn't really his intent to say this to Harry, but in my mind, it's almost like sitting here thinking, stop trying to get involved. Don't you think he knows what he's doing? You've caused enough problems already because you won't listen to anybody. Um, but it's this chapter is just. This is the first time, I'll say, and we, like I said, we've seen glimpses here and there, but we've been able to see what Dumbledore's capable of in this chapter. Uh, any Anything you want to uh, talk about, man? Oh, absolutely. So, <clears throat> and this is, a lot of it is just backing up things that you just said and the points that you made, because I'm going to take the direct quotes that you've already read, just a small snippet so people can really mm -hmm. understand, like, how calm Dumbledore, the only time Dumbledore was scared is when... Like he, Dumbledore, or Voldemort disappeared, and he was worried of like what would happen to Harry. He's like, "Stay where you are." Like he wasn't worried at all about the actual battle. He was right. like having the time of his life. He said he was like, 
Like, he was strolling up the hallway. Is like how he was fighting the darkest, <laughs> most powerful wizard of all time. <laughs> he was walking, so... Like, but he says, like, it was foolish to come here tonight. It said Dumbledore calmly. Like, literally, like, it was foolish for you to come here tonight, Tom. Like, like not, like, angrily, not brusquely, like, not, like, in a, you know, I'm going to take you on now. Like, no, just all calm. And then they said, Dumbledore flicked his own mom. Like, like a flick. Like, like didn't even like, do anything. It said the power that emanated it, like, made the hair on the back of Harry's neck stand up. Just, like, just a, just a quick, like, just a, just a quick flick. And so that was crazy. And then on top of that, he said... You know, he's like, we, uh, Dumbledore, he said, we both know there's other ways of destroying a man, Tom, said Dumbledore calmly, walking towards Voldemort as though he had not a fear in the world, as though nothing had happened, interrupted his stroll up the hall. Like, literally, like, these things, like, he's having no issues battling, and it says, like, Voldemort's, like, doing everything, trying to, like, you know, conjuring up shields, <laughs> making, like, and so, like, he sends a killing curse and a snake at him simultaneously, and, like, Dumbledore just is doing his own thing, like, so... It's just one of those things where you really get to see, you understand why Voldemort all this time has avoided a clash with Dumbledore in this in this quarter of fashion because he's kind of met his match, right? And then there's some things that I've got issues with in this mm-hmm. part as well. And most of it has to do, and I guess these could be considered plot holes, but like even at the beginning of this chapter when it was just Harry chasing Bellatrix and she sent a spell and it knocked the goblin's head off. Mm-hmm. Well, when uh, Voldemort sent the first killing curse... At him, uh, like that, that Harry when before he started facing Dumbledore, Voldemort sent that like you know you've worked me far too long, far too often, and said Nevada Cadaver went to kill him. It said like the statue jumped in front of him and it glanced off the, the statue's chest. Well, how did a like a killing curse sent yeah. by Lord Voldemort glance off the chest where Bellatrix sent like a regular like stupefied curse and then blew the goblin's it head shattered. off? Shattered. Like yeah. how are like how are some of the like the statues bl- glancing blows off of it and some of them being destroyed? Like I don't understand it. There's no consistency there. It's just something I noticed that bugged me. Um, I was thinking the same thing. Sorry, then, not to interrupt you. Just yeah. a, a quick thought on that. Like unless like Dumbledore like conjured like. Uh, <laughs> like a shield spell <laughs> or something like that that was over it just to preserve the <laughs> make sure everything was clean but like when... they they do say that the killing curse is unblockable though so like it yeah. shouldn't have done that anyways like even mm-hmm. with a thing over it soul should have destroyed that thing right yeah so just just like inconsistency there kind of bummy but in all the mm-hmm. battle was really really cool honestly like the kid in me wished it lasted longer and there was me more too. and there was a more decisive winner and more conclusive winner right mm-hmm. it kind of kind of ended up being like a duel to a draw in a way because you know voldemort escaped mm-hmm. and dumbledore didn't get him or bellatrix you know trapped or anything so it's like you know it's i wish it was a conc- like a conclusive winner but it was still cool to see two at the top of their game go at it like Head to head, man. That was pretty badass. So oh, was awesome. that's all I had to say on that. Uh, just a quick uh, another thought on that is you can even see kind of, you know, just like you said, like there's there was no sense of ever really even exerting any effort in this thing. Like Voldemort's given everything he's got it. I will say that I hated the battle in the film, but remember he was like, ha, 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 ha. He's like, ha, 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 when he, like, conjures the snake in the film. It kind of reminded me of this a little bit, like, when he conjures the shield, like, he's doing everything he can to stop, and, like, Voldemort's just, like, shooting this and that, like, and taking care of Harry at the same time. It shows, though, if you think about it, how much on an intellectual higher level Dumbledore is than all these other people because 
even going back to Sirius, and I granted this is just Sirius's personality, Dumbledore could have kept that fight going just to have fun with this motherfucker to prove a point. <laughs> like, think about it. Dumbledore could have just kept him going. Literally, Voldemort disappeared because he was getting... I argue, which this isn't proven, there's no facts in this, but I argue he was basically getting afraid. Like, he was probably getting to the point he couldn't keep up. Like, if Dumbledore actually tried, that fight would have been over. Like, that would have been done. Um, and, it, you know, he had to pull the bitch way out and, like, disappear to go try to possess Harry when he knows that's Dumbledore's weak point right now because this isn't a one-on-one -on -one battle right here. This is like me having to fight with some handicap on in Super Smash Brothers, where you got five lives and I was given half, half of one, and I was shot off in the distance, and I'm having to use the Link like sword move just to fly above to get back down where you were, and I've already been hit at 150 percent and one hit I'm dead. Like that's literally like what Dumbledore's playing with, not even trying. But it just goes to show even his intellectual ability on how people overlook him so often just because he's so calm collected always giving everyone you know the benefit of the doubt and sticking up for everyone because um, he is that good guy he he really is he's that true hero and um it it shows even his intellectual ability to put that out of his mind and focus on what he needs to do to save this boy. Do you know how easy it would have been for him to be like, and this would have ruined the story, so it wouldn't never happen, but sure, possess him. I don't care. I'll kill him myself. I'll kill you, and then we'll no one's ever gonna have any problems. Let's just get this shit over with. <laughs> well, <man. laughs> that wouldn't work because there's a lot more to Voldemort than a we lot learn about next book. Yeah, like you know, right. like next book we get to learn a little bit more about why, you know, killing Voldemort's body isn't enough. So like, you know, <laughs> There's, that's true I, <laughs> I agree with that and that we're not giving anything away uh, i'm just saying from a perspective of let's say you take all that out where no one knows any of that yet do you know how easy it would have been him been to like blast his ass to smithereens again whether he came i back don't think it would have been easy man because like we start to learn in this chapter like i disagree on that part um we, we learned in this chapter kind of like the toll that battle takes on dumbledore even though like he was common the whole way like you get to learn a little bit about you know He's not yeah, a spring chicken. He's not do. a spring chicken anymore, man. He's not a spring chicken. So that no, that battle down took a lot of him. But like, I think it was more of an intimidating factor that like, that like Voldemort was throwing most of what he had at Dumbledore, and it made it seem like Dumbledore was very easily like you know making him not look like mm -hmm. all Voldemort's powerful spells making him look like they weren't doing a thing, you know. But it, it, it's it's that age old thing of um, you know it's the passing of the torch in a way. If we think about where it goes from here, I'm not going to give anything away. But like right. you know. A lot of us think that, I'll say this, a lot of us think that Goku probably could have beat Cell in the Cell games if he didn't just say, hey, you know what, I'm going to let someone else like get their shot at it now. You know, right. so like, uh, you know, that they they are very evenly matched. I do think Molten Dumbledore might have a slight edge over him, but it's not, what you, what you say, in my opinion, it's not like super easy. When you say, you know how easy it would have been to do that? I don't think it would have been very easy at all. I think it's a very, very difficult battle no matter what happens. Because, you know, even Dumbledore back in Sorcerer's Stone said, you know, Voldemort has powers that even I don't I don't even have. And Professor McGonagall's like, yeah, because you're too noble to use them. So he like he acknowledges that Voldemort is wildly, vastly powerful. Like and he not he himself doesn't have enough to just 
you know, stop him single-handedly. That's why he needs, like, you know, we, we go into next book. But, no, I don't agree. That I don't think that would have been easy regardless if he didn't give a shit about if Harry lived or died. I still don't think it's an easy thing for Dumbledore to, you know, de- defeat Voldemort in combat. And that's where I'll, I'll leave that. But Well, the only thing I'll say about that, then, is that really goes into his intellectuality even more because mm-hmm. it goes to show then he was really just conserving his energy because yeah. he's no spring chicken. For sure. Oh, I, I'm not arguing that. I agree. He's 100% smarter than everybody in the book. <laughs> like, yeah, like his his brain power. That's not what's in question. I'm just talking about his ability in combat against Voldemort. It's it's more even than it would lead you to believe. Like, I mean, I agree with that. I'm just saying this fight. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think I do agree. It's more even than this battle goes to show. It's kind of like someone slips up on a football team and they start getting blown out, 31 to nothing. And then they try to start making a comeback, but the score really doesn't reflect it. I think, though, I will say, if I think, though, given taking out what we learn later, like if this was just literally like wizard on wizard, I do think if Dumbledore wanted to end that fight, he could have ended it on him if he wanted to, despite the fact Harry's there. If this was one-on-one and there was no shit we're gonna find out about later double door kind of ended that i don't know i i I disagree on it like i i I think it it would be uh i think in any way voldemort still escapes i don't think like he's he would probably be in a weakened state but like it wouldn't i don't think it would be that because like if that was the case dumbledore you know should have been did this a long time ago he already knew where his sources said that you know Voldemort was in Albania gaining power again before he returned to body like at any point in time if Dumbledore thought he could have saved everything you know he probably would have attempted to do so but he I think he realized that he himself was not enough to do it and if he on the off chance and I'm getting caught he wouldn't be able to use that brain power that we were talking about to pass the knowledge on other people to how to defeat him so I think I'm, I think he played it smart well, than anything I'm saying taking all of that out if this right, was just I, normal powers on normal powers, you don't think Dumbledore could beat Voldemort? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I, I, maybe? I, yeah. He just kicked his ass over, like, a course of five minutes? Uh, I guess that. I, I, think it's, I think it was more close than people read it as. You know, people read it as, like, oh, Dumbledore and Voldemort just disappeared because he didn't want any more of that. Like, no, I think he tried to use an underhanded tactic to see what he could force Dumbledore to do. I think he was, like... I think Voldemort's a very sadistic... Like, he's almost like a... a, a Peter Baelish in a way like you know he's always like playing different like levels of stuff so I don't I don't think you know I I don't really know if in a true you know contest of arms one life each person just gets one life in a you know duel to it do I think Dumbledore could probably win yes I think it's likely I just think it's a lot it's going to be a lot closer and a lot harder than people think it, it would be and this battle really didn't show much other than you know Dumbledore can keep pace with what Voldemort's able to do and then Voldemort's like, all right, well, let's see what you, like, let's see if I can make you, let's see if I can make you kill Harry yourself. Let me see if I can end this my way, you know. So I think it was more of a underhanded tactic, more than like, you know, he was like scared to do it. I don't know. That's my own opinion, you know. You think it was more but, like a you're gonna have to go through me before you get to him. So kind of. So it's, it was more like because uh, Voldemort knows he's been trying to kill Harry since day one, right? So I think Voldemort was trying to kill like two birds with one stone. Break Dumbledore's spirit by forcing him to kill Harry, trying to kill Dumbledore, trying to kill Voldemort. 
So like he's like, if I can get Dumbledore to kill Harry, obviously I'm gonna jump out of the possession body before this curse hits. He's gonna kill Harry. My job will be done. Harry's gonna be dead, and Voldemort's spirit's gonna be broken because he had to kill a boy he really cared about. And now it's just he's the only one I gotta worry about now is Albus Dumbledore. And so like, that's what I think. I think that he tried to try to trick him, but you know Dumbledore is smart and he's not like I'm. He's like, dude, I'm not gonna do that. So he's like, and then, then Voldemort's like, all right, fine, we'll regroup because like remember when he answered, he's like, the orders are on their way. So at that point. Voldemort knew people were coming because right after that happened, what they say, like all those people showed up, like all the Aurors and Cornelius Fudge, they all showed up in the atrium. So then it's a different battle then if it's Dumbledore and Aurors and the minister all there and it's just Voldemort. Then it's a different, now he's outnumbered and, you know, he's in real trouble. So I think like he kind of knew, like, I'm out of time. He's like, I'm on a time, I'm on a time thing here. I got to either kill Dumbledore fast and get out of here or like I got to, you know, I gotta do what I can. But he ended up doing what he thought was best, and he ended up getting away, which, you know, was the right move, given the circumstances. Yeah, which even makes to a point, it does, if you think of it this way, then, the fact, like, how he was looping in the Death Eaters, I guess not to really show them, like, no mercy, but to make sure they can't go, like, get any more allies or anything. You can look at it that way. I I don't know, man. I mean, I get it. He's older, but, (laughs) like, I mean, it you were the one that convinced me of this it took a shitload of harpies to take down barristan selmy <laughs> so like i think i i don't know i think i think you're right i think it would be closer than it's definitely described here because yeah voldemort probably is thinking of that you know there's no rules in a fight like bottom line like there's no you cheated or anything <laughs> just there are no rules and he's a he's sick sick dude like sorry he's yeah. a sick and he was on a time crunch he knew that the orders were coming and the minister was coming even he's been trying to keep his identity secret mm-hmm. like that he was still around like he was on a time crunch that you know yeah <laughs> so. it just it just makes me wonder i mean i it's that's why just, i say i get so tough. mad because it was inconclusive you know like it was like right. there was a no real conclusive ending i would love to see it to like you know battle to the death type deal but we don't get that you know right yeah <laughs> yeah man with that i'll let you uh take it from here brother heck yeah so let's go ahead and get into it. We're going to start up on the uh, chapter 37, The Lost Prophecy. Harry's feet hit solid ground again. His knees buckled a little, and the golden wizard's head fell with a resounding clunk to the floor. He looked around and saw that he had arrived in Dumbledore's office. Everything seemed to repair itself during the headmaster's absence. The delicate silver instrument stood again upon the spindle-legged table, puffing and wearing serenely. The portraits of the headmasters and headmistresses were snoozing in their frames, heads lolling back in armchairs or against the edge of their pictures. Harry looked through the window. There was a cool line of pale green along the horizon. Dawn was approaching. The silence and stillness, broken only by the occasional grunt or snuffle of a sleeping portrait, was unbearable to him. If his surroundings could have reflected the feelings inside him, the pictures would have been screaming in pain. He walked around the quiet, beautiful office, breathing quickly, trying not to think, but he had to think. There was no escape. It was his fault Sirius had died. It was all his fault. If he, Harry, had not been stupid enough to fall for Voldemort's trick, if he had not been so convinced that what he had seen in his dream was real, if he had only opened his mind to the possibility that Voldemort was, as Hermione had said, banking on Harry's love of playing the hero. It was unbearable. He would not think about it. He could not stand it. There was a terrible hollow inside him he did not want to feel or examine. A dark hole where Sirius had been, where Sirius had vanished. He did not want to have to be alone with that great, silent space. He couldn't stand it. A picture behind him gave a particularly loud grunting snore, 
and a cool voice said, Ah, Harry Potter. Phineas Nagellus gave a long yawn, stretching his arms as he surveyed Harry out of his shrewd, narrow eyes. And what brings you here in the early mornings of the hour? said Phineas. The office is supposed to be barred to all those but the rightful headmaster. Or has Dumbledore sent you here? Oh, don't tell me. He gave another shuddering yawn. Another message from my worthless great-great-grandson. Harry could not speak. Phineas Nagellus did not know that Sirius was dead, but Harry could not tell him. To say it aloud would be to make it final, absolute, irretrievable. A few more portraits had stirred now. Terror of being interrogated made Harry stride across the room and seize the doorknob. It would not turn. He was shut in. I hope this means, said the corpulent red-nosed wizard who hung on the wall behind Dumbledore's desk, that Dumbledore will soon be back with us. Harry turned. The wizard was surveying him with great interest. Harry nodded. He tugged again on the doorknob behind his back, but it remained immovable. Oh, good, said the wizard. It has been very dull without him. Very dull indeed. Harry settled himself on the throne-like chair on which he had been painted when he smiled benignly upon Harry. Dumbledore thinks very highly of you, as I'm sure you know, he said comfortable. Oh, yes. He holds you in great esteem. The guilt filling the whole of Harry's chest was like some monstrous, weighty parasite now writhed and squirmed. Harry could not stand this. He could not stand being Harry anymore. He had never felt more trapped inside his own head and body. Never wished so intensely that he could be somebody, anybody else. The empty fireplace burst into emerald green flame, making Harry leap away from the door. Staring at the man spinning inside the grate, as Dumbledore's tall form unfolded itself from the fire. The wizards and witches on the surrounding walls jerked awake. Many of them gave cries of welcome. Thank you, said Dumbledore softly. He did not look at Harry at first, but walked over to the perch beside the door and withdrew from inside the pocket of his robes the tiny, ugly, featherless fox, whom he placed gently on the tray of soft ashes beneath the golden post where the full-grown fox usually stood. Well, Harry, said Dumbledore finally turning away from the baby bird, you will be pleased to hear that none of your fellow students are going to suffer lasting damage from the night's events. Harry tried to say good, but no sound came out. It seemed to him that Dumbledore was reminding him of the amount of damage he had caused by his actions tonight. And although Dumbledore was forced for once looking at him directly, and though his expression was kindly rather than accusatory, Harry could not bear to meet his eyes. Madame Pomfrey is patching everybody up now, said Dumbledore. Nipodora Tonks may need to spend a little time in St. Mungo's, but it seems that she will make a full recovery. Harry contented himself with nodding at the carpet, which was growing lighter as the sky outside grew paler. He was sure that all the porches around the room were listening closely to every word Dumbledore spoke, wondering where Dumbledore and Harry had been and why there had been injuries. I know how you're feeling, Harry, said Dumbledore very quietly. No, you don't, said Harry, his voice suddenly loud and strong. White hot anger left inside him. Dumbledore knew nothing about his feelings. You see, Dumbledore, cried Phineas Nagella slyly, never try to understand the students. They hate it. They would much rather be tragically misunderstood, wallow in self-pity, stew in their own... That's enough, Phineas, said Dumbledore. Harry turned his back on Dumbledore and stared determinedly out of the opposite window. He could see the Quidditch Stadium in the distance. Sirius had appeared there once, disguised as a shaggy black dog, so he could watch Harry play. He had probably come to see whether Harry was as good as James had been. Harry had never asked him. There's no shame in what you're feeling, Harry, said Dumbledore's voice. On the contrary, the fact that you can still pay feel pain like this is your greatest strength. 
Harry felt the white-hot anger lick his insides, blazing in the terrible emptiness, filling him with the desire to hurt Dumbledore for his calmness and his empty words. "'My greatest strength, is it?' said Harry, his voice shaking as he stared out at the Quidditch Stadium, no longer seeing it. "'You haven't got a clue. You don't know.' "'What don't I know?' asked Dumbledore calmly. "'It was too much.' Harry turned around, shaking with rage. I don't want to talk about how I feel, all right? Harry, suffering like this proves you're still a man. The pain is part of being human. Then I don't want to be human. Harry roared and seized one of the delicate silver instruments from the spindled leg table beside him and flung it across the room. It shattered into a hundred tiny pieces against the wall. Several of the pictures yells of anger and fright. The portrait of Armando Dippus said, Really? I don't care! Harry yelled at them, snatching up a lunoscope and throwing it into the fireplace. I've had enough. I've seen enough. I want out. I want it to end. I don't care anymore. He seized a table on which the silver instruments had stood and threw that too. It broke apart on the floor and the legs rolled in different directions. You do care, said Dumbledore. He had not flinched or made a single move to stop Harry from demolishing his office. His expression was calm, almost detached. You care so much that you feel as though you will bleed to death with the pain of it. I don't! Harry screamed so loudly that he felt his throat might tear. And for a second, he wanted to rush at Dumbledore and make him break too, shatter that calm, old face, shake him, hurt him, make him feel some tiny part of the horror inside Harry. Oh, yes, you do, said Dumbledore still more calmly. You have now lost your mother, your father, and the closest thing to a parent you have ever known. Of course you care. You don't know how I feel, Harry roared. You standing there, you... But words were no longer enough. Smashing things was no more help. He wanted to run. He wanted to keep running and never look back. He wanted to be somewhere he could not see the clear blue eyes staring at him. That hatefully calm old face. He turned on his heel and ran to the door. Seized the doorknob again and wrenched at it. But the door would not open. He turned back to Dumbledore. Let me out. He was shaking from head to foot. No, said Dumbledore simply. For a few seconds they stared at each other. Let me out, Harry said again. No. Dumbledore repeated, If you don't, if you keep me in here, if you don't let me, by all means, continue destroying my possessions, said Dumbledore serenely. I dare say I have too many. He walked around his desk and sat down behind it, watching Harry. Let me out, Harry said yet again in a voice that was cold and almost as calm as Dumbledore's. Not until I've had my say, said Dumbledore. Do you, do you think I want to, do you think I give a, I don't care what you've got to say, Harry roared. I don't want to hear anything you've got to say. You will, said Dumbledore sadly, because you are not nearly as angry with me as you ought to be. If you are to attack me, as I know you are very close to doing, I would like to think that I have thoroughly earned it. What are you talking? It is my fault that Sirius died, said Dumbledore clearly. Or I should say, almost entirely my fault. I will not be so arrogant as to claim responsibility for the whole. Sirius was a brave, clever, and energetic man, and such men are not usually content to sit at home in hiding while they believe others to be in danger. Nevertheless, you should never believe for an instant that there was any necessity for you to go to the Department of Mysteries tonight. If I had been open with you, Harry, as I should have been, you have known a long time ago that Voldemort might try and lure you to the Department of Mysteries, and you would never have been tricked into going there tonight, and Sirius would not have had to come after you. That blame lies with me and with me alone. Harry was still standing with his hand on the doorknob, but he was unaware of it. He was gazing at Dumbledore, hardly breathing, listening, yet barely understanding what he was hearing. Please sit down, said Dumbledore. It was not an order, it was a request. 
Harry hesitated, then walked slowly across the room, now littered with silver cogs and fragments of wood, and took the seat facing Dumbledore's desk. Am I to understand, said Phineas Nigella slowly from Harry's left, that my great-great-grandson, the last of the blacks, is dead? Yes, Phineas. I don't believe it, said Phineas brusquely. Harry turned his head in time to see Phineas marching out of the portrait and knew that he would, had gone to visit his other painting at Grimold's place. He would walk, perhaps, from portrait to portrait, calling for Sirius throughout the house. Harry, I owe you an explanation, said Dumbledore. An explanation of an old man's mistakes, for I see now what I have done, and not done, with regard to you, bears the hallmarks of the failings of age. Youth cannot know how age thinks and feels, but old men are guilty if they forget what it was to be young, and I seem to have forgotten lately. The sun was rising properly now. There was a rim of dazzling orange visible over the mountains, and the sky above it was colorless and bright. The light fell upon Dumbledore, upon the silver of his eyebrows and beard, upon the lines gouged deeply into his face. I guess fifteen years ago, when I saw the scar upon your forehead, what it might mean. I guess that might be the sign of a connection forged between you and Voldemort. You've told me this before, Professor, said Harry bluntly. He did not care about being rude. He did not care about very much anything at all anymore. Yes, said Dumbledore apologetically, yes. But you see, it is necessary to start with your scar. For it became apparent shortly after you rejoined the magical world that I was correct, and that your scar was giving you warnings when Voldemort was close to you, or feeling very powerful emotions. I know, said Harry wearily, and this ability of yours to detect Voldemort's presence even when he is disguised, and to know what he is feeling when his emotions are aroused, has become more and more pronounced since Voldemort returned to his own body and his full powers. Harry did not bother to nod. He knew all of this already. More recently, said Dumbledore, I became concerned that Voldemort might realize this connection between you exists. Sure enough, there came a time when you entered so far into his mind and thoughts that he sensed your presence. I am speaking, of course, the night where you witnessed the attack on Mr. Weasley. Yeah, Snape told me, Harry muttered. Professor Snape, Harry. Dumbledore corrected him quietly. But did you not wonder why it was not I who explained this to you? Why I did not teach you occlumency? Why I had not so much as looked at you for months? Harry looked up. He could now see that Dumbledore looked sad and tired. And I'm going to stop right there for a second. See, this is what I'm talking about. With the lines gouged deep in his face and looked sad and tired. Like, that battle took a lot out of him. But I'm going to continue on now. <laughs> said, yeah, Harry mumbled. Yeah, I wondered. You see, continued Dumbledore heavily, I believe it could not be long before Voldemort attempted to force his way into your mind to manipulate and misdirect your thoughts, and I was not eager to give him more incentives to do so. I was sure that if he realized that what our relationship was, or had ever been, closer than that of headmaster and pupil, that he would seize the chance to use you as a means to spy on me. I feared the uses to which he would put you, the possibility that he might try and possess you, Harry, and I believe I was right to think that Voldemort would have made use of you in such a way. On those rare occasions when we had close contact, I thought I saw a shadow of him stirring behind your eyes. I was trying, in distancing myself from you, to protect you. An old man's mistake. Harry remembered the feeling that a dormant snake had risen in him, ready to strike on those occasions when he had made eye contact with Dumbledore. Voldemort's aim in possessing you, as he demonstrated tonight, would not have been my destruction. It would have been yours. He hoped, when he possessed you briefly a short while ago, 
that I would sacrifice you in the hope of killing him. He sighed deeply. Harry was letting the words wash over them. He would have been so interested to know all this a few months ago, and now it was meaningless compared to the, ga the gaping chasm inside him that was the loss of Sirius. None of it mattered. Sirius told me that you felt Voldemort awake inside you the very night you had the vision of Arthur Weasley's attack. I knew at once that my worst fears were correct. Voldemort from that point had realized he could use you. And in an attempt to arm you against Voldemort's assault on your mind, I arranged occlumency lessons with Professor Snape. He paused. Harry watched the sunlight, which was sliding slowly across the polished surface of Dumbledore's desk, illuminate a silver ink pot and a handsome scarlet quill. Harry could tell that the portraits all around them were waking and listening rapidly to Dumbledore's explanation. He could hear the occasional rustle of robes, the slight clearing of a throat, and Phineas and Agellus had still not returned. Professor Snape discovered, Dumbledore resumed, that you had been dreaming about the door to the Department of Mysteries for months. Voldemort, of course, had been obsessed with the possibility of hearing the prophecy ever since he regained his body, and as he dwelled on the door, so did you, though you did not know what it meant. And then you saw Rookwood, who worked in the Department of Mysteries before his arrest, telling Voldemort what we had known all along, that the prophecies held in the Ministry of Magic are heavily protected. Only the people to whom they refer can lift them from the shelves without suffering madness. In this case, either Voldemort himself would have to enter the Ministry of Magic and risk revealing himself at last, or else you would have to take it for him. It became a matter of even great urgency that you should master clemency. But I didn't, muttered Harry. He said it aloud to try and ease the dead weight of guilt inside him. A confession must surely relieve some of the terrible pressure squeezing his heart. I didn't practice. I didn't bother. I could have stopped myself having those dreams. Hermione kept telling me to do it. If I, if I had, he'd never been able to show me where to go, and Sirius, Sirius wouldn't... Something was erupting inside Harry's head. I needed to justify himself to explain. I tried to check whether he'd really taken Sirius. I went to Umbridge's office, I spoke to Creature in the fire, and he said Sirius wasn't there. He said he'd gone. Creature lied, said Dumbledore calmly. You are not his master. He could lie to you without even needing to punish himself. Creature intended you to go to the Ministry of Magic. He... He sent me on purpose? Oh yes, Creature, I am afraid, has been serving more than one master for months. How? He hasn't been out of Grimwald Place for years. Creature seized this opportunity shortly before Christmas, said Dumbledore. When Sirius apparently shouted at him to get out, he took Sirius at his word and interpreted this as an order to leave the house. He went to the only black family member for whom he had any respect left. Black's cousin, Narcissa, sister of Bellatrix, and wife of Lucius Malfoy. How do you know all this? Harry said. His heart was beating very fast. He felt sick. He remembered worrying about Creature's odd absence over Christmas. Remembered him turning up again in the attic. Creature told me last night, said Dumbledore. You see, when you gave Professor Snape that cryptic warning, he realized that you had a vision of Sirius trapped in the bowels of the Department of Mysteries. He, like you, attempted to contact Sirius at once. I should explain that members of the Order of the Phoenix have a more reliable methods of communicating than the fire in Dolores Umbridge's office. Professor Snape had found that Sirius was alive and safe in Grimwald Place. However, when you did not return from your trip into the forest with Dolores Umbridge, Professor Snape grew worried that you still believed Sirius to be a captive of Lord Voldemort, and he alerted, he alerted certain members of the Order at once. Dumbledore heaved a great sigh and then said, Alistair Moody, Nymphadora Tonks, Kingsley Shacklebolt and Remus Lupin were at headquarters when we made contact. 
all agreed to go to your aid at once. Professor Snape requested that Sirius remain behind, as he needed somebody remain at headquarters to tell me what had happened, for I was due there at any moment. In the meantime, he, Professor Snape, intended to search the forest for you. But Sirius did not wish to remain behind while the others went to search for you. He delegated to Creature the task of telling me what had happened. And so it was that when I arrived in Grimwald Place shortly after that uh, they all ended up for the ministry, it was the elf who told me, laughing fit to burst, where Sirius had gone. He was laughing, said Harry in a hollow voice. Oh, yes. You see, Creature was not able to betray us totally. He is not secret keeper for the Order. He could not give them Elfoys our whereabouts or tell them any of the Order's confidential plans that he had been forbidden to reveal. He was bound by the enchantments of his kind, which is to say, he could not disobey a direct order from his master Sirius. But he gave Narcissa information of the sort that is very valuable to Voldemort, yet must have seemed too trivial to Sirius for him to think of banning him from repeating it. Like what? said Harry. Like the fact that the person Sirius cared about most in the world was you, said Dumbledore quietly. Like the fact that you were coming to regard Sirius as a mixture of father and brother. Voldemort knew already, of course, that Sirius was in the Order, that you knew where he was, but Creature's information made him realize that the one person whom he would go to any lengths to rescue was Sirius Black. Harry's lips were numb and cold. So, when I asked Creature if Sirius was there last night, the Malfoys, undoubtedly on Voldemort's instructions, had told him he must find a way of keeping Sirius out of the way once you had the vision of seeing, of seeing Sirius being tortured. Then, if he decided to check whether Sirius was at home or not, Creature would be able to pretend he was not. Creature injured Buckbeak the Hippogriff yesterday, and at that moment when you made your appearance in the fire, Sirius was upstairs trying to tend to him. There seemed to be very little air left in Harry's lungs. His breathing was quick and shallow. And Creature told you all this and laughed? He did not wish to tell me, said Dumbledore, but I am a sufficiently accomplished uh, legilimens myself, and I know when I'm being lied to. And I persuaded him to tell me the full story before I left for the Department of Mysteries. And, whispered Harry, his hands curled and cold fists on his knees, and Hermione kept telling us to be nice to him. She was quite right, Harry, said Dumbledore. I warned Sirius when we adopted 12 Grimald Place as our headquarters that Creature must be treated with kindness and respect. I told him that Creature could be dangerous to us. I do not think that Sirius took me very seriously. Or that he ever saw Creature as a being with feelings as acute to a human's. Don't you blame, don't you talk about Sirius like Harry's breath was constricted. He could not get the words out properly, but the rage that had subsided so briefly flared at him again. He would not let Dumbledore criticize Sirius. Creature's a lying, foul. He deserved, Creature is what he has been made by wizards, Harry, said Dumbledore. Yes, he is to be pitied. His existence has been as miserable as your friend Dobby's. He is forced to do Sirius's bidding because Sirius was the last of the family to which he was enslaved. But he felt no true loyalty to him. And whatever Creature's fault, it must be admitted that Sirius did nothing to make Creature's lot easier. Don't talk about Sirius like that, Harry yelled. He was on his feet again, furious, ready to fly at Dumbledore, who had plainly not understood Sirius at all. How brave he was, how much he had suffered. What about Snape? Harry spat. You're not talking about him, are you? When I told him that Voldemort, that Sirius... When I had told him Voldemort had Sirius, he just sneered at me as usual. Harry, you know Professor Snape had no choice but to pretend not to take you seriously in front of Dolores Umbridge, said Dumbledore steadily. But as I have explained, he informed the Order as soon as possible about what you had said. 
It was he who deduced where you had gone when you did not return from the forest. It was he, too, who gave Professor Umbridge fake veritas serum when she was attempting to force you to tell of Sirius's whereabouts. Harry disregarded this. He felt a savage pleasure in blaming Snape. It seemed to be easing his own sense of dreadful guilt, and he wanted to hear Dumbledore agree with him. Snape, Snape goaded Sirius about staying in the house. He made Sirius out was a coward. Sirius was much too old and too clever to allow such feeble taunts to hurt him. Snape, stop giving me clemency lessons, Harry snarled. He threw me out of his office. I am aware of it, said Dumbledore heavily. I have already said that it was a mistake for me not to teach you myself. Though I was sure at the time that nothing could have been more dangerous than to open your mind even further to Voldemort while in my presence. And Snape made it worse. My scar always hurt worse after lessons with him. Harry remembered Ron's thoughts on the subject and plunged on. How do you know he wasn't trying to soften me up for Voldemort? Make it easier for him to get inside my... I trust Severus Snape, said Dumbledore simply. But I forgot, another old man's mistake, that some wounds run too deep for the healing. I thought Professor Snape could overcome his feelings about your father, and I was wrong. But that's okay, is it? Harry yelled, ignoring the scandalized face and disapproved mutterings on the portrait covering the wall. It's okay for Snape to hate my dad, but it's not okay for serious hate creature. Sirius did not hate creatures, said Dumbledore. He regarded him as a servant unworthy of much interest or notice. Indifference and neglect often do much damage than outright dislike. The fountain we destroyed tonight told a lie. We wizards have mistreated and abused our fellows for too long, and we are now reaping our reward. So Sirius deserved what he got, did he? Harry yelled. I did not say that, nor will you ever hear me say it, Dumbledore replied quietly. Sirius was not a cruel man. He was kind of house elves in general. He had no love for Creature because Creature was a living reminder of the home that Sirius hated. Yeah, he did hate it, said Harry, his voice cracking, turning his back on Dumbledore and walking away. The sun was bright inside the room now, and the eyes of all the portraits followed him as he walked, without realizing what he was doing, without seeing the office at all. You made him stay shut up in that house, and he hated it. That's why he wanted to get out last night. I was trying to keep Sirius alive, said Dumbledore quietly. People don't like being locked up. Harry said furiously, rounding on him. You did it to me all last summer. Dumbledore closed his eyes and buried his face in his long-figured hands. Harry watched him, but this uncharacteristic sign of exhaustion or sadness or whatever it was that had come from Dumbledore did not soften him. On the contrary, he even felt angrier that Dumbledore was showing signs of weakness. He had no business being weak when Harry wanted to rage and storm at him. Dumbledore lowered his hands and surveyed Harry through his half-moon glasses. It is time, he said. For me to tell you what I should have told you five years ago, Harry. Please sit down. I'm going to tell you everything. I only ask a little patience, and you will have your chance to rage at me and do whatever you like when I have finished. I will not stop you. Harry glared at him for a moment, then flung himself back into the chair opposite Dumbledore and waited. Dumbledore stared for a moment at the sunlit grounds outside the window, then looked back at Harry and said, Five years ago, you arrived at Hogwarts, Harry. Safe and whole as I had planned and intended. Well, not quite whole. You had suffered. I knew you would when I left you on your aunt and uncle's doorstep. I knew I was condemning you to ten dark and difficult years. He paused. Harry said nothing. You might ask, and with good reason, why it had to be so. Why could some wizarding family not have taken you in? Many would have done so more than gladly, and they would have been honored and delighted to raise you as a son. My answer to that is my priority was to keep you alive. You were in more danger than perhaps anyone but myself realized. Voldemort had just been vanquished hours before, but his supporters, and many of them, 
are almost as terrible as he is, were still at large, angry, desperate, and violent. And I had to make my decision, too, with regard to years ahead. Did I believe Voldemort was gone forever? No. I knew not whether it would be 10, 20, or 50 years before he returned, but I was sure he would do so. And I was sure, too, knowing him as I have done, that he would not rest until he killed you. I knew that Voldemort's knowledge of magic is perhaps more extensive than any wizard alive. I knew that even my most complex and protective spells and charms were unlikely to be invincible if he ever returned to full power. But I knew too where Voldemort was weak, and so I made my decision. You would be protected by an ancient magic of which he knows, which he despises, and which has always therefore underestimated to his cost. I am speaking, of course, of the fact that your mother died to save you. She gave you a lingering protection he never expected, a protection that flows in your veins to this day. I put my trust, therefore, in your mother's blood, and I delivered you to her only to her sister, her only remaining relative. She doesn't love me, Harry said at once. She doesn't give a damn, but she took you. Dumbledore cut across him. She may have taken you grudgingly, furiously, unwillingly, bitterly, but she still took you. And in doing so, she sealed the charm I placed upon you. Your mother's sacrifice made the bond of blood the strongest shield I could give you. I still don't. While you can still call home the place where your mother's blood dwells, there you cannot be touched or harmed by Voldemort. He shed her blood, but it lives on in you and her sister. Her blood became your refuge. You need return there only once a year, but as long as you can still call to home, there he cannot hurt you. Your aunt knows this. I had explained what I had done in the letter I left with you on her doorstep. She knows that allowing you house room may well have kept you alive for the past 15 years. Wait, said Harry. Wait a moment. He sat up straightening in his chair looking at Dumbledore. You sent that howler. You told her to remember. It was your voice. I thought, said Dumbledore inclining his head slightly, that she might need reminding of the pact she sealed the night by taking you. I suspected that the mentor attack might have awoken her to the dangers of having you as a surrogate son. It did, said Harry quietly. Well, my uncle more than her. He wanted to chuck me out, but after the howler came, she, she said I had to stay. He stared at the floor for a moment. But what's this have to do with... He could not say Sirius's name. Five years ago then, continued Dumbledore as there had not been a pause in the story, you arrived at Hogwarts, neither as happy nor as well-nourished as I would have liked, perhaps, yet alive and healthy. You were not a pampered little prince, but as normal a boy as I could hope for under the circumstances. Thus far, my plan was working well. And then, well, you remember the events of your first year at Hogwarts quite as clearly as I do. You rose magnificently to the challenges that faced you, and sooner, much sooner than I anticipated, you found yourself face to face with Voldemort. You survived again. You did more. You delayed his return to full power and strength. You fought a man's fight, and I was prouder of you than I can say. Yet, there was a flaw in this wonderful plan of mine, said Dumbledore. An obvious flaw that I knew, even then, might be the undoing of it all. And yet, knowing how important it was that my plan should succeed, I told myself I would not permit this flaw to ruin it. I alone could prevent this, so I alone must be strong. And here was my first test. As you lay in the hospital wing, weak from your struggle with Voldemort. I don't understand what you're saying, said Harry. Don't you remember asking me as you lay in the hospital wing why Voldemort had tried to kill you when you were a baby? Harry nodded. Ought I have told you then? Harry stared into the blue eyes and said nothing, but his heart was racing again. You do not see the flaw in my plan yet? No, perhaps not. 
Well, as you know, I decided not to answer you. Eleven, I told myself, was much too young to know. I had never intended to tell you when you were eleven. That knowledge would be much too much at that young age. I should have recognized the danger signs then. I should have asked myself why I did not feel more disturbed that you had already asked me the question to which I knew one day I must give a terrible answer. I should have recognized that I was too happy to think that I did not have to do it on that particular day. You were too young. Much too young. And so we entered your second year at Hogwarts. And once again, you met challenges even grown wizards have never faced. Once again, you acquitted yourself beyond my wildest dreams. You did not ask me again, however, why Voldemort left the mark upon you. We discussed your scar, oh yes. We came very, very close to the subject. Why did I not tell you everything? Well, it seemed to me that 12, after all, was hardly better than 11 to receive such information. So I allowed you to leave my presence, bloodstained, exhausted, but exhilarated, and if I felt a twinge of unease I, that I ought, perhaps, have told you then, I was swiftly silenced. You were still so young, you see, and I could not find it in me to spoil that night of triumph. Don't you see, Harry? Do you see the flaw in my brilliant plan now? I had fallen into the trap I had foreseen, that I had told myself I could avoid, that I must avoid. I don't. I cared about you too much, said Dumbledore simply. I cared more for your happiness than your knowing the truth. More for your peace of mind than my plan, for your more, more for your life than the lives that might be lost if the plan failed. In other words, I acted exactly as Voldemort expects we fools who love to act. Is there a defense? I defy anyone who has watched you as I have, and I have watched you more closely than you can have imagined, not to want to save you any more pain than you have already suffered. What did I care if numbers of nameless and faceless people and creatures were slaughtered in the vague future? if in the here and now you were alive, well and happy. I never dreamed that I would have such a person on my hands. So we enter your third year. I watched from afar as you struggled to repel Dementors, as you found Sirius, learned what he was, and rescued him. Was I to tell you then, at the moment that you had triumphantly snatched your godfather from the jaws of the ministry? But now, at the age of 13, my excuses are running out. Young you might be, but you had already proved that you were exceptional. My conscience was uneasy, Harry. I knew the time must come soon. But you came out of the maze last year, having watched Cedric Diggory die, having escaped death so nearly yourself, and I did not tell you. Though I knew now, Voldemort had returned. I must do it soon. And now tonight, I know you have been long ready for the knowledge I have kept from you for so long, because you have proved that I should have placed a burden upon you before this. My only defense is this. I have watched you struggling under more burdens than any student who has ever passed through this school, and I could not bring myself to add another, the greatest one of all. Harry waited, but Dumbledore did not speak. I still don't understand. Voldemort tried to kill you when you were a child because of a prophecy made shortly, after your, shortly before your birth. He knew the prophecy had been made, though he did not know its full contents. He set out to kill you when you were still a baby believing he was fulfilling the terms of the prophecy. He discovered, to his cost, that he was mistaken. When the curse was intended to kill you backfired, and so, since his return to body, and particularly since your extraordinary escape from him last year, he has been determined to hear that prophecy in its entirety. This is the weapon he has been seeking so assiduously since his return. The knowledge of how to destroy you. The sun had risen fully now. Dumbledore's office was bathed in it. The glass case in which the sword of the Godric Gryffindor resided gleamed white and opaque. 
The fragments of the instruments Harry had thrown to the floor glistened like raindrops, and behind him, the baby fox made soft, chirruping noises in a nest of ashes. The prophecy smashed, said Harry blankly. I was pulling up Neville's robes up the benches in the room where the archway was, and I ripped his robes and it fell. The thing that smashed was nearly the record of the prophecy kept by the Department of Mysteries. But the prophecy was made to somebody, and that person has the means of recalling it perfectly. Who heard it? asked Harry, though he thought he knew the answer already. I did, said Dumbledore. On a cold, wet night sixteen years ago in a room above the bar at the Hogshead Inn. I had gone there to see an applicant for the post of divination teacher, though it was against my inclination to allow the subject of divination to continue at all. The applicant, however, was a great-great-granddaughter of a very famous, very gifted seer, and I thought it would common politeness to meet her. I was disappointed. It seemed to me that she had not a trace of the gift herself. I told her courteously, I hope, that I did not think she would be suitable for the post, and I turned to leave. Dumbledore got to his feet and walked past Harry to the black cabinet that stood behind Fox's perch. He bent down, slid back a catch, and took from the inside the shallow stone basin carved with the runes around the edges in which Harry had seen his father torment torment Snape. Dumbledore walked back to the desk, placed the pensive upon it, raised his wand to his own temple. From it, he withdrew the silvery, gossamer-fine strands of thought clinging to the wand and deposited them into the basin. He sat back down behind his desk and watched his thoughts swirl and drift inside the pensive. For a moment, then with a sigh, he raised his wand and prodded the silvery substance with its tip. A figure rose out of it, draped in shawls, her eyes magnified to enormous size behind her glasses, and she revolved slowly, her feet in the basin. But when Sybil Trelawney spoke, it was not her usual ethereal mystic voice, but the harsh, hoarse tones Harry had heard her use once before. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord approaches, born to those who have thrice defied him, born as a seventh month dies, and the Dark Lord will mark him as his equal. But he will have power the Dark Lord knows not, and either must die at the hands of the other, for neither can live while the other survives. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord will be born as the seventh month dies. The slowly revolving Professor Trelawney sank back into the silver mass below and vanished. The silence within the office was absolute. Neither Dumbledore, nor Harry, nor any of the porches made a sound. Even Fox had fallen silent. Professor Dumbledore? Harry said very quietly for Dumbledore, still staring at the pensive, seemed completely lost in thought. It... did that mean... what did that mean? It meant, said Dumbledore, that the person who has the only chance of conquering Lord Voldemort for good was born at the end of July, nearly 16 years ago, and this boy would be born to parents who had already defied Voldemort three times. Harry felt as though something was closing in upon him. His breathing seemed difficult again. It means me? Dumbledore surveyed him for a moment through his glasses. The odd thing is, Harry, he said softly, that it may not have meant you at all. Sybil's prophecy could have applied to two wizard boys, both born at the end of July that year, both of whom had parents in the Order of the Phoenix, both sets of parents having narrowly escaped Voldemort three times. One, of course, was you. The other was Neville Longbottom. But then, but then why was it my name on the prophecy and not Neville's? The official record was relabeled after Voldemort's attack on you as a child, said Dumbledore. It seemed plain to the Keeper of the Hall of Prophecy that Voldemort could only have tried to kill you because he knew you to be the one of whom Sybil was referring. Then it might not be me, said Harry. 
I'm afraid, said Dumbledore slowly, looking as though every word was costing him a great effort, that there, no doubt, that there is no doubt that it is you. But you said Neville was born at the end of July too, and his, and his mom and dad, you're forgetting the next part of the prophecy, the final identifying feature of the boy who could vanquish Voldemort. Voldemort himself would mark him as his equal, and so he did, Harry. He chose you, not Neville. He gave you the scar that has always already proved to be a blessing and a curse. But he might have chosen wrong, said Harry. He might have marked the wrong person. He chose the boy he thought likely to be the most danger to him, said Dumbledore. And notice this, Harry. He chose not the pure blood, which according to his creed is the only kind of wizard worth being or knowing, but the half-blood, like himself. He saw himself in you before he had ever seen you. And in marking you with that scar, he did not kill you as intended, but gave you powers and a future which have fitted you to escape him not once, but four times so far, something that neither your parents nor Neville's parents ever achieved. Why did he do it then, said Harry, who felt numb and cold. Why did he try and kill me as a baby? He should have waited to see whether Neville or I looked more dangerous when we were older and tried to kill whoever it was then. That might indeed have been the more practical course, said Dumbledore, except that Voldemort's information about the prophecy was incomplete. The Hogshead Inn, in which Sybil chose for its cheapness, has long attracted, shall we say, a more interesting clientele than the three broomsticks. As you and your friends found out to your cost, and I to mine that night, is a place where it is never safe to assume you are not being overheard. Of course, I had not dreamed when I set out to meet Sybil Trelawney that I would hear anything worth overhearing. My, our, one stroke of good fortune was that the eavesdropper was detected only a short way into the prophecy and thrown from the building. So we only heard, he only heard the first part, the part for telling the birth of a boy in July to parents who had thrice-defied Voldemort. Consequently, he could not warn his master that to attack you would be a risk transferring power to you, again marking you as his equal. So Voldemort never knew there might be danger in attacking you, that it might be wise to wait and learn more. He did not know that you would have the power the Dark Lord knows not. But I don't, said Harry in a strangled voice. I haven't any powers he hasn't got. I couldn't fight the way he did tonight. I can't possess people or kill them. There is a room in the Department of Mysteries, interrupted Dumbledore, that is kept locked at all times. It contains a force that is at once more wonderful and more terrible than death, than human intelligence, than forces of nature. It is also, perhaps, the most mysterious of the many subjects for study that reside there. It is the power held within that room that you possess in such quantity in which Voldemort has not at all. That power took you to save Sirius tonight. That power also saved you from possession by Voldemort because he could not bear to reside inside a body so full of the force that he detests. In the end, it mattered not that you could not close your mind. It was your heart that saved you. Harry closed his eyes. If he had not gone to save Sirius, Sirius would not have died. More to save off the moment when he could think, where he would have to think about Sirius again, Harry asked without caring much about the answer. The end of the prophecy. It was something about neither can live while the other survives, said Dumbledore. So, said Harry, dredging up the words from what felt like a deep well of despair inside him. Does that mean that one of us is going to have to kill the other one in the end? Yes, said Dumbledore. For a long time, neither of them spoke. Somewhere far beyond the office walls, Harry could hear the sound of voices. Students heading up and down the great hall for an early breakfast, perhaps. It seemed impossible that there could be people in the world who still desired food, who laughed, who neither knew nor cared that Sirius Black was gone forever. Sirius seemed a million miles away already, even if a part of Harry still believed that he had only pulled back the veil 
that he would have found Sirius looking back at him and greeting him, perhaps with his laugh that was like a bark. I feel I owe you another explanation, Harry, said Dumbledore hesitantly. You may perhaps have wondered why I never chose you as a prefect. I must confess that I rather thought you had enough responsibility to be going on with. He looked up at him and saw a tear trickling down Dumbledore's face into his long silver beard. And that is the end of that chapter, leaving us with only one left. But there was a lot of really interesting things in there and questions that I have. This weapon was the prophecy, if I'm reading it clearly, but what kind of really weapon was it? Because Dumbledore said that like, Voldemort thinks that that prophecy was going to give him the, the secret on how to destroy Harry. But really, all it did was say, you know, one of you is going to have to kill the other one in the end. It didn't, like, that wasn't much of a weapon at all. I didn't understand how this was, like, the big, the big reveal, you know? Like, this, the, there's nothing that they didn't already know. Like, Voldemort was going to continuously try to kill Harry regardless, right? Like, so, was it just that Voldemort was mistaken? Was it that, like, he thought that there was going to teach him how to destroy Harry and because he didn't hear it he didn't know that it wasn't going to tell him how to so like he, does he himself not know that it wasn't a weapon and so he thought it was a weapon but it really wasn't these are kind of some of the questions that I have on that on top of that you know you can see you know the lines deeply gouged in Dumbledore's face he looked tired and exhausted like so you can see that battle of Voldemort did take a lot out of Dumbledore more than it would really go to show in the battle itself but I also thought it was super interesting that in the chapter previous, once Harry thought about Sirius and had that feeling of emotion, that's when he was unpossessed. It kind of goes this full circle here and says, like, this is the power the Dark Lord knows now, the power of love. And because he felt that surge of love, Voldemort couldn't inhabit his body, feeling that pure form there and, and hatred. So those are some of the things I, was, I really kind of pieced from that. Talk about what you gained from that chapter and discuss it and see if you're on the same page as me and, you know, what you think and we'll go from there. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I definitely agree with you on the last point as far as the feeling of love. And I think, you know, definitely with Harry being so deep down affected by Sirius's death, I think that played a, a large part in it. I guess I didn't really like this scene in the movie, and I hate bringing up differences because we're not there yet. But they had that kind of like flashback scene that was an interesting ad. Because it kind of showed like the love Harry's had all along, and uh, I definitely agree with you on that. As far as what you're saying with the weapon and the battle that it took an effect on Dumbledore, see, I think we got two perspectives out of that. I do agree with you as far as I do think the battle took an effect on Dumbledore, but I don't think it's just the battle that's having this overwhelming effect on him. I think what's actually having the overwhelming effect on him is the situation and everything that he's having to deal with because if we go back to your favorite book Goblet of Fire there is actually a part in there which he didn't fight Voldemort at all in there um, where it said Voldemort returned which we talked about because we learned all about you know certain things we'll talk a lot more about later but um, Dumbledore returned looking even weaker than he's ever been seen before even by that last exact page um, where he was talking about Harry being a prefect he felt overwhelmingly just you know tears coming out of his eyes because he felt so bad about it 
I think people forget emotion on itself and everything you're dealing with. Because keep in mind, Harry's been very close to Dumbledore this entire time. That alone can take an effect on you. And I think a large part of this, of why it's taking an emotional effect, I don't think it's just the battle. Like, I think the battle had a part of it. Don't get me wrong. I, I think it definitely did take a toll on him. But this overwhelmingly exhaustion is because he knows things that we haven't found out yet. And I think you know what I'm talking about. But, and I think that plays a big piece to it. So do I, like, completely disagree with you? Take a shot. <laughs> uh, definitely not. Like, I, I agree with you. The battle did take a big point. But just based on those sentences alone, and going back to Goblet of Fire... Uh, and that last sentence there. I think a lot of it is because he feels like he's wasted an entire year with Harry and he knows the future. And of course, you know, me and you are audience members and won't bring anything up. But, you know, Dumbledore knows he has a plan in place. And I think that's part of it, too. And, you know, you are right, though. I think you are definitely right. Like, you know, it's kind of like my dad told me, you know. Uh, it was back when I was getting my party on a lot. He said, wake up and smell the flowers. You know, spring chicken anymore. <laughs> but uh, I, I, so I do agree with you as far as the battle took a toll. But I think as far as the overwhelmingness, it has a lot to do with the motion. And it has a lot to do with multiple factors that Dumbledore is also dealing with. As far as the weapon... Uh, so I can answer that with my own uh, without answering anything for the future. I think Voldemort mistakened it the entire time and Dumbledore led this into him thinking that is the weapon which is what he's telling Harry is the weapon. This is not the weapon. This plays into a part of the matter of the weapon but I think me and you both know there is a very powerful weapon that comes into play much later on, and Dumbledore's known it the entire time, and it's been sitting in front of Voldemort's face. He just doesn't know it. So I think it's... I tend to agree with you on certain perspectives on some of those things, but I don't think it's just necessarily one way. Um... As far as the prophecy, I think what it was was they were trying to draw Harry in, just like you were saying, and I think, you know, really faking out Harry, I think what it was was Voldemort had planned, almost like Sirius would go after Harry, and he knew that, but he didn't really care about Sirius, but he knew it would get to a point where Dumbledore would show up, and he would find out more about the weapon. So, to answer your question, I don't think Voldemort was ever tricked in what the weapon was. But I don't think anyone ever thought the prophecy was the weapon except for Harry. In the I group. don't think that Voldemort had planned to go. But Voldemort wasn't going to plan to go to the ministry, though. That wasn't his plan. He didn't want to be there, or else he could have just gone and got the prophecy himself. So he was he was drawn there because he realized the prophecy was smashed. Because he could you know he could see the whatever. And then he didn't even expect Dumbledore to be there either. That's why he's like, what the? 
Ah, Dumbledore, you know? He didn't expect Dumbledore to be there. That's why Bellatrix was trying to tell him, Master, you should know he is below. And, like, talking about Dumbledore. So he was, like, a little startled to see Dumbledore there anyways. You well, know, then so. maybe he was tricked, but... So I the only thing I think I come to think is, like, he just made a mistake. Like, Voldemort thought the key to the prophet because he said he knows there's a prophecy about the one that has the power to vanquish the Dark Lord and how he was born and those things. So he's like, oh... You know, I didn't get to hear the full prophecy, so the rest of the prophecy must tell me how I can defeat him. And maybe, like, that's, like, he just was searching for that, and that was a weapon. But, like, then at that point, the Order of the Phoenix made it seem like it was it w- was a big weapon. But if Dumbledore knew what it said the whole time. I just don't know if they should have made it such a big deal in the book. Like, he's, he's looking for weapons, something he didn't have last time. So I guess that what they were going to refer to that is kind of like the whole saying that knowledge is power type deal. I guess right. maybe that's where they were going to go with that. But because I don't know. No, but I understand 100% what you're saying. If I didn't know what I know, which I know you know, <laughs> I know what you know what to know. Like, you know, what's playing through Dumbledore's mind, you know, how everything just came here. And he's known this for 16 years. We both know... There are things that Dumbledore keeps to himself that will be found out much later on. But his point in showing up was not ever a risk that Voldemort would receive the weapon. If he even considered a weapon, he was thinking Voldemort would use Harry as the weapon, which is a very powerful weapon in that. But from what... That's Sorry. where I disagreed, though, just because, like, they were keeping people, like, watch stations over the Hall of Prophecy. If they didn't give a shit about the prophecy, why like, have Arthur Weasley there? Why have people guarding it, you know, if it, like, if it really wasn't anything? I think, like, that's why I get, like, a little weirded out. Like, it seems they really wanted to build that prophecy to being a weapon, but then inside the prophecy, there was really nothing in there worth knowing that you couldn't pretty much already guess that they were destined to kill one or the other. So it's like, you know, if, if, if Harry was the weapon that Voldemort was planning on and using what the heck was the use of going into the hall of prophecy then like why did Voldemort you know that's what I'm saying is like why like if or if like you you if they if Dumbledore knew what it was and you could just be like yeah I don't care if he hears it go ahead like you know take take the thing like why were they putting guards over it like why were they you know stopping you know Voldemort from trying to get it earlier in the year and stuff I don't know well I mean it was a very powerful memory that they wanted to keep from Harry is what it was but so like you didn't I, have to give it to Harry, you know. Like if they they just if they if Voldemort got it, like that's it. <laughs> like no, I'm I'm saying why Dumbledore kept it there. I mean, do, do you know? Do you realize how many times he's pushed his head through that pensieve <laughs> Dumbledore's office? I mean, you just never know. Like it's something he wanted to keep from him. It's a bit and didn't want anyone else to know. Of course, just like everyone else, there's people that find out their futures later on. And but, I 100% think I, maybe Voldemort thought that was the weapon because he is looking for it. But Dumbledore knew that was no weapon. Yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking. Like, like Voldemort is the one who didn't realize that it actually wasn't a weapon. But why? Like, was it just to kind of like give up the ruse and like you know try to keep Voldemort's mind occupied on that? You know, to keep him trying to, like, hey, like, well, if they're guarding it, it must have some secret knowledge that I must know or something. Like, you know, like, is that what they were doing? Is just trying to play it as, like, a a um, scapegoat or a ploy or a trick to kind of keep Voldemort's attention off of Harry? 
Is that like you know that the only thing I could think of because there's no reason to you know if Dumbledore knows that that prophecy is no weapon. What's the point in guarding it? Like why would you put orders members of lives of order members at risk by guarding something that means nothing? Well, like, see, so like I, the think, only th- I think no, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I just think you missed the part of why. So the nail on the head is yes, that prophecy was there in my opinion, just as a diversion. For Voldemort to keep him at bay while Dumbledore deals with all the crap he's dealing with and starts building power with the Order. The Order was there really to protect Harry, which is why Dumbledore was having him try to study occlumency because he never wanted him there in the first place. That's my argument with that because if but Dumbledore had it his way, Harry he would have never gone down there. That's what I'm saying. Like I'm talking about before Harry even know like what was in the, the Department of Mysteries. Like that was the first night when he was in that snake body in his dream when they attacked Mr. Weasley. Like Harry wasn't there. Harry wasn't on his way there. Harry didn't want to go there. Like you know, like 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 why was there? Why were they putting people guarding that door? Is what I'm saying. Like like I know you. He wanted to keep like the knowledge from Harry. That's fine. But like it doesn't make sense of why like Harry was nowhere near the Department of Mysteries. You know during that time when Mr. Weasley was attacked. Like. That's like I don't get like why they would sit there and continuously guard it unless you know you're putting people's lives at risk guarding something that's worthless really, like. Well, I, I don't mean, understand it. My argument with that though is I mean look at you know um, what's her name Aunt whatever her name is that's the squib, or uh, you had uh, what's his face that left his post like I mean like he's been having someone watch Harry all summer. So, I mean, if he thought mm-hmm. Voldemort got in his head... Sorry, what were their names again? Oh, I went blank on their names. I'm terrible. Uh, Miss, Mrs. Fig and Mundungus Fletcher. Miss Fig and Mundungus Fletcher, yeah. So, my rebuttal to that would be Dumbledore's plan was really just to buy everyone time while they were building up the team. And if there was a fear that he Voldemort got into Harry's head earlier... And had him pursue what he thought he would wind up pursuing because of his heroism and intent on curiosity and reaction and getting everyone involved. They need someone there to protect something, but unfortunately it didn't go as to plan because, of course, everyone wound up leaving because it took like a whole year to do this. With the At that point, it still doesn't add up with the timeline, though. The timeline doesn't work with that. Even with your rebuttal explanation, it doesn't work with that. Because Harry, like, what, like the very first thing that Voldemort got, like, uh, an idea that, oh, I can reverse this and I can get a uh, look into Harry's head. He had no idea that Harry could see what he could see until that night. He said, in the chapter we just read, he said, Voldemort found out when you delve deep into his thoughts that you were there when you would, he attacked Arthur Weasley. So, like, he, there was no, like, plan that Dumbledore was like, oh, we got to stop, you know, Voldemort's going to be able to possess Harry. Like, Voldemort had no idea, like, that Harry was able to see or feel his connection until that night. Meaning, you're still putting people in order there for no reason. So, there was, must have been a reason why they were protecting the, the Hall of Prophecy. Like, there must be a reason why, you know, that. And, like, that's why I, I don't know, not necessarily it's a plot hole, but, like, it makes the whole prophecy itself almost worthless. Like the whole the whole storyline behind the prophecy, it makes it completely worthless, because if there was nothing worth knowing in there, like other than what's already everyone already knows, like they were gonna kill one or the other in the end. Like that Voldemort has been trying to kill Harry since that day he tried to kill him when he was one years old. It's not something that's new. So it's like you know, I don't understand the timeline. Just doesn't add up because he Voldemort didn't realize that he could flip the script and oh Harry's here. Well maybe I can go to Harry then. You know it was it was well after. 
Like that was that time. So they've been they've been guarding that prophecy well before Harry had any issues with this, you know, possession with Voldemort seeing in each other's mind type shit. But that that's what I'm saying though. I think you're missing the point. It never had anything to do with what Voldemort knew. It's exactly what Dumbledore said. Like his predictions came true. It, was, it wasn't guaranteed yet, but I think it was a prediction and his whole involvement uh, you know, with the clemency back with Snape. This was all a prediction that could possibly come true. And then the St. Mungo's part was just verifying it. So that's why they had everyone there before. Um, I feel like Bodrick Bode, that was the Death Eaters, as far as that part. That was just the Death Eaters trying to find out more, which this was really a whole diversion the whole time, unless you want to go into, like, they really believed... Like this was the prophecy. There was no big secret there because Dumbledore had it in his office the whole time. They were just really using this whole thing as a diversion. Right. And that's why my main question was so, like, that's why that thing all started was like, is this thing just a big diversion? Like, is this the concept of a weapon that uh, Dumbledore yeah. didn't have last time? Was that just a diversion? Like, was that just something to trick him into thinking, you know, this is what we're going to have you kind of go in loops trying to figure out this thing mm-hmm. while we're keeping Harry safe to the side? Like, is that was that the main plan of everything? Because if that was, that still makes it like seem really, really ridiculous. That it's like, <laughs> that that's what the whole book is about him using this weapon he didn't have last time. You know, that's like, that's just, it doesn't. Well, I mean, I, I agree with you there. See, that's what I was thinking the whole time, is this whole thing is just a big diversion, which really kind of is true. It does let you down as a reader, <laughs> but it opens up questions that get answered later because it wasn't like it was, the whole thing was a diversion if that was the plan. But the reason it wasn't meaningless was because... Voldemort is searching for that weapon like we know he's searching for something so it's more just to throw him off to buy people time while they build up the order is what right like why, why build up the order like why do you sit there and build up the order and put the order's lives continuously at risk over something that means nothing like you're trying to you know you're you know the, the Arthur Weasley almost died if Harry didn't have that vision he would have been dead guarding something for no reason like you know what well, I mean? I, I mean, I, I as far as that goes, it you have to debate how good a diversion has to be. Like he basically just used Harry as live bait, is what he did. Like just like the Lion King, you know, want to sing and do the hula <laughs> with like Timon and Pumbaa. Like that's basically what he just did with Harry, in my opinion. Uh, so I guess then you have to really ask a question if it's not a plot hole, which. I don't know. I can't read J.K. Rowling's mind. We've discovered some plot holes recently. Yeah, I don't think it's a plot hole. I just think it's a letdown more than anything. Like, it wasn't a letdown to me. It was a badass battle. <laughs> the the <laughs> battle was cool. Down. I'm just. I it was the letdown for me. Thinking scene. like, you know, someone for like that's a dead like dead ass like storyline kind of person like reading it. You know, thinking like, okay, well, there's this gonna be this awesome weapon that's gonna come up at the end, or like at least get a better explanation. But it's just like, actually, there really was no weapon. There was just, you know, Voldemort was going to be predicted by Dumbledore to use Harry, uh, you know, against the rest of them. Like, that's like, oh, okay. Like, we already kind of, like, we've seen him possess other people. There's nothing shocking or really strange about that. It was just a bit just boring to me. Like, like that, why even do that at that point? Like, I just, well, I didn't. 
see agree to disagree on that because thinking about the intellectuality of it i think it's more like you know we bring i bring up the departed here all the time like think about that like you have a rat in the system (laughs) that's trying to take down the other one so it's almost like or the prestige if you've seen the movie the prestige like you have these two wizards trying to sabotage each other it's almost like that's what that was however Dumbledore never expected Harry to get involved because he had faith in him to actually take over these occlumency lessons. Or maybe Dumbledore did make the mistake and he was, you know, what he was fearing, he was hoping wouldn't come true and that they were really that connected and didn't think it would be taken that far. But here's the thing, and this is what this is what it all comes down to. What's the point of not just letting Voldemort get the prophecy? Like, here, take the prophecy. Now you know what's in it. Why was that even a storyline on the side? Like, why? Like, that makes no, like, like, now, now, now Voldemort knows for sure that he's got to kill Harry or Harry's got to kill him. That makes no difference to anything. Like, why try it so hard to prevent him from taking it? What would it made? What difference would it made if Voldemort knew what was in the prophecy or not? It made zero difference. That's what I'm saying. Like, it there's nothing to do with what actually happens later on. I know what you're getting at and how it goes, the storyline from here into the further books. I'm mm-hmm. talking about for right here, right now in this book. What would it have mattered if they gave, if they're like, hey, Voldemort, go ahead, get this weapon that you think, go ahead, do, do your worst with it. And he gets the prophecy and hears it. You know, like, why even try to prevent him? Why not just give it to him and they like, call it a day? Like, it doesn't do anything. Like, it, like, there's no benefit or detractor to him having the prophecy. Yeah, but I mean, I guess the only statement I can make to that is, I guess, if you're part of the Order or, you know, Dumbledore. I guess he's just that much further. So I guess if you're trying to delay time, because what comes up in the next book on what you have to do, if you already know that information, you need time to do that. So there's no telling what Dumbledore, you know, he's been away from Harry from an entire year, what he's been researching in the back doors that he hasn't told anyone about. And maybe he was just trying to buy himself time. Um, That's the only explanation i can come to so that's how i'm acceptable with it because i think it it, i think it gives it a lot of value going into the next book that will wind up be going into because dumbledore um not giving anything away but like you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the battle there there's a lot to tom riddle that a lot of people don't know and there's more that meets the eye where you can't just fight Tom Riddle one on one, so I so think the whole thing was a diversion because he's secretly been working on that. Versus so basically, this whole thing was like, in your in your opinion, and probably I probably have to agree because there's no other another explanation other than this. So basically, this whole thing was a wild goose chase to buy time. Like literally, this whole this whole you know Department of Mysteries prophecy thing, this whole thing was just a diversion, a wild goose chase to get time while I can you know figure out ways to get you from another way. Is that pretty much it? hundred <laughs> percent, but it was a wild <laughs> goose chase. kind of like some... a letdown, man. <laughs> like... Oh, no, no, no. I, it wasn't a letdown to me because it was a wild goose chase that was a badass action scene, but it also shows it was a wild goose chase that Sirius should have never been in. Just like Oberyn Martell should have never volunteered when he was... Big doesn't matter if you're lying flat on your well, back. Well, that's different though because Oberyn Martell had a reason. Because remember, the mountain killed his family. People remember right, his family. Okay. So like, yeah, he, well, should, he wanted, he wanted that. It. I mean, now yeah. Harry's involved there. Who are they trying to kill at this yeah. point? 
Who I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Like, so there's no. You said that Arbor Martel should never been in there. That's not true. He should have. But he was trying to kill him. The big. He, he's wanted that fight forever. So okay, that's what I was that's, saying. I, I agree with that. Yeah. But yes, I, I do 100% agree with you. I think it was a big wild goose chase. This is a big but, wild goose chase. But it was a wild goose chase with some. Well, it was a wild goose chase with some badass action. Sure. Scenes, yeah, that was cool. Me. It was just. I, I wanted more of it. I just I wanted I wanted more to come of why it's like like seriously like if Sirius is gonna die like make it worth something you know what I mean like make it like but it was all for like a wild goose chase so and, yeah, and that makes it even I, mean, I guess that makes it even more sad and I guess but whatever hey I mean you know <laughs> good guys finish last man I mean <laughs> right <laughs> all right I'll let, I'll let you go ahead and, and take us in here and finish up this last chapter and then we'll get into other parts of the show and then we'll we'll get it rolling. Good stuff, man. That was a good debate without even the debate card. That was, right? uh, that was pretty good. I, I, yeah, I, I, but sum that up, I do agree with you on that, but that's all I could get out of it. Maybe yeah. it is a plot hole. What do I know? Yeah, I don't, I guess I, I don't even think it's a plot hole. I just think it's a letdown for me personally. But you, I know you, you like it because you got some cool moments out of it. It's just like, man, you maybe read 870 pages and that's what this was all about this whole time and just that, like three lines of the prophecy that really meant nothing. I read 870 pages for that. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? But it let you enjoy the 870 yeah. pages. Do you, yeah, those Alex exams, yeah. they had to have some time so they could study <laughs> for them. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> no, good shit. Okay, so chapter 38, the second war begins. He who must not be named returns. In a brief statement Friday night, Minister of Magic Cornelius Fudge confirmed that he who must not be named has returned to this country and is active once more. It is with great regret that I must confirm that the wizarding style styling himself lord well you know i who i mean is alive and among us again said fudge looking tired and flustered as he addressed reporters it is with almost equal regret that we report the mass revolt of dementors of azkaban who have shown themselves averse to continuing in the ministry's employ we believe that the dementors are currently taking the direction taking direction from lord thingy <laughs> We urge the magical population to remain vigilant. The ministry is currently publishing guides to elementary home and personal defense that will be delivered free to all wizarding homes within the coming months. Coming month. The minister's statement was met with dismay and alarm from the wizarding community, which as recently as last Wednesday was receiving ministry assurances that there was no truth whatsoever in these persistent rumors that you know who is operating amongst us once more. Details of the events that led to the ministry turnaround are still hazy, though it is believed that he who must not be named in a select band of followers, known as Death Eaters, gained entry to the Ministry of Magic itself on Thursday evening. Albus Dumbledore, newly reinstated headmaster of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, reinstated member of the International Confederation of Wizards, and reinstated chief warlock of, of the Wizen gamut, was unavailable for comment last night. He has insisted for a year that you-know-who was not dead, as was widely hoped and believed, but recruiting followers once more for a fresh attempt to seize power. Meanwhile, the boy who lived... There you are, Harry. I knew they'd drag you into it somehow, said Hermione looking over the top of the paper at him. They were in the hospital wing. Harry was sitting on the end of Ron's bed, and they were both listening to Hermione 
read the front page of the Sunday Prophet. Jenny, whose ankle had been mended in a trice by Madame Promfrey, was curled up at the foot of Hermione's bed. Neville, whose nose had likewise been returned to its normal size and shape, was in a chair between the two beds, and Luna, who had dropped in to visit, clutching the latest edition of The Quibbler, was reading the magazine upside down and apparently not taking in a word Hermione was saying. He's the boy who lived again now, though, isn't he? said Ron, darkly. Not so, not such a show-off maniac anymore, eh? He helped himself to a handful of chocolate frogs from the immense pile on the beside cabinet, threw a few to Harry, Jenny, and Neville, and ripped off the wrapper of his own with his teeth. There were still deep welts on his forearms where the brain tentacles had wrapped around him. According to Madame Pomfrey, thoughts could leave a deeper scarring than almost anything else. Though, since she had started applying copious amounts of Dr. Ubley's oblivious unction, there seemed to be some improvement. Yes, they're very complimentary about you, no, Harry? said Hermione, now scanning down the article. A lone voice of truth, perceived as unbalanced yet never wavered in his story, forced to bear ridicule and slander. Hmm, <laughs> said Hermione, frowning. I notice they don't mention the fact that it was them doing all the ridiculing and slander slandering, though. She went slightly and put a hand to her ribs. The curse Dolahob had used on her, though less effective than it would have been had he been able to say the incantation aloud, had nevertheless caused, in Madame Pomfrey's words, quite enough damage to be going on with. Hermione was having to take ten different types of potions every day, and although she was improving greatly, was already bored with the hospital wing. You know whose last attempt to take over, pages two to four. What the ministry should have told us, page five. Why nobody listened to Albus Dumbledore, page six to eight. Exclusive interview with Harry Potter, page nine. Well, said Hermione, folding up the newspaper and throwing it aside, it's certainly given them lots to write about. And the interview with Harry isn't exclusive. It's the one that was in the Quibbler months ago. Daddy sold it to him, said Luna vaguely, turning a page of the Quibbler. He's got a very good price for it, too. So we're going to go on an expedition to Sweden this summer and see if we can we can catch a Crumplehorn Snorkak. Hermione seemed to struggle with herself for a moment, then said, That sounds lovely. Jenny caught Harry's eye and looked away quickly, grinning. So anyway, said Hermione, sitting up a little straighter and wincing again, What's going on in school? Well, Flitwick got rid of Fred and George's swamp, said Jenny. He did it in about three seconds, but he left a tiny patch under the window, and he's roped it off. Why, said Hermione, looking startled. Oh, he said it was a really good bit of magic, said Jenny, shrugging. I think he left it as a monument to Fred and George, <laughs> said Ron, through a mouthful of chocolate. They sent me all these, you know, he told Harry, pointing at the small mountain of frogs beside him. Must be doing all right out at the joke shop, eh? Hermione looked rather disapproving and asked, So has all the trouble stopped now, Dumbledore's back? Yes, said Neville. Everything settled right back down again. I suppose Filch is happy, is he? Asked Ron, popping another chocolate frog card, featuring Dumbledore against his water jug. Not at all, said Jenny. He's really, really miserable, actually. She lowered her voice to whisper. He keeps saying Umbridge was the best thing that ever happened to Hogwarts. All six of them looked around. Professor Umbridge was lying in an in a bed opposite them, gazing up at the ceiling. Dumbledore had strode alone into the forest to rescue her from the centaurs. How he had done it? 
how he had emerged from the trees supporting Professor Umbridge without so much as a scratch on him, nobody knew. And Umbridge was certainly not telling since she had returned to the castle. She had she had not, as far as any of them knew, uttered a single word. Nobody really knew what was wrong with her either. Her usual neat, mousy hair was very untidy and there were bits of twig and leaf in it. But otherwise, she seemed to be quite unscathed. Madame Pomfrey says she's just in shock, whispered Hermione. Sulking, more like it, said Jenny. Yeah, she shows signs of life, <laughs> if you do this, said Ron. And with his tongue, he made a soft clip-clopping noises. Umbridge sat bolt upright, looking wildly around. Anything wrong, Professor? called Madame Pomfrey, poking her head around her office door. No, no, said Umbridge, sinking back into her pillows. No, I must have been dreaming. Hermione and Ginny snuffled their laughter in their bedclothes. Speaking of centaurs, said Hermione, when she had recovered a little, who's the divination t teacher now? Is Ferenz thing? He's got to, said Harry. The other centaurs won't take him back, will they? It looks like he and Trelawney are both going to teach, said Ginny. Bet Dumbledore wishes he could have gotten rid of Trelawney for good, said Ron, now munching on his 14th frog. Mind you, the whole subject's useless, if you ask me. Friends isn't a lot better. How can you say that? Hermione demanded. After we just found out that there are real prophecies? Harry's heart began to race. He had not told Ron, Hermione, or anyone else what the prophecy had contained. Neville had told them it had smashed while Harry was pulling him up the steps in the death room. And Harry had not yet corrected this impression. He was not ready to see their expressions when he told them that he must be either murdered, a murderer, or a victim. There was no other way. It is a pity it broke, said Hermione quietly, shaking her head. Yeah, it is, said Ron. Still, at least you know who never found out what was in it either. Where are you going? He added, looking both surprised and disappointed as Harry stood up. Er, Hagrid's, said Harry. You know, he just got back, and I promised I'd go down and see him and tell him how you two are. All right, then, said Ron grumpily, looking out of the dormitory window at the patch of bright blue sky beyond. Wish we could come. Say hello for us, called Hermione, as Harry proceeded downward. And ask him what's happening about, about his little friend. Harry gave a wave of his hand to show he had heard and understood as he left the dormitory. The castle seemed very quiet even for a Sunday. Everybody was clearly out in the sunny grounds, enjoying the end of their exams and the prospect of the last few days of the term, unhampered by studying or homework. Harry walked slowly along the deserted corridor, peering out of the windows as he went. He could see people messing around in the air over the Quidditch pitch, and a couple of students swimming in the lake accompanied by the giant squid. He was finding it hard at the moment to decide whether he wanted to be with people or not. Whenever he was in company, he wanted to get away, and whenever he was alone, he wanted company. He thought he might really go and visit Hagrid, though. He had not talked to him properly since he had returned. He had just descended the last marble step into the entrance hall when Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle emerged from the door on the right that Harry knew led down to the Slytherin common room. Harry stopped dead. So did Malfoy and the others for a few moments. The only sounds were shouts, laughters, and splashes drifting into the hall from the grounds through the open front doors. Malfoy glanced around. Harry knew he was checking for signs of teachers. Then he looked back at Harry and said in a low voice, You're dead, Potter. Harry raised his eyebrows. Funny, 
he said. You think I'd stop walking around? Malfoy looked angrier than Harry had ever seen him. He felt a kind of detached satisfaction at the sight of his pale, pointed face contorted with rage. You're going to pay, said Malfoy in a voice barely louder than a whisper. I'm going to make you pay for what you've done to my father. Well, I'm terrified now, said Harry sarcastically. I suppose Lord Voldemort's just a warm-up act compared to you three. <laughs> What's the matter? He said for Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle had all looked stricken at the sound of the name. He's your dad's mate, isn't he? Not scared of him, are you? You think you're such a big man, Potter, said Malfoy, advancing now, Crab and Goyle flanking him. You wait. I'll have you. You can't land my father in prison. I thought I just had, said Harry. The Dementors have left Azkaban, said Malfoy quietly. Dad and the others will be out in no time. Yeah, I expect they will, said Harry. Still, at least everyone knows what scumbags they are now. Malfoy's hand flew toward his wand, but Harry was too quick for him. He had drawn his own wand before Malfoy's fingers had even entered the pocket of his robes. Potter! The voice ran across the hall, or across the entrance hall. Snape had emerged from the staircase leading down to his office, and at the sight of him, Harry felt a great rush of hatred beyond anything he felt towards Malfoy. Whatever, Dumbledore said. He would never forgive Snape. Never. What are you doing, Potter? Said Snape coldly as ever, as he strode over to the fort of them. I'm trying to decide what curse to use on Malfoy, sir, said Harry fiercely. Snape stared at him. Put that wand away, he said curtly. Ten points from Grip. Snape looked around. Snape looked toward the giant hourglass on the walls and gave a sneering smile. Ha! Huh. I see there are no longer any points left in the Gryffindor hourglass to take away. In that case, Potter, we will simply have to add some more. Professor McGonagall had just stumped up the stone steps into the castle. She was carrying a tartan carpet bag in one hand and leaning heavily on a walking stick with the other, but otherwise looked quite well. Professor McGonagall, said Snape, striding forward, out of St. Mungo's. Out of St. Mungo's, I see. Yes, Professor Snape, said Professor McGonagall, shrugging off her traveling cloak. I'm quite as good as new. You too, Crab, Goyle. She beckoned them forward imper imperiously, and they came, shuffling their large feet and looking awkward. Here, said Professor McGonagall, thrusting her carpet bag into Crab's chest and her cloak into Goyle's. Take these up to my office for me. They turned and stumped away of the marble staircase. Right then, said Professor McGonagall, looking up at the hourglass glasses on the wall. Well, I think Potter and his friends ought to have 50 points apiece for alerting the world to the return of the you-know-who. What you say, Professor Snape? What? Snapped Snape, though Harry knew he had heard perfectly well. Ah, well, I suppose... So that's 50 points, 50 each for Potter, the two Weasleys, Longbottom, and Miss Granger, said Professor McGonagall, and a shower of rubies fell down into the bottom bulb of the Gryffindor's hourglass as she spoke. Oh, and 50 for Miss Lovegood, I suppose, she added, and a number of sapphires fell into, the, into Ravenclaw's glass. Now you wanted to take 10 from Mr. Potter, I think, Professor Snape, so there we are. A few rubies retreated into the upper bulb, leaving a respectable amount below nevertheless. 
Well, Potter, Malfoy, I think you ought to be outside on a glorious day like this, Professor McGonagall continued briskly. Harry did not need telling twice. He thrust his wand back inside his robes and headed straight for the front doors without another glance at Snape and Malfoy. The hot sun hit him with a blast as he walked over the lawns to, towards Hagrid's cabin. Students lying around on the grass sunbathing, talking, reading the Sunday, Sunday prophet and eating sweets, looked up at him as he passed. Some called out to him, or else waved, clearly eager to show that they, like the prophet, had decided he was something of a hero. Harry said nothing to any of them. He had no idea how much they knew or what happened three days ago, but he had so far avoided being questioned and preferred it that way. He thought at first, when he knocked on Hagrid's cabin door, that he was out, but then Fang came charging around the corner and almost bowled him over with the enthusiasm of his, of his welcome. Hagrid, it transpired, was picking runner beans in his back garden. All right, Harry, he said, beaming. When Harry approached the fence, come in, come in. We'll have a cup of dandelion juice. How's things? Hagrid asked him as they settled down at this at his wooden table with a glass, a piece of ice juice. You're feeling all right, yeah? Harry knew from the look on concern on Hagrid's face that he was not referring to Harry's physical well-being. I'm fine, Harry said quickly, because he could not bear to discuss the thing that he knew was in Hagrid's mind. So, where have you been? Been hiding out in the mountains, said Hagrid. Up in a cave, like Sirius did, when he? Hagrid broke off, cleared his throat gruffly, looked at Harry and took a long draft of juice. Anyway, back now, he said feebly. You, you look better, said Harry, who was determined to keep the conversation moving away from Sirius. What? said Hagrid. Raising a massive hand and feeling his face. Oh, oh yeah. Well, Groppy's loads better. Behave now, loads. Seemed right pleased to see me when I got back to tell you the truth. He's a good lad, really. I've been thinking about trying to find him a lady friend, actually. Harry would normally have tried to persuade Hagrid out of this idea at once. The prospect of a second giant taking a residence in the forest, possibly even wilder and more brutal than Gropp, was positively alarming, but somehow Harry could not muster the energy necessary to argue the point. He was starting to wish he was alone again, and with the idea of hasting his departure, he took several large gulps of his dandelion juice, half emptying his glass. Everyone knows you've been telling the truth now, Harry, said Hagrid softly and unexpectedly. He was watching Harry closely. That's got to be better, hadn't it? Harry shrugged. Look, Hagrid leaned toward him across the table. I knew Sirius longer, longer than you did. He died in battle, and that's the way he would have wanted to go. He didn't want to go at all, said Harry angrily. Hagrid bowed his great shaggy head. Nah, I don't reckon he did, he said quietly. But still, Harry, he was never once to sit around at home and let the other people do the fighting. He could have lived with himself if he hadn't gotten to help. Harry leapt up again. I've got to go and visit Ron and Hermione in the hospital wing, he said mechanically. Oh, said Hagrid, looking rather upset. Oh, all right then. Harry, take care of yourself then, and drop back if you gotta, gotta mow. Yeah, right. Harry crossed to the door as fast as he could and pulled it open. 
He was out in the sunshine again before Hagrid had finished saying goodbye and walked across the lawn. Once again, people called out to him as he passed. He closed his eyes for a few moments, wishing they would all vanish, that he could open his eyes and find himself alone in the grounds. A few days ago, before his exams had finished, he had seen the vision of Voldemort have planted in his mind. He would have given almost anything for the wizarding world to know that he had been telling the truth for them to believe that Voldemort was back and know that he was neither a liar nor mad. Now, however, he walked a short way around the lake, sat down on his bank, sheltered from the grave, from the gra- from the gaze of passerby behind a tangle of shrubs and stared out over the gleaming water thinking. Perhaps the reason he wanted to be alone was because he had felt isolated from everybody since he talked with since his talk with Dumbledore. An invisible barrier separated him from the rest of the world. He was, he had always been a marked man. It was just that he had never really understood what that meant. And yet, sitting here on the edge of the lake, with the terrible weight of grief dragging at him, with the loss of Sirius so raw and fresh inside, he could not muster any great sense of fear. It was sunny, and the grounds around him were full of laughing people, even though he felt a distant from them as though he belonged to a different race. It was still very hard to believe, as he sat here, that his life must include or end in murder. He sat there for a long time, gazing out at the water, trying not to think about his godfather to remember that it was directly across from here on the opposite bank that Sirius had collapsed, trying to fend off a hundred Dementors. The sun had fallen before he realized that he was cold. He got up and returned to the castle, wiping his face on his sleeve as he went. Ron and Hermione left the hospital wing completely cured three days before the end of term. Hermione showed signs of wanting to talk about Sirius, but Ron tended to make hushing noises every time she mentioned his name. Harry was not sure whether or not he wanted to talk about his godfather yet. His wishes varied with his mood. He knew one thing, though. Unhappy as he felt at the moment, he would greatly miss Hogwarts in a few days' time when he was back at number four, Privet Drive, even though he now understood exactly why he had to return there every summer. He did not feel any better about it. Indeed, he had never dreaded his return more. Professor Umbridge left Hogwarts the day before the term. It seemed that she had crept out of the hospital wing during dinner time evidently hoping to depart undetected, but unfortunately for her, she met Peeves on the way, who seized his last chance to do as Fred had instructed and chased her gleefully from the premises. Whacking her alternatively with a walking stick and a sock full of chalk, many students ran out into the entrance hall to watch her running away down the path, and the heads of houses tried only half-heartedly to restrain their pupils. Indeed, Professor McGonagall sank back into her chair at the staff table after a few feeble remonstrances and was clearly heard to express a regret that she could not run cheering after Umbridge herself, because Peeves had borrowed her walking stick. Their last evening at school arrived. Most people had finished packing and were already heading down to the end-of-term feast, but Harry had not even started. Just do it tomorrow, said Ron, who is waiting by the door of their dormitory. Come on, I'm starving. I won't be long. Look, you you go ahead. But when the dormitory door closed behind Ron, 
Harry made no effort to speed up his packing. The very last thing he wanted to do was to attend the end-of-term feast. He was worried that Dumbledore would make some sort of reference, make some reference to him in his speech. He was sure to mention Voldemort's return. He had talked to them about it last year, after all. Harry pulled some crumpled robes out of the very bottom of his trunk to make way for folded ones, and as he did so, noticed a badly wrapped package lying in the corner of it. He could not think what it was doing there. He bent down, pulled it out from underneath his trainers, and examined it. He realized what it was within seconds. Sirius had given it to him just inside the front door of 12 Grimlaw's place. Use it if you need me, all right? Harry sank down into his bed, onto his bed and unwrapped the package. Out fell a small square mirror. It looked old. It was certainly dirty. Harry held it up to his face and saw his own reflection looking back at him. He turned the mirror over. There on the reverse side was a scribbled note from Sirius. This is a two-way mirror. I've got the other. If you need to speak to me, just say my name into it. You'll appear in my mirror, and I'll be able to talk in yours. James and I used to use them when we were in separate detentions. And Harry's heart began to race. He remembered seeing his dad he remembered seeing his dead parents in the mirror of Erised four years ago. Arised four years ago. Yeah, Erised four years ago. He was going to be able to talk to Sirius again right now. He knew it. He looked around to make sure there was nobody else there. The dormitory was quite empty. He looked back at the mirror, raised it in front of his face with trembling hands and said loudly and clearly, Sirius! His breath misted the surface of the glass. He held the mirror even closer, excitement flooding through him, but the eyes blinking back at him through the fog were definitely his own. He wiped the mirror clean again and said so that every syllable rang clearly through the room, Sirius Black. Nothing happened. The frustra frustrated face looking back out of the mirror was still definitely his own. Sirius didn't have his mirror on him when he went through the archway, said a small voice in Harry's head. That's why it's not working. Harry remained quiet still for a moment, then hurled the mirror back into the trunk where it shattered. He had been convinced for a whole shining minute that he was going to see Sirius talk to him again. Disappointment was burning in his throat. He got up and began throwing his things pell-mell into the trunk on top of the broken mirror. But then an idea struck him. A better idea than a mirror. A much bigger, more important idea. How had he never thought of it before? Why had he never asked? He was sprinting out of the dormitory and down the spiral staircase, hitting the walls as he ran and barely noticing. He hurled it across the empty common room through the portrait hole and off along the corridor, ignoring the fat lady who called him, The feast is about to start. You know you're cutting it very fine. But Harry had no intention of going to the feast. How could it be that the place was full of ghosts whenever you didn't need one? Yet now, he ran down the staircases and along the corridors and met nobody either alive or dead. They were all clearly in the Great Hall. Outside his charms classroom, he came to a halt, panting and thinking disconsolately uh, that he would have to wait until later, until after the end of the feast. 
But Jussie had given up hope. He saw it. A translucent somebody drifting across the end of the corridor. Hey! Hey, Nick! Nick! The ghost struck its head back out of the wall, revealing the extravagantly plumbed hat and dangerously wobbling head of Sir Nicholas de Mimsy Porpington. Good evening, he said, withdrawing the rest of his body from the solid stone and smiling at Harry. I am not the only one who's late then, though, he sighed, in rather different senses, of course. Nick, can I ask you something? A most peculiar expression stole over nearly headless Nick's face as he inserted a finger in the stiff riff, stiff ruff at his neck and tugged it a little straighter, apparently to give himself th thinking time. He desisted only when he partially severed neck seemed about to give way completely. Ugh, now, Harry, said Nick, looking discomforted. Can't it wait until after the feast? No, Nick, please, said Harry. I really need to talk to you. Can we go in here? Harry opened the door of the nearest classroom and nearly headless Nick sighed. Very, oh, very well, he said, looking resigned. I can't pretend I haven't been expecting it. Harry was holding the door open in front of him, but he drifted through the wall instead. Expecting what? Harry asked as he closed the door. You to come and find me, said Nick, now gliding over the window and looking out at the darkening grounds. It happens sometimes. And somebody has suffered a loss. Well, said Harry, refusing to be deflected. You're right. I've... I've come to find you, Nick said nothing. It's, said Harry, who was finding this more awkward than he had anticipated. It's just, you're dead, but you're still here, aren't you? Nick sighed and continued to gaze out at the grounds. That's right, isn't it? Harry urged him. You died, but I'm talking to you. You can walk around Hogwarts and everything, can't you? Yes, said nearly headless Nick quietly i walk and talk yes so you came back didn't you said harry urgently people can come back right as ghosts they don't have to disappear completely well he added impatiently when nick continued to say nothing nearly headless nick hesitated and then said not everyone can become a ghost not everyone can come back as a ghost what do you mean said harry quickly only only wizards oh said harry and he almost laughed with relief well that's okay then the person i'm asking about is a wizard so you can come back right nick turned away from the window and looked mournfully at harry he won't come back who serious black said nick but you did said harry angrily you came back you're dead you don't disappear Wizards can leave an imprint of themselves upon the earth to walk palely where their living cells once trod, said Nick miserably. But very few wizards choose that path. Why not, said Harry. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Sirius won't care if it's unusual. He'll come back, I know he will. And so strong was his belief that Harry actually turned his head to check the door, sure, for a split second that he was going to see Sirius, pearly white and transparent, but beaming, walking through it toward him. 
He will not come back, repeated Nick quietly. He will have gone on. What do you mean, gone on, said Harry quickly. Gone on where? Listen, what happens when you die anyways? Where do you go? Why doesn't everyone come back? Why isn't this place full of ghosts? Why? I cannot answer, said Nick. You're dead, aren't you? said Harry exasperatedly. Who can answer better than you? I was afraid of death, said Nick. I chose to remain behind. I sometimes wonder whether I oughtn't to have. Well, that is neither here nor there. In fact, I am neither here nor there. Here nor there. He gave a small sad chuckle. <laughs> I know nothing of secrets of death, Harry, for I chose my feeble imitation of life instead. I believe learned wizards study the matter in the Department of Mysteries. Don't talk to me about that place, said Harry fiercely. I am sorry not to have been more help, said Nick gently. Well, well, do excuse me, the feast, you know. And he left the room, leaving Harry there alone, gazing blankly at the wall through which Nick had disappeared. Harry felt almost as though he had lost his godfather all over again, and losing the hope that he might be able to see or speak to him once more. He walked slowly and miserably back up through the empty castle, wondering whether he would ever feel cheerful again. He had turned the corner toward the fat lady's corridor when he saw somebody up ahead fastening a note to a board on the wall. A second glance showed him that it was Luna. There were no good hiding places nearby. She was bound to have heard his footsteps, and in any case, Harry could hardly muster the energy to avoid anyone in the moment. Hello, said Luna vaguely, glancing around at him as she stepped back from the notice. How come you're not at the feast? Harry asked. Well, I've lost my possessions, said Luna serenely. People take them and hide them, you know. But, as it's the last night, I really do need them back. So I've been putting up signs. She gestured towards the notice board up upon which, sure enough, she had pinned a list of all her missing books and clothes with a plea for their return. An odd feeling arose in Harry, an emotion quite different from the anger and grief that had filled him since Sirius's death. It was a few moments before he realized that he was feeling sorry for Luna. How come people hide your stuff? He asked her, frowning. Oh, well, she shrugged. I think they think I'm a bit odd, you know. Some people call me Looney Lovegood, actually. Harry looked at her, and the new feeling of pity intensified rather painfully. That's no reason to take your things, he said flatly. Do you want help finding them? Oh, no, she said, smiling at him. They'll come back. They always do in the end. It was just that I wanted to pack tonight, anyway. Why aren't you at the feast? Harry shrugged. Just didn't feel like it. Just didn't feel like it, no, said Luna, observing him with those oddly misty, protuberant eyes. I don't suppose you do. That man the Death Eaters killed was your godfather, wasn't he? Jenny told me. Harry nodded curtly, but found that for some reason he did not mind Luna talking about Sirius. He had just remembered that she too could see Thestrals. Have you... He began, I mean, who... Has anyone you've known ever died? 
Yes, said Luna simply. My mother, she was quite extraordinary, witch. You know, but she did like to experiment, and one of her spells went rather badly wrong one day. I was nine. I'm sorry, Harry mumbled. Yes, it was rather horrible, said Luna conversationally. I still feel very sad about it sometimes, but I have still got dad. And anyways, it's not as though I'll never see mum again, is it? Er, isn't it? Said Harry uncertainly. She shook her head in disbelief. Oh, come on. You heard them. Just behind the veil, didn't you? You mean, in that room with the archway? They were just lurking out of sight, that's all. You heard them? They looked at each other. Luna was smiling slightly. Harry did not know what to say or think. Luna believed so many extraordinary things, yet he had been sure he had heard voices behind the veil, too. Are you sure you don't want me to help you look for your stuff, he said. Oh, no, said Luna. No, I think I'll just go down and have some pudding and wait for it all to turn up. It always does in the end. Well, have a nice holiday, Harry. Yeah, yeah, you too. She walked away from him, and as he watched her go, he found that the terribly found that the terrible weight in his stomach seemed to have lessened slightly. The journey home on the Hogwarts Express the next day was eventful in several ways. Firstly, Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle, who had clearly been waiting all week for the opportunity to strike without teacher witnesses, attempted to ambush Harry halfway down the train as he made his way back from the toilet. The attack might have succeeded had it not been for the fact they unwittingly chose to stage their attack right outside a compartment full of DA members who saw what was happening through the glass and rose as one to rush to Harry's aid. By the time Ernie Macmillan, Hannah Abbott, Susan Bones, Justin Finch Fletchley, Anthony Goldstein, Terry Boot, and Terry Boot had finished using a wide variety of hexes and jinxes, Harry had taught them Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle resembled nothing so much as three gigantic slugs squeezed into Hogwarts uniforms as Harry, Ernie, and Justin hoisted them into luggage rack and left them there to ooze. I must say, I'm looking forward to seeing Malfoy's mother's face when he gets off the train, said Ernie, with some satisfaction as he watched Malfoy squirm above him. Ernie had never quite got over the indignity of Malfoy docking points from Hufflepuff during his brief spell as a member of the Inquisitorial Squad. Goyle's mum will be really pleased, though, said Ron, who had come to investigate the source of the commotion. He's loads better looking now. Anyways, anyway, Harry, the food trolley just stopped if you want anything. Harry thanked the others and accompanied Ron back to their compartment, where he bought a large pile of cauldron cakes and pumpkin pasties. Hermione was reading the Daily Prophet again. Jenny was doing a quiz in the Quibbler, and Neville was stroking his Membulus Membletonia which had grown a great deal over the year, and now made odd crooning noises when touched. Harry and Ron, while away most of the journey playing wizard's chess, while Hermione read out snippets from the daily from the prophet. It was now full of articles about how to repel Dementors, attempts by the Ministry to track down Death Eaters, and hysterical letters claiming that the writer had seen Lord Voldemort walking past their house that very morning. 
It hasn't really started yet, sighed Hermione gloomingly, folding up the newspaper again. But it won't be long now. Hey, Harry, said Ron, nodding toward the glass window onto the corridor. Harry looked around. Cho is passing, accompanied by Marietta Edgecombe, who is wearing a balaclava. His and Cho's eyes met for a moment. Cho blushed and kept walking. Harry looked back down to the chessboard just in time to see one of their pawns chased off its square by Ron's knight. What's her going on with you and her anyways? Ron asked quietly. Nothing, said Harry truthfully. I heard she's going out with someone else now, said Hermione tentatively. Harry was surprised to find that this information did not hurt at all. Wanting to impress Cho seemed to belong to a past that was no longer quite connected with him. So much of what he had wanted before Sirius's death felt that way these days. The week that had elapsed since he had last seen Sirius seemed to have lasted much, much longer. It stretched across two universes, the one with Sirius in it and the one without. You're well out of it, mate, said Ron forcefully. I mean, she's quite good looking and all that, but you want someone a bit more cheerful. She's probably cheerful enough with someone else, said Harry, shrugging. Who's she with now anyway? Ron asked Hermione, but it was Jenny who answered. Michael Corner, she said. Michael? But, said Ron, craning around in his seat to stare at her. But you were going out with him. Not anymore, said Jenny resoutly. He didn't like Gryffindor beating Ravenclaw at Quidditch, and he got really sulky, so I ditched him and he ran off to comfort Cho instead. She scratched her nose absently with the end of her quill, turned the quibbler upside down, and began marking her answers. Ron looked highly delighted. Well, always thought he was a bit of an idiot, he said, prodding his queen forward toward Harry's quivering castle. Good for you. Just choose someone. Better. Next time. He cast Harry an oddly furative look as he said it. Well, I've chosen Dean Thomas. Would you say he's better? Asked Jenny vaguely. What? Shouted Ron, unpending the chessboard. Crookshanks went plunging after the pieces and Hedwig and Pidge Widgen twittered and hooted angrily from overhead. As the train slowed down and approached the King's Cross, Harry thought he had never wanted to leave it less. He even wondered fleetingly what would happen if he simply refused to get off, but remained stubbornly sitting there until the 1st of September, when it would take him back to Hogwarts. When it finally puffed to a standstill, however, he lifted down Hedwig's cage and prepared to drag his trunk from the train as usual. When the ticket inspector signaled to him, Ron and Hermione thought it uh, Ron and Hermione that it was safe to walk through the magical barrier between platforms nine to ten, however, he found a surprise waiting for him waiting awaiting him on the other side, a group of people standing there to greet him whom he had not expected at all. There was Mad-Eye, Moody, looking quite as sinister, with his bowler hat pulled low over his magical eye, as if, as he would have done without it, his gnarled hands clutching a long staff, his body wrapped in a vol- voluminous traveling cloak. Tonk stood just behind him, her bright bubblegum pink hair gleaming in the sunlight flittering through the dirty glass station ceiling wearing heavily patched jeans and a bright purple t-shirt 
bearing the legend the weird sisters next to tonkin tonks was lupin his face pale his hair graying a long and threadbare overcoat covering his shabby jumper and trousers at the front of the group stood mr and miss weasley dressed in their muggle best and fred and george who were both wearing a brand new jackets and some lurid green scaly material run jenny called miss weasley hurrying forward and hugging her children tightly oh and harry dear how are you fine lied harry as she pulled him into a tight embrace over her shoulder he saw ron goggling at the twins new clothes what are they supposed to be he asked pointing at the jackets finest dragon skin little bro said fred giving his zip a little tweak business is booming and we thought we'd treat ourselves hello harry said lupin as miss weasley let go of harry and turned to greet hermione hi said harry i didn't expect what are you all doing here well said lupin with a slight smile we thought we might have a little chat with your aunt and uncle before letting them take you home i don't know if that's a good idea said harry at once oh i think it is growled moody who had limped a little closer that'll be them will it potter he pointed with his thumb over his shoulder his magical eye was evidently peering through the back of his head and his bowler hat harry leaned an inch or two the left to see where mad eye was pointing and there sure enough were three durs were the three dursleys who looked positively appalled to see harry's reception committee ah oh, harry said mr weasley turning from hermione's parents whom he had been greeting enthusiastically and who were taking it in turns to hug hermione well shall we do it then yeah i reckon so arthur said moody he and mr weasley took the lead across the station toward the place where dursley stood apparently rooted to the floor hermione disengaged herself gently from her mother to join the group good afternoon said mr weasley pleasantly to uncle vernon coming to a halt in front of him you might remember me my name's arthur weasley as mr weasley was single-handedly demolished most of the dursley's living room two years previously Harry would have been very surprised if Uncle Vernon had forgotten him. Sure enough, Uncle Vernon turned a deeper shade of poos and glared at Mr. Weasley, but chose not to say anything, partly perhaps because the Dursleys were outnumbered two to one. Aunt Petunia looked both frightened and embarrassed. She kept glancing around as though terrified somebody she knew would see her in such company. Dudley, meanwhile, seemed to be trying to look small and insignificant a feat at which he was failing extravagantly we thought we'd just have a few words with you about harry said mr weasley still smiling yeah growled moody about how he's treated when he's at your place uncle vernon's mustache seemed to bristle with indignation possibly because the bowler hat gave him the entirely mistaken impression that he was dealing with the kindred spirit he addressed himself to moody i am not aware that it is any of your business what goes on in my house i expect that you're not aware of would fill several books dursley growled moody anyway that's not the point interjected tonks whose pink hair seemed to offend aunt petunia more than all the rest put together for she closed her eyes rather than look at her the point is 
we find out you've been horrible to Harry. And, make no mistake, we'll hear about it, added Lupin pleasantly. Yes, said Mr. Weasley. Even if you won't let Harry use the felly tone. Telephone, whispered Hermione. Yeah, if we get any hint that Potter's been mistreated in any way, you'll have us to answer to, said Moody. Uncle Vernon swelled ominously. His sense of outrage seemed to outweigh even his fear of this bunch of oddballs. Are you threatening me, sir? He said so loudly that passerby actually turned to stare. Yes, I am, said Mad-Eye, who seemed rather pleased that Uncle Vernon had grasped this fact so quickly. And do I look like a kind man who can be intimidated? Barked Uncle Vernon. Well, said Moody, pushing back his bowler hat to reveal his sinisterly revolving magical eye. Uncle Vernon leapt back backward in horror and collided painfully with a luggage trolley. Yes, I'd have to say you do, Dursley. He turned away from Uncle Vernon to survey Harry. So, Potter... Give us a shout if you need us. If we don't hear from you for three days in a row, we'll send someone along. Aunt Petunia whimpered piteously. It could not have gone. It could not have been plainer that she was thinking of what the neighbors would say if they caught sight of these people marching up the garden path. Bye then, Potter," said Moody, grasping Harry's shoulder for a moment with a gnarled hand. "Take care, Harry," said Lupin quietly. "Keep in touch." Very well. Have you away from there as soon as we can, Miss Weasley whispered, hugging him again. We'll see you soon, mate, said Ron anxiously, shaking Harry's hand. Really soon, Harry, said Hermione earnestly. We promise. Harry nodded. He somehow could not find the words to tell them what it meant to him. To see them all ranged there on his side. Instead, he smiled, raised a hand in farewell, turned around, and led the way out of the station toward the sunlit street with Uncle Vernon, Aunt Petunia, and Dudley hurrying along in his wake. And that is the biggest book in the series. All 870 pages of it. (laughs) So, yeah, man, uh, this chapter, it's... You know, the biggest thing I took away from this chapter, I would say, though, is you really feel how much Harry is grieving um, for Sirius all the way to the point of he's willing to ask, like, how these ghosts come back. Right. And quick question to you, like, is it really them or is it just like an imprint, like a portrait? Like, is it really that person? And I guess they bound their soul there. Or is it just like an imprint of a person that's walking along the earth? Well, it said it's an imprint, like the in the book. So I mean, it's, and they seem to have its own memories because you know, remember when Nearly Headless Nick kind of gave the recap of how he was killed with that blunt axe back in Chamber of Secrets. So right. I feel like yeah, it's just like an imprint of the person's life and what they lived, and that's why I said they can only like trot on where they were, you know, like you know, wherever they've known in their life. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's just kind of like more of an imprint than anything. Yeah, but uh, this one was pretty much, you know, what I took away from it was just wrapping up everything, really. And uh, But the biggest thing here is you're really seeing how, you know, this is really the first person. I mean, of course, he lost his parents, but he didn't really know his parents 
like growing uh, relationship with them like of course you're always close to your parents but you know he just knows like how they were killed really and from what he's seen in the mirror of Eraset and that sort of thing but this was really like the first I would say of course he has Miss Weasley and Arthur but that's different like Sirius was really the first father figure I would say he had and you know it's this is that real book where you see real emotion and it definitely we have taken the turn to the adult Harry Potter um, versus just being a children's novel and um, that's one of the big things about it and I'll say some things why I think it's the best but what do you think about that chapter by the way just to wrap it all up here yeah, I mean, there was a, there was like only a key three things that like I wanted to you know just highlight, and one of them you already said like you know him trying to see about like what's the possibilities of Sirius coming back as a ghost, and I found it interesting that like basically Nick was like, listen, in, in more or less words, he didn't say this directly, but he's like, I was kind of scared of going on and moving on. Sirius was a brave man. He's not going to be someone who would come back as a ghost. He will mm-hmm. have gone on. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, on top of that, like. Harry and Luna seem to have be building a really cool friendship because, yeah. you know, they can kind of see some of the things. Like, she can see Thestrals, he can too. She could hear the, the people behind the veal, so could he. So it's like, you know, and that's why he said, like, I, he didn't even feel weird about it. He said he felt like that ball of stress kind of loosen from talking to Luna. Like, he felt okay with talking to her about it, you know. So I thought that was pretty cool that, you know, an unlikely friendship. Because, you know, when they meet her, she's kind of quirky. She reads a magazine upside down, has a wand <laughs> in, behind her ear. Just a little strange, you know, believes in weird things. Like... But, you know, their, their friendship is kind of cool. And, like, the fact that she was, like, the only one that wasn't a Gryffindor that went with him to help in the Department of Mysteries type of deal. Yeah. To save Sirius was really cool. So that that really showed me a little progression of their character development there. Um, also, the the Mad-Eye Moody, Tonks, Lupin, and Mr. and Mrs. Weasley going to talk to the Dursleys. Finally, man. It, it, it was overdue. <laughs> was awesome. Like, they needed to have that conversation. Like, yeah. listen, like... You know, because I think Dumbledore finally was like, like, let it go. He's like, listen, now everything's out on the table. We want to make sure he's treated as best he could. Because I think he was trying to keep everything in the dark. He doesn't want to keep Harry in the dark anymore. He saw what happened. He's resolute to like, okay, we're going to include him on, you know, our plans from now on. So when they showed up and they're like, listen, we're going to talk to him. If we don't hear from you in three days, we'll send somebody along. Like, that was like, you know, he was so in the dark at the beginning of this book. That's like night and day different. So we're starting to see, you know, what's going to happen going forward. It's not going to be the same as what happened at the beginning of this book. And that's really what I, I took from this chapter. And, you know, like you said, closing out the biggest book in the series, you know, and I know that we still got our top five favorite magical creatures <laughs> to go through our plot holes, and you've got, you know, your your um, reasons on why this is your, your favorite book. So we'll probably go into a little bit of that. But, yeah, it was uh, it was a good, clean ending to the novel. Yeah, it, it that was funny they mentioned that though because it reminded me of in Prisoner of Azkaban where he blew up like his chimney. It's like why that was in Goblet of Fire. Yeah, that was yeah, in oh, Goblet of Fire. Oh, Goblet of Fire. Yeah, yeah, when he went to go bring him for the Quidditch World Cup, they came down the fireplace and blew That's it. That's right. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm getting my books mixed up a little <laughs> bit here. You traveled so far, so fast. <laughs> right. Um, but why would you not remember that? Like, dude blew up half your house. Of course I'm going to remember that. But, yeah, no, that that's good. But, um, yeah, it's just this book, man, it was a beast. I'm not going to lie. Like, this was not uh, – I mean, it's – of course, you know, Harry Potter, it's not like, you know, reading Lord of the Rings or something as far as, like, like a hard, hard read. But, I mean, it's a – 
it's a beast uh it really is and there's a lot of detail in this book and you find out a lot and uh you know just the way the characters we've seen them grow all the way from the beginning is just really really great that's what makes this series great is you really do get to grow and watch these characters um develop from you know the time they really are you know 10 and 11 to i guess true like i mean they're like i guess not pre-teens now they're like 14 13 but i mean we'll get bro to... it goes by the book how do you keep messing this up it goes by the book <laughs> five is 15 book four mm. is 14 two like, like well, it just goes by the number man. it's not hard <laughs> like it's, 13, he's 15 14, years old 15, whatever he's whatever it goes by the book <laughs> <laughs> definitely goes yeah by it. but you see my point whatever yes. they can drink <laughs> they're getting buttered yeah. here you know they're slipping that vodka in there we know That's luna right. was <laughs> yeah the fire whiskey yeah, yeah do those magical creatures yeah. you want to kick us off so I, I want to go to the other ones. That, I want to do the non-fun stuff first. Like get the plot holes out of the way. Get that oh, out of yeah. there. Then we'll do like Good the call. magical creatures. So yeah. the one thing, like, and I mentioned a couple of these. So I don't, we don't need to go in deep depth on them. But like when they were closing the ceiling of doors, like Coloportus and like how the Aloha actually worked and opened that door. But then the Death Eaters had to lunge against it like five pages later. Made no right. sense. Like, yeah. you know, that was just a complete difference. Um, like I said, Neville's wand, how it's his dad's, like, you know, that's a prized possession. He's not just going to kick that to the side. And they, oh, that was my dad's wand. My grandma's going to be mad, but all right, let's keep going. Like, you know, you're going to put that in your robe. You're going like, to put it in, like, your your belt. Whatever you can do to get that, you know, keep it, you know. Um, the, the like We talked about the fountain, some parts of it breaking with certain spells, other parts not breaking from other spells. And then there's this mm-hmm. one here that I didn't mention, but I'm glad I wrote it down here because I didn't want to forget it. The fact that you can just apparate in and out of the Ministry of Magic, but not a school. Like, you can't apparate in and out of Hogwarts, a school, but the most important wizarding building, like the White House, the White House of the magical community, you can just apparate in and out of. Like Dumbledore did with the Death Eaters. I remember they were just, like, yeah. dissolving, and, and Dumbledore even said, like, he had to put an anti-disapparating jinx on the Death Eaters in the Death Chamber so they couldn't escape. So you can just apparate in and out of the ministry, and it's fine, but you can't do it to a school teaching children. All right, that's interesting. <laughs> but that's that's what I wanted to bring up there. And then the last one I have is who won the House Cup? Nobody knows. All it said was that Gryffindor had a respectable amount of rubies in there after McGonagall added the points. No one finds out who won the House Cup this year. Yeah, Never that's, for, that was that, What the up. world? <laughs> like, we get no closure on that. So those are the yeah. plot holes i found do you have any additional ones on top of that that you found yeah i have a big one and i can answer your question about uh the ministry because we actually answered that in our interesting facts two weeks ago because it uh went into the french ministry of magic so the answer is that's definitely a plot hole because what happened was they started writing fantastic beasts and the reason this was brought up was we were talking about previous dark wizards and um one of them was credence uh, uh, Credence, who was an obscural that, you know, you find out has some history, but um, he was basically being tracked by Gellert Grindelwald, but they have to go to uh, the French Ministry of Magic for the Lestrange family box, which is how this related to Bellatrix Lestrange. Um, well, the French Ministry of Magic is the only Ministry of Magic, so they have an archivist that's actually there that you have to inscribe your name on and with this inscription, when you go inside, it prevents you from being able to apparate and disapparate. 
but this was all developed after the books came out. So that just verifies your whole point. This is literally a, a plot hole. Like, there's no way of getting around that. <laughs> that is definitely a plot hole. Um, the big plot hole I had, so maybe this is answered more in detail later on, but this raises a lot of questions for me. So Crucio is an unforgivable curse, right? Yeah. Through, yeah. So why, when all the ministry people arrived, they were just fucking okay with it, that Harry used it? Like, everything just goes back to normal. He gets a fucking hearing from the Ministry of Magic for using magic outside of school. You're not in school, first of all. You're in London. I don't care if you're in the Ministry or wherever you're at. Maybe they do have special rules. But you're still underage, and you just muttered an unforgivable curse on Bellatrix Lestrange? Why was there no rebuttal to that? Or why was that never explained why was there no consequences to that? Everything's just okay because Harry's upset and shit. I get it. That's fine. But that's literally like she just wanted him to mutter that curse because she's trying to show, J.K. Rowling's trying to show Harry's emotion. But by doing that, you just opened up a bunch of plot holes because the whole idea with three unforgivable curses is they're unforgivable. That doesn't mean the situation. You just had a situation in this book where Dementors... Literally, like, I can, put on I you. can answer that though. Like, it's actually not. Like, I can actually answer that, just okay. because, like, you, like, the ministry doesn't know what you know, what curse specifically that you did if you didn't break a wizarding law. So they have gotten things in the law where you can use it in the Ministry of Magic. We don't mm -hmm. know. We don't know those laws. But think about what happened at the Quidditch World Cup, right? They had to use like that finite, uh, the priority incantatum to figure out if Harry's wand is the one that produced the dark mark. They didn't, they're ministry officials and they didn't know what his, they had to use a, a, a spell to figure out what his last one used. If you think about it, also when Alistair Moody, well the imposter Alistair Moody in Goblet mm -hmm. of Fire was using all those unforgivable curses, okay. like he used them, nothing ever came of that there either, of like him just using it in front of the kids and actually on the kids. And then you can't even tell me that everyone okay. was okay with them using, yeah. like, yeah, I'm going to use the Imperious Curse on the children. That's cool, you guys. Like, no, like, you know, nothing ever came from that either. So it's mm -hmm. like, I don't think they can tell the exact uh, curse that was used, you know, unless it was a breach of using magic uh, underage in the presence of muggles. Because they knew it was, like, expect the, Patro the Patronus charm in the beginning of this book. But, you know, maybe there's rules that you can use magic within the ministry confines, you know, who knows about that but that would make sense to me on why he was able to get away with it because they just wouldn't be able to know that he himself used the unforgivable curse because we've seen other people use them and nothing come of it either like, yeah which which i get that my big thing was like the fact that he was underage i guess there must be like specific laws with that involved like you said but like why would they not be able to track it in the ministry if they could go track it in london when he was in an alleyway near Privet Drive. That was kind of just my question there. Mm -hmm. It's probably looking too much into it. Honestly, it kind of felt like, you know, I, she really wanted him to use it, I guess, with the whole stuff with, you know... Righteous anger. Year, yeah, it was sorry. like righteous I, anger, for sure. Yeah, no, I'm just saying, it was like, if he wanted to use it as like a show of righteous anger, like people... That's why she had... She distinguished the difference between using it for torturable pleasure and using a righteous anger. She's like, you know, righteous anger is not going to hurt me for long, Potter. Let me show you how it's really done. Mm -hmm. So it's like, 
you know, I also think maybe that's a part of it too, is the intent behind the curse as well. You know, right. that could be definitely be a part of it because, you know, maybe, you know, Moody using it as a teaching thing, you know, maybe that's possible. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But, you know, they, they, they could tell. And also, remember, Dumbledore did sit down and speak with Fudge right after all that happened. So maybe that's something that came up in their conversation, too, talking about everything that happened, you know, from when the, the kids arrived at the Ministry of Magic to where it is. And maybe Dumbledore smoothed things over there as well. That could have possibly be a possibility as well. So Yeah. No, I, I, I think that could be the case. It almost felt like she just got, like, sick of writing, <laughs> like, hand wrote it, and then I was like, okay, I'm done. Like, with the whole, like, house points, like, nah, fuck it, I'm already past it. Yeah, where are the <laughs> like, house I'm points, I'm not man. editing that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but that was the only major plot hole I had, which wasn't really, like, a major one. It was just, like, um, like, you brought up some really good points there, but as far as, like, the chapters we covered, that was my big, like, plot hole there. I was like, you know, you just... I, and I guess like Bellatrix Lestrange, of course, isn't going to be like he used this curse on me. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You have to have an accuser and then like stand a full trial and all that stuff. You know, like yeah, like like back in the old days, like when people were like had to go on trial and say they were underneath the Imperius curse or like this is what happened. Like yeah, exactly. You have to be accused, I guess, before you know they're going to just take it upon themselves. The only thing that would have made something is as the underage portion of it. But you know, if you if they have some sort of law that we're not privy to that you can use magic inside the confines of the ministry of magic then who knows but, yeah yeah but, I mean, then, but that's all i had for plot holes though cool then i'll just knock out my one quick interesting fact because you're not doing an interesting fact this time you're going to do your reasons why it's your favorite book yeah yeah well i have just one interesting fact but it's really quick it's like the last one Cool. So um, what we'll do is I'll say my quick interesting yeah. fact. You'll do yours. We'll do our rankings, and then you'll finish off on why order is your favorite. Is that what? Yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. Excellent. So my interesting fact. It sucks because you know, guys, I always want to be conclusive with everything, and I don't like inconclusive stuff, especially like we were talking about the Voldemort Dumbledore thing. Well, my uh, my interesting fact is actually on the curse that Antonin Dolohov used on Hermione. Like, remember when she like silenced him, and he used that slashing movement, and the purple like flame came off and bushed it across her chest well there's no there's because the words weren't said the incantations unknown we don't know exactly what the curse is but there's a theory and again like i said this is all inconclusive so it sucks i'm sorry i'm giving you guys nothing but this is something to think about to, to formulate your own decision and the thought is is that is a curse that he himself created and it's it's supported by the fact that he used it once on hermione used it on Harry, but he blocked the majority of it, and then he may have used it in Deathly Hallows. I'm not going to say where or against whom, because that could give stuff away. But it's thought to be a, a spell of his own making. And we learn in the next book, there's wizards who can create their own spells, because someone makes their own spell next book, you know, that we find out a lot about. Yeah. So I just thought that was really cool, that there's, uh, you know, this Death Eater, who also was a badass. He's the one that killed the Pruitts. He knocked, you know, like, he, he was knocking... You know, order members out left and right. Like he was—he's a, a beast. Antonin Dolohov is a monster, at, at, you know, in terms of like being a skilled wizard at hurting others. And you know, uh, the, the fact that he could have possibly created his own dangerous spell that like can either incapacitate, potentially kill people without leaving a mark, similar to the Avada Kedavra killing curse, but like with like just a little less potency. And since it's his own curse. It might not be one of the things, it's not unforgivable, so it's not like, you know, he can't stand trial for that curse. So I just thought it was really interesting that he possibly created his own, uh, from what we saw, even though we don't have a conclusion on it, 
it's the the evidence supports it and that's the only thing i wanted to say there for my interesting fact that's wild too to think about like even like imagine someone that is on the good side that actually creates their own spells like how that even works like going through the like legal process of registering something like that that's that's wild that's awesome man that's great stuff um mine's really easy just it's on cauldron cakes because remember harry grabbed some cauldron cakes and pasties um so they were actually a lot of people don't know the uh i guess the what you would call i guess the confectionery not confinery confectionery that makes them is actually a company in the wizarding world in pakistan a lot of people don't know that so uh they were established they're called the quiz bash uh uh Quinity uh, Confectionery, and they were produced cauldron cakes in 1854 in Pakistan. Uh, they can be bought at Honeydukes, and they can also be bought on the Hogwarts trolley. Actually, Bathilda Bagshot was often known to make her own. If you do want to make your own, it's really easy. Uh, all you would do is you can buy a reusable black cauldron just around the Halloween store, um, use orange and yellow icing. Uh, you can mix butter into it so it makes the icing thicker uh, and that actually makes the flames and then it's just chocolate cake but you can buy these actually um, and they'll have the box of the cauldron uh, quiz bash cauldron confectionery on it and you can buy them from the wizarding world at harry potter over in orlando and you can buy them in the wizarding world of harry potter in california um, both at the candy stores there and they're $9.95 if you want to go get one. So do that and then type in that number I told you. That's pretty much your whole day there after standing in lines. <laughs> yeah. That's and awesome, yeah, that's, dude. That's it, man. <laughs> Quick and easy. I love it. So now we're going to get into our top five magical creatures. I want to apologize to the audience ahead of time. They, this was just a weak book for magical creatures. Was. I was telling Chase, I only saw like, I only found like seven of them in total. So like, you know, it's not going to be our strongest list, but you know, mm -hmm. the, once we do the one at the very end after Deathly Hells, where we do top five all time throughout the whole series, that's going to be a phone for you. But this one in this book, it's a little weak. So we'll, we'll do what we <laughs> usually do. We'll start at five, work our way up to number one. I'll go first. My number five top magical creature in Harry Potter and the Order of Phoenix is the Doxies. And the Doxies we found early on in the in number 12 Grimmauld Place. The reason why they made my list is because they have that uh, the Doxy Venom that Fred and George used for their scoving snack boxes boxes to like you know have certain effects for the people they can get out of class. So because awesome. they had yeah, exactly. They had like some tie to my my favorite character. Uh, there's the, I, I had to put them on my list. They don't do anything crazily cool, but the fact that they have that venom and it causes certain reactions uh, made it enough to get on the list for this book. So that's my number five, the Doxies. What's your number five? Yeah, my number five was like, it made it on the list, but I tried not to put it on the list, but there wasn't like, for instance, like the Chimera egg that was mentioned and stuff, those creatures... Um, they really weren't mentioned enough to really be considered magical creatures in this book, you know? So the reason, so I put number five was bow truckles. Uh, the reason why was because a lot of people don't know. I actually talked about them on interesting facts. They have uh, two fingers that are actually used to scratch out their opposer's eyes if they're ever like um, threatened. <laughs> and they can be known as like people will 
use them as like weapons and stab people in the eye with them so that was cool but uh they just got a good history i mean they were in the uh care for magical creatures class a lot but actually newt scamander was like huge on bow truckles and there was actually even an island in hogwarts that he used to study them on so i felt like you know i wasn't the biggest fan but enough to make the list <laughs> that's what i put them as so number five they made mine too up up the list a little bit so spoiler alert mine has that on there just not quite yet so there you um, go. my number four uh, magical creature is the krupp i actually have my interesting fact about that uh basically it looks like a jack russell taylor with like a forked tail the reason mm-hmm. why i made the list is number one i'm a big dog guy right so last week was my dog's sixth birthday nala she's a husky so everyone wish her a happy birthday her birthday was on march 14th so that's great there um i'm a big dog guy and the fact that they are loyal towards wizards but aggressive towards muggles i thought that's funny i enjoy that so they made the list for this book again because you know not too much craziness going on in the magical creature realm for order of the phoenix so for me number four was the krupp what do you got for number four yeah, man, it's funny. We're always kind of right there with each other. <laughs> Number four, I put Doxies. Same thing for the Doxie <laughs> side. You know, they're those beetle, have those beetle-like wings, and they kind of have those raw, uh, like, sharp teeth with the venom. And, it, you know, they mentioned, like, their queens can actually lay up to 500 Doxie eggs at once that I mentioned is how they infest houses. But, like, because there's so much kind of, like, gremlin, like, demon fairies and uh, their venom and stuff, like, I put them at number four because I thought that was very uh, creative when they were at 12 Grimwald's place, like, spraying them. I called it basically bleach, <laughs> like the Doxies side bleach. <laughs> so, yeah, man, and Doxies made my list at number four. Awesome. For me, number three is the Bow Truckles. So a lot of what you mentioned, but on top of the fact that they only live in trees that will become wands later on, like the trees that can be used for wands. So nice. and they are useful, you know. They, they can they can defend themselves with their long, like sharp fingers and defend themselves against uh, potential predators. And they protect the trees that will later become to be used as wands. Uh, you know, so for me, that was cool. they made it up the list because of how important, like the importance of the trees that they protect are. Because without the wand trees, there's no wands for wizards to channel their you know abilities. So, no, bow chuckles no. get number three spot for me. What you got for number three? Yeah, I mean. Uh- my number three wasn't really important. I just thought they were cool. Uh, I got the fire crab, uh, but it mentions, like, remember they had to feed and clean out a fire crab without sustaining serious burns during their owl's exam. Um, yeah. But, yeah, basically what they are is they have, like, this multicolored, like, shell on the back with the jewel, and they shoot you with fire out like the back of their ass basically is what they do so it reminded me almost of like the blast ended scroots so i was like imagine if you saw like a big ass one of those in like the triwizard tournament maze yeah (laughs) so yeah so i gave uh fire crabs number three man cool my number two on the list uh thestrals you know like they're they're my Mm -hmm. second favorite like Mainly because we don't like, like we don't see them do a whole lot outside of we get to see like how great their sense of direction really is. All Harry does is say, you know, looking to go to the Ministry of Magic, uh, visitors entrance in London, and they take them right there. They are cool. They're invisible to people who haven't to anybody who hasn't seen somebody die. That's an interesting thing. The way they look, also kind of like a reptilian horse. 
Like they look yes. really, really cool and interesting, and they've got that ability to turn. Like you know, they're, they're invisible to everyone else, you know, and they've got a great sense of direction. We'd love to see them in action more to see if, like you know how they would you know behave if someone attacked them or in like an actual battle. From what we see of them though, they're still really cool. They just weren't enough to make the number one spot on my list, so they hit at number two for me. The Thestrals. What do you got for number two? Number two, I'm sure it's probably your number one, and we swapped. <laughs> is uh, Giants, man. <laughs> so I thought you know Guap here. I didn't wasn't a big fan of the way he looked in the film, but <laughs> the book it was badass, man. You really get to see the giants and how described too as like in the book of like how fierce and really violent they are just by Hagrid's story, you know, and then you get to see it for yourself. First with Hagrid during the astronomy exam, kicking ass against like wizards, punching him in the face, throwing Fang on the back of his shoulder, and then Guap like uh you know takes the icing on the cake here when he was you know rescuing hermione and and harry and he was taking all the arrows to the face with the blood and it described him as being 16 feet tall and it's the first time we really got to like dive more into giants and like hear like how how violent they are about how you know the for instance those groups that hagrid like went to visit how they were killing each other and one like would cut off the leader's head to become the leader and then they just took over each other's tribe so yeah man it it just really the first time we hear like how violent and brutal they are so i put giants at number two what about you you're 100 percent right in terms of what mine was number one i picked giants (laughs) at my number one so a lot of what you said you know especially like the fact that they're so vicious that they kill each other in tribes they don't even care about the you know the continuation of their race they just fight each other for dominance in like who's going to be the gurg the leader you know like you were talking about that one guy ripped off the other dude's head threw it at the bottom of the lake you know beat the hell out of the other giants until they were submitted into like the other mountains you know so on top of that too we also hear about how voldemort used giants the first time around when he came to power and we'll get to see later when the big war really starts uh giants come into play again so you know armed with all that knowledge like they're just they are just seem so much more formidable to me than Thestrals. They're more useful in terms of, you know, survival and like if you're you know, if you're going to war, man, you're not gonna want Thestrals on your side. You're gonna want you're gonna want giants, man. Right. Like Grop fighting off <laughs> yeah. the centaurs, Haggard only being part giant, and like they tried to stun him a bunch of times and they just like the, the stunning cells glanced off him. Well pure giants have even stronger hide than that. Like it takes a lot to take down a giant. And, you know, they, they're just one of the strongest magical creatures who are on the brink of extinction because of each other. Because they're so strong that the only ones that can contend with them are them. So, it's yeah. just uh, one of those things, man. They they hit my number one for uh, top five magical creatures of Order of the Phoenix. That, that was my one. So, I'm going to take a random guess and say you put Thestrals as your number one. <laughs> Yeah, my number one is Thestrals, man. And uh, for all the reasons you said, um, one big reason actually is because it really brings in the connection between Luna and Harry and how they kind of bond. But I, and you know, I'm a big Luna fan because I was first a Ravenclaw. So that's part of it. Maybe I'm more like Hermione. That's why I love Hermione so much because she should have been in Ravenclaw. Um, anyways, uh, but yeah, I think the fact that they're like a, a demon version Pegasus is pretty <laughs> awesome. 
Um, and, you know, the fact that, you know, the people that haven't experienced death can't see them. By the way, just throwing this out there, not going to harp on that. Josh and I did look up where J.K. Rowling tries to claim it's not a plot hole because I guess Harry couldn't really comprehend the death at the time when he was a child. It's a fucking plot hole. Like We're just throwing that out there just so everyone's 100% clear. She was making excuses all day. Shout out to J.K. Rowling. She's awesome. But yeah, I see through your lies. I must not tell lies. <laughs> I'm sorry. I must not tell lies. Um, anyways, but yeah, just for those reasons, man, um, you know, I thought the whole idea behind them was was great, and they just kind of, like, come out of nowhere and save the day, um, bringing them over to the ministry. So I just, I just thought it was interesting. So really cool. Um, and so I put them as number one. Awesome. So then just to kind of give them what we always do, we'll do it in order from five to one. For me, I got number five, Doxy, number four, Krupp, number three, Bowtruckle, number two, Thestrals, number one, Giants. You go ahead and give them your five to one real quick. Yeah, I have five Bowtruckles, four Doxies, three Fire Crab, two Giants, and number one, Thestrals. Awesome. All right, man. Well, then give us the reasons on why Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is your number one book in the series, and then we'll close on out for the day. Yeah, man. So um, most of these are in order. Uh, some aren't just because I, I really went kind of like straight through on all these. Um, just given like all my reasons why, because this is my favorite book. I get it. It does have some plot holes and that sort of thing, but um, this is my decision. <laughs> so that's the way I look at it, man. So but the real reason why is this is like one of my number one reasons why this is my favorite book is because you really do see like how dark and deep depressed Harry can be for once. Um, and he's kind of, he's not taking like the bad route, but you really do see that side of like that angst teenage emotion. And as far as being, um, you know, how hard it can be being a kid based on what you go through. Um, so, you know, and he's even starting out, right? He's depressed because of Cedric's death, and he's never really experienced someone die close to him. Um, second, as far as, you know, just kicking off, you know, one of my favorite magical creatures, because they're just badass, it opens with Dudley getting attacked by the fucking Dementors, man. That's badass. So that was really cool. And the whole idea that someone controlled them and it was setting up this whole mystery of someone was framed um you know around this whole scheme was just genius i thought that was really cool how they tied it in there just to like really kickstart you know like when a band opens with a big opening theme song that's kind of what it was for but they were able to tie it into the whole thing so i thought that was sick um like i said it's much darker than the other books and it almost kind of gives more of this like Halloween theming to it, especially like when they're in the Hall of Prophecies or when they're at the dais or the veil. Um, it's the first time we actually hear about the secrets of the order and like the original order, what happened with them. Uh, so that was really cool. The Thestrals were introduced. Luna Lovegood, you know, she's one of my favorites. She's introduced. Uh, the first time you really see Harry in a relationship you know he has the nasty kiss and does nasty but he goes out to uh doesn't do the nasty no but he does go on his actual like real first date 
But at the same time, this is like very Game of Thronesy and real. Like everyone wants it to have like that happy ending would show, and it doesn't. Like it's very real. Things go awry very quickly. So it's very down to earth, and you see him like grow up in a relationship, and you find that you know sometimes things just aren't meant to be, and that's just the way things goes. Uh, Ron joins Quidditch for the first time, man. Quidditch is back. Ron's a keeper. That's badass. Um, and then Umbridge, I thought she was like a genius kind of villain, you know. Um, I actually talked about this on Interesting Facts, and I told Josh, like, one of our big things on the Interesting Facts is they claim on Pottermore she can actually conjure her own Patronus, even though only a pure of heart can, and doing what's morally right, can conjure a Patronus, but because she's so sick down deep in her thoughts and morality she always believed what she was doing was right like writing i will not tell lies because she believed she was sticking up for the ministry and had that whole sick detention scene like who would think of that like that's absolute torture so uh and you know her asserting her willpower on the entire hogwarts because of her pompousness and what she believed she could do i thought it was really creative creature uh we hear about another uh house elf which you know i'm a house elf fan but same thing it takes like a darker path usually you hear about dobby and and even winky with her drinking problems like at least they're somewhat like happy like trying to have this sense of like make the best of everything and creature is just downright nasty he's out to get people and i thought it was great kind of like seeing that dirty side almost like goblins um, Fred yeah, on and top George, of that, like, man, he, well, I was gonna say on top of that for creature, like he betrayed like the order and like got Sirius killed basically because if they found out Sirius was there, creature just told the truth and they found out Sirius was there, the Harry doesn't go to the Department of Mysteries, like oh yeah, so creatures creature fucked him, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally, like literally <laughs> f them. And uh, remember what I was saying one day, uh, me and you were you and I were talking about it. Um, You'll find out some history from Creature that I'll bring up. It'll be an interesting fact for an actual Sunday episode, not a bonus, but, like, he's even worse, like, in his early years. Like, you think he's, uh, you think he's bad as an old man. Well, he kind of mellowed out. He was even worse than that. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, he's just, he's bad, man. And I, but I thought it was a genius, like, turn on that. Um, Fred and George, though, going out with the bangs, standing up for what they believe in. Pull the pranks on Umbridge, fly off as legends. They got monuments built of themselves. The joke shop is actually taking off, finally. It's the first time we hear about that. And they got the whole, like, dragon skin leather jackets because they're finally getting what they deserve that they worked their ass off on. Um... We get to see Harry study occlumency, which was such on a deep dive level that now you're he's Dumbledore's trying to take into effect. This guy can't jump into his mind. But the more part of occlumency I love was my boy Snape. We finally get to hear about his past. Like you hear the whole time, like all these rumors of how he just hated James. Well, now we're starting to find out actual more. So you're finding out more from this because of it. And actually realizing like, you know, I mean, I know Harry still feels some kind of way, but how he found out at the end of this book, he's not an all-bad guy. Like, there's reasons for how he's turned out the way he is. Um, as far as, like, everything kind of starts to come together a little bit. You know, we talked about... I've talked about it so many times. Like, everything's kind of like a bridge. Like, you're starting to find out more 
um, about everything. Like you found out about the serious black family tapestry. Where is everyone coming from? Bellatrix the Strange, one of the worst, darkest wizards of all time. Amazing personality. Like I love the character aspect of Bellatrix, and you know, people are probably like, "Wow, you're really fucked up." But no, like I thought she was awesome. We get to learn about the three escape dark wizards that bring so much more into it. You have this whole idea with like Bodrick Bode and he plays an idea and you have the almost like this whole idea of the departed that I said like you have I get it like I get it it's kind of like declimactic because it was like in my view a diversion but you have almost like these two wizards trying to play like there's a rat in the maze on one or they're trying to sabotage each other like the prestige and the death eaters are trying to get the prophecy with Bodrick Bode but he can't touch the prophecy because he's not an unspeakable and then you have Harry going but Dumbledore's like no don't well, get Bo- no, Bodrick Bode wait wait Bodrick Bode is an unspeakable he can't touch it because he's not one of the persons who the prophecy's about Bodrick yeah, Bode is an unspeakable. Funny. That's his yeah. job. Yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. So Bodrick Bode is an unspeakable, but he couldn't... And they bewitched him or whatever they did. Put a curse on him, yes. bewitched him. How do you want to say that? And tried mm-hmm. to get him to use it, but he couldn't because it wasn't his name on the prophecy. So, yeah. But um, the, the whole idea behind that was why I liked it. Like, it was so creative. Like, it was like you had... It's no longer just this versus that, or I'm going to fight you at this point. It's now you're playing chess. It's almost like the Green Bay Packers coach and what he was doing against the Chiefs, even though I didn't really, or not against the Chiefs, uh, whoever he played, who played against the Chiefs in the Super Bowl, I can't remember now. Oh, Tom Brady, that's right. He was playing chess against Tom Brady and the Bucks. We went down there. Um, and, you know, it, it takes into all that account. Like, it's this army versus that army. He's trying to stop people. You have Snape that's now doing stuff for Dumbledore. You have Hagrid that went on this entire journey and brings back an actual giant. And all we hear is all we've heard before is these rumors on these things. And we actually get to see Guap. The snake and the sneak is absolutely genius because not just the fact it was amazing how Dumbledore escaped and how he wasn't gonna come quietly. But also the fact that you had Umbridge that was such a creative villain, she was getting the other students involved on her side to sabotage students on the inside just so she can have more control. And then you had the students that are going back and forth on each other that's splitting everything up because their relationships are getting ruined because they don't know what should they take risks on, what should they not, whose side should they go on because they're really just trying to do what's right. So you have this crazy villain that's breaking everything up apart and that's under Cornelius Fudge that's trying to sabotage Dumbledore. So everyone's trying to get back at each other. And of course, like Dumbledore, absolutely phenomenal. The way he escapes by putting everyone asleep. Uh, that's your favorite part. As far as um, we do get a deep look into the Department of Mystery Chambers. Not bringing up differences, but that's what I really hated about the movies. But, I mean, we get to see the brain room, which is badass. And it's sucked Ron in with those tentacles, man. But uh, even the time chamber where you saw even, uh, you know, remember the hummingbird that came out of the egg and back in. And you're seeing how they were experimenting with all these different things. And we really haven't heard about the Department of Mysteries much at all. At, at all like really we did some extra research on the time turner maybe a little bit but really you didn't even know what they did and at the whole time like harry's having these crazy dreams about this long dark corridor 
and we're wondering why like why is he having dreams well you know we realize it's provoked by this whole prophecy that voldemort's provoked by so it all has a reason for that for the first time we actually we've seen neville act as trying to be a hero in sorcerer's stone and other times but you know it just ends in petrificus totalis well finally like neville actually does some shit so <laughs> neville actually becomes that hero guy like when he was uh standing there at the top of the steps and you know don't give it to him harry stupefy stupefy even if he had like no half nose right like he was still standing up for what he believed in took hermione's wand like thought outside of the box and it's really the first time we get to see neville step up we get to go to St. Mungo's. We see the levels there. We learn about Neville's parents. You know, it's the first time we really hear about that. Um, Christmas at Grinwald's place. This is kind of messed up. But we do get to see the decorations of the house elf heads. I thought it was adorable. <laughs> Pretty messed up, but kind of cool. Um, you know, from there, you know, one of the most, like I said, it has that Halloween theming part with so many questions asked. You know, we look into the prophecies, the veil, and the dais. And we keep wondering if there's more about this dais and the veil. And um, going on to that, just playing into it, it's the first time we actually have a really huge hit to us as the audience. Like, I know people have died before, like Quirrell and stuff, but we really weren't, at least me, C at least. Cedric, Cedric was pretty, like, you know. Cedric, okay, there. yeah, and I was a Cedric yeah. guy. So, yeah, yeah Cedric. But at least to someone that Harry's like, and Harry was affected by Cedric, don't get me wrong. But in the end, like, Cedric was a friend. Like, Sirius is someone that he really saw as a father figure. So I feel like this is one of the first times we hit a hard home. Like, I'll say hard home. Um, like, one of our main characters is you know lost and we thought in the last book like man that was the big hit there and then like it just gets taken up another level and it keeps increasing from here you know we're setting the adults from the children at this point so first time you know it hits home and we see harry's grievance over that um as far as then just a few other things on this end uh of course, like I said, you get to see Dumbledore have that badass, takes everyone, takes Voldemort on one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, the first time, you know, we've really seen what he's capable of and shows like he has no fear. Like he's sticking up for what's right. Also just even shown how he threw like the loop spell that dragged the Death Eaters in and how it really is true. Like the only one he ever feared. Um, and then... We first time we hear about the prophecy is one must kill the other. So it leaves you with more questions asking about what's going to come about later. And uh, you start to really wonder like how this is going to end up. Um, and then from there, you know, um, you know, as far as that, you really do start to. I mean, I put down not there were a good amount of plot holes, but not too many plot holes. Um, but even just a couple other things, like we learn as far as 
you know, Ferenz, that was really cool. You actually got to see him become a teacher and step in for Trelawney. So I thought that was cool. You got to see the centaurs take over Umbridge, which was awesome, and see the other centaurs that were talked about from Ferenz and come in full circle there and how he had that whole, um, you know, differences between them and it was affecting him at the same time. Um, and as far as, you know, it's just kind of ends it gives you the last point i'll make here is it kind of ends with not what you expected um like how i said the grieving and stuff but then who would have expected you know coming into this book everyone thought luna was like the odd one and now harry's suddenly becoming like really close friends with her and you realize thinking from an outside perspective think of what this person has been through like think of what luna has been through yeah, she's odd, but there's a reason she's odd because she's been through a lot of shit. So it really just gave you that whole more adult development. Um, so like for me, that's why it's my favorite book on there. Awesome. Yeah. No, a lot of really good points, a lot of really cool moments. It's definitely a good one for sure. I'm sure there's people out there that will agree and put, you know, Order of the Phoenix is their favorite book as well. For me, it had it had my. It's funny, like it's not my favorite book, but it had my favorite moment in it. And my favorite moment in this book was actually it wasn't what happened in the Dumbledore office. It was actually the battle between like the Death Eaters and the Order when they come jumped in yeah. when like all seem lost and like they're about to torture Neville to death and he's about to give Lucius Malfoy the prophecy and then you know Sirius, Lupin, Tonks, Kingsley, they all Mad Eye Moody all come busting in the room and like they have a really dope battle scene there and then Dumbledore comes in and, and sweeps them all up like. It was a really cool, intense moment. It's not my favorite book, but it does have my favorite moment in the series in that book. But sweet, man. I guess that, yeah, that you know, will probably kind of close us out for the day here talking about Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. We still got our differences episode next week, so we're not completely done with Order of the Phoenix quite yet. Uh, you know, what we always want to say before we kind of sign off is just thanking everybody for the time they took. We've known the last few episodes. They're getting on in length, but as we always say... We want to make sure the content is on point, especially for these crazy moments. We can't say that we did Harry Potter justice without going into depth about these crazy awesome battles, the thought-provoking behind the prophecy and all of that, and you know the debates Chase and I throw in. It does cause the episodes to go a little bit longer, but I'd rather them go a little bit longer than us miss stuff out. You know, you know, rather give it too much than not enough. So thank you guys for sticking with it. We know it's been lengthy. Should get back to normal pretty soon in the next couple weeks uh, here with starting Half-Blood Prince. It's a smaller book. The chapters are smaller. And, you know, we can go back to kind of doing some bullet point moments here. Um, but on top of that, uh, you guys, as, as you most of you already know, if you're listening for the very first time, you can find us on a multitude of platforms. Anywhere you find your podcast, you can find Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. On Instagram, we're at Official Ridiculous Patronus. At Facebook, we're at Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. Podbean's our amazing uh, hosting site. They've done wonders for us. You can find us on there. Uh, so, guys, click the like button, subscribe, leave us reviews, comments, communicate. We love it. But I will say, we'll, we will give you guys a reprieve. And let you go for the day. So, as I always say around here, one more time Hold for Order of the Phoenix. All right, go ahead, man. Yeah, I was just going to let everyone know so they don't freak out. <laughs> so, there's an interesting facts this episode, guys, which will be on Wednesday. But the one after, when we do our differences, there won't be an interesting facts. So, don't worry when you see one come out. We're just doing the differences. You know, it's for fun. We focus a lot more on the books here. Uh, and then those will be back 
come Half Blood, which um, Half Blood Prince is a beast on its own. And with that, I'll let you uh, sign us off, man. You got it, man. I got a little overzealous there. I was ready. I was ready to get it. So, <laughs> anyways, guys, I will let you go at this point in time because you know what we say around here. This has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh, Factor Fantasy, signing, signing off. off. Thank you.